Welcome to part two of this very, very long episode of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We recorded this on December 12th and 13th, 2023. It ended up over 11 hours in runtime. And after taking out the breaks and stuff like that, it was still probably about 10 and a half hours to 11 hours. So what we're doing here is splitting it in two, as I'm sure is not a surprise to you. The first part has already been released. So if you're hearing this, go find part one if you haven't heard it yet. And the remainder of the agenda of what you heard on part one that we didn't get to is all in this part two, except for the Hertz topic, which we're kicking down the road once again. But everything else we did cover, and there were a lot of topics because the first part had that really, really long topic about the home game cheating scandal. And that ate up a lot of time. And then we did three more topics, and then the rest are all in this part, part number two. So here we go and enjoy. So next, I'm going to talk about two different betting apps, sports betting apps, where there's some controversy. The first one we're going to talk about is ESPN Bet and the same game parlay. Did you hear about this? Of course I did. I, know, okay. I read everything you read. Okay, though. okay. Yes, so No, I'm just saying. I'll tell the this listener. This is the guy that didn't get paid, but I think they paid him, right? Yeah, well, they change we'll, it? we'll yeah, yeah. tell the listener here. Oh, so, sorry. Sorry, sorry. So here's, here's the story with the ESPN bet thing. So there's something called a same game parlay. And that is where you place a number of bets on the same game, different types of bets within the game, but a number of different bets on the same contest. And then they're all tied together. So a parlay is where you have a bunch of bets together. And if even one of them loses, then the whole ticket loses. So let's say you have a 10-game parlay. If you win nine and lose one, it's a losing ticket. You might as well have lost all 10. And if you win everything, then you win the parlay. And of course, the payout's very big compared to what you bet. That's why some people like them. And if you tie one of them, the way parlays typically work is they just take that leg out as if it wasn't there. So let's say you have a eight-way parlay where you're betting on eight things and seven of them win none lose, and one ties. So what has typically been done is they just take the tie out as if that wasn't part of the parlay. It becomes a seven-game parlay, and you're the winner. And you win based upon it being a seven-game parlay, based upon whatever the odds were of each leg of the parlay, and it calculates the whole thing, and you get paid. That's, that's the way it's always been. Now, ESPN Bet is the former Barstool Sports brand. So it's a legalized betting app, and it is owned by Penn National Gaming, who bought Barstool Sports, which originally was a website started by Dave Portnoy. And then they had their brand on a sports betting app, and then it has since partnered with ESPN to use that brand. So it's called ESPN Bet, and it is legalized. And a person named Kels Johnson who's at Calculator Grant, exactly as it sounds, at Calculator Grant on Twitter, not a known person, tweeted, this is on November 26th, at ESPN Bet, can you please, the portion of your bylaws, I think he means, can you please tell us the portion of your bylaws that makes this entire bet push? Have never seen this on any other book that I've been on. So he bet five legs of this Philadelphia Eagles and Buffalo Bills game in that week 
And he won all five bets on that game. Again, these were all in the same game, except for Eagles minus three. And that bet tied because the Eagles won by three. So this should have converted itself to a four-game parlay, and the Eagles minus three portion should have just been removed as if it was never there. Instead, by ESPN bet rules, it became a tie, and this guy, Kels Johnson, got his money back rather than winning. And he would have won about 10 times his money had it been done the way all the other books do it. Now, this wasn't huge money because he only bet 40 bucks, so he only lost out on 400 He got back 40 instead of 440 But this is very non-standard, and he's justifiably angry. So somehow this got around. It has 1,100 likes, and the New York Post even did an article about it. The ESPN bet rules say this, quote, if one or more selections of a same-game parlay portion of a parlay plus wager settle as a push, for example, due to a total ending up exactly on the number that was selected, the same gay parlay portion of the parlay plus wager that contained the applicable selection will be deemed a push, except if the selection of such game parlay portion results in a loss, in which case the above applies. So basically they're saying if any portion of a bet that's on the same game, a parlay that's in the same game, if any portion of that ties, the whole thing ties. So you have to win every portion, not just win or tie every portion, for you to win any money on this, which is really crappy. Now, FanDuel and DraftKings, which also operate legalized sportsbooks in the U.S. in addition to their daily fantasy sports stuff, they would pay this as a four-game parlay win. They would have done what I was saying before, just remove the Eagles minus three tie, and the other four bets, which one would have been considered a four-bet parlay, and he would have won. However, before you praise them too much, FanDuel used to have rules like ESPN bet, But something like this happened before, and someone complained, and FanDuel was embarrassed, and they changed their rules due to customer outrage. So I guess this is ESPN Bet's moment for it, except uh, uh, at first they weren't backing down, which is what brought this to Twitter. So the only way that someone can avoid this on a site that does this is to only do parlays where the line ends with 0.5, you know, like minus 1.5, plus 1.5, whatever, and then there's no way to tie it. But anytime you were to bet something with a tie, you're risking it's going to screw your whole parlay, and you definitely would not want to bet on an ESPN bet doing that. Now, Brandon, you're saying that this guy got paid since then? See, I didn't follow it up. This is a guy that was a school teacher, right? No, that was a different one. Okay, hold on. I think you are getting confused. We're going to do that other topic next. I don't want to. Yeah, I never saw the results of this, and I can't find any resolution to this that wasn't a school teacher that that was that's the next topic we're going to do the next topic of the school teacher totally different topic i'm sorry go on you just got to consider you just got to consider that the line you're betting is adding 0.5 well or just not use espn bet (laughs) i know for sure but i'm just saying if that's the rule then if it's three no it's not it's 3.5 because three you lose yeah yeah I mean, it's well. No, you tie, so it's it's still better because it, it tying is better than losing. He, he didn't lose the bet; he just pushed the bet because of okay, this. Hold on. That's right. Was this a guy that had that? You said the the one that pushed was it the Eagles minus three over the Bills? Yes. Okay. No, he didn't get paid. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, ESPN I mean, bet. I mean, they haven't. I shouldn't say that. There's no information to indicate. That's that. what I saw when I looked and, it up. Yeah. And ESPN hasn't responded publicly. Right. So, so, so I think yeah. they're just trying to make this go away. 
and I guess it has. This happened. I got confused with the school teacher guy. Yeah, I know it's a similar. some similarities. Yeah, that's our next story. But yeah, yeah, this is really crappy. And what sucks about this is not just a matter of the rules being different on that book. It's that people don't expect this because every other book is paying this as a win in this spot. So what you got to do. I don't know if you said this, so I apologize, is if you do happen to live in a jurisdiction where you're using ESPN bet and you do any sort of parlay like that, make sure that every number, every spread ends with a point five. We just said that. So you'll never. You must have oh, been I sleeping. I said, I, if I didn't hear you, then I'm, yeah. Okay. I, I, I missed it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So that's. that's strange that, you know, and the, uh, the whole weird thing about that is that, you know, the parent company of ESPN, obviously, is Disney. So you would think they even they wouldn't even want to be involved in this. Like it's kind of weird. Yeah, and Penn and National Gaming is big too. Deal. It's it's huh? two big companies to get. It's Penn National Gaming owning it and ESPN branding it. You think between yeah. the two of them, one of them would say, you know, let's let's get away from this bad publicity. Now that it's in the New York Post, it's not just a few sports betting nerds on Twitter talking about it. It's right. in the New York Post. It makes them look really bad. Like why not for good publicity put this out? And this is what FanDuel tends to do: is they'll they'll do something shitty and then there will be some viral tweet about it, and then they will overcorrect it and really make it right for the person, and then sometimes even change their rules like they did in this type of situation a while back, so this doesn't happen again. They are very cognizant of how bad publicity can hurt them, where it seems like ESPN bet doesn't give a shit, which is very strange. Yeah. I will say that I agree with this Kels Johnson guy that he did get screwed here because this is just non-standard and they really need to make it obvious to anyone placing a parlay that this is the case. They can't just bury it in their fine print. They really need to make it clear that this book handles it differently than elsewhere. Or at least, if they don't want to state that, at least state very clearly as you're placing the parlay, note, a push on any leg will make the whole bet push, because it's same game. And then if people submit it anyway, then tough luck on them. But it should be very, very obvious to those who aren't going to just scroll through their terms of service and read every single rule. Nobody does that. So, okay. So now we're going to talk about the one with the school teacher, which involves BetMGM. Now you guys know I'm not the biggest fan of BetMGM because they were used to steal $10,000 from me and they were not particularly cooperative in giving me the money back until, and I guess this will link back to ESPN, until I had a story on ESPN on the front page about how I got stolen from, as did like 50 plus other poker pros in the same way, and then all of a sudden they fell all over, all over themselves to give me the money back because I was the lead figure in that story. That's the only reason they were so cooperative at that point. But at, prior to that, they were very uncooperative. So I'm not a big bet MGM fan, but I am going to be unbiased in this situation that occurred in August of 2023, but didn't come out until mid-November of 2023. So in August 2023, a school teacher named Chris Benton, not uh, Major League Baseball pitcher Chris Benson, but this is Chris Benton, very close, same spelling of Chris, K-R-I-S. Chris Benton bet on an obscure international women's soccer game, and he threw up three long odds prop bets, all of which won. So he bet uh, $3,250, which is you know, a pretty big bet for a school teacher. He's not a pro sports better, but he bet $3,250 to possibly win 214000 And what do you know? He won. 
And there was public outrage over this when BetMGM would not pay him. So why wouldn't BetMGM pay him? Well, BetMGM asserted that they simply posted the line incorrectly. So he did a same-game parlay for the Netherlands to have the most corners in their game. And this is a game against Vietnam, a, a women's soccer game. So the Netherlands is playing Vietnam, women's soccer. He bet them to have the most corner kicks compared to Vietnam, a clean sheet, and for Netherlands to score first. The problem here was that Netherlands was a huge favorite in this game over Vietnam. They were a minus 10,000 favorite. That's a very, very big favorite. That's like 100 to 1. So they were way, way, way better than Vietnam. There's no question. And yet they were 66 to 1 on the props on things like scoring first and having the most corner kicks. Now that makes no sense. That's like a baseball team that's the 100 to 1 favorite to win, which you'd never see in a baseball game. But let's say you could see it. A baseball game that's a 100 to 1 favorite betting that they're going to have the most runs or that they're going to score first. I mean, obviously, they're the much bigger favorite to do so. You wouldn't be getting 66 to 1 odds in your favor that this would happen. So there's no way you'll ever get paid 66 to 1 for something that's likely to happen. But that's what this guy was betting. So they should have been huge favorites, not huge underdogs. It probably was reversed. It probably should have been 1 to 66, not 66 to 1. So a tremendous difference. So Chris Benton saw this and attempted to fire on it because he saw these tremendously good odds. He saw the much, much, much better team. He's getting 66 to 1 for things like the team scoring first. So of course he's going to bet that. That's a great bet. That's an incredibly great bet. So I don't blame him for trying. But BetMGM caught it and didn't pay him. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, though. They accepted the bet, and he won the bet, so isn't it their fault for offering bad odds? Why should he only get paid when they set the line properly? Well, you have to understand the way these sports books work. It's that it's long been the policy of offshore books, and even legalized books, that they're allowed to invalidate bets when the odds are so egregiously wrong that the better is expected to know at the time when he's placing the wager. So there's one thing to see a line and go, wow, this is a good line. I think that this is good value for me to bet. It's another thing to see something that's so far off, orders of magnitude off, that when you're placing it, you know it had to be a mistake. So there's no chance that Chris Benton just decided he's going to bet on Vietnam versus Netherlands and women's soccer. He bet on this because he saw there was a giant mistake. And this is a similar concept to merchandise pricing. So let's say you look in the newspaper and you see a laptop computer advertised for sale for $1,020. You go down to the store and they say, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. We meant to do $1,200. Well, they will honor that. They'll honor the $1,020 and in fact... In many cases, you can sue them and win for false advertising, even if they claim it's a mistake. Why? Because they're close enough. Because you could say, no, this wasn't a mistake. They're just going to claim that for anyone who goes down and tries to tries to get this price. And they know that some people will just accept that it was a, quote, mistake and pay it. So since it's not an obvious mistake, 1020 versus 1200, that you could claim it's false advertising. 
But now let's change this example to the $1,200 laptop being advertised as a $12 laptop. Could you bring the ad down and say, okay, I want this laptop for $12? No, they'll, they'll say, we're not doing it. If you say, well, you advertise this, they'll say, look, this is an obvious mistake. You couldn't believe we're going to sell you this laptop that's worth over a thousand bucks for $12. Obviously, we're not doing that. Obviously, it's a mistake. So tough luck. We're not selling it to you. And you could never force them to, nor could you sue them for false advertising and win. So it's kind of along the same lines. And the reason these laws exist is to protect businesses from catastrophic losses due to massive pricing misprints. And that's the only fair. Otherwise, if you had to hold them to a price that's a thousand times cheaper, a hundred times cheaper than it should be, the place could go out of business. So same with sports books. You can't just hold them to accepting bets because of a malfunction or misclick or mistype where one game that is that way can just completely break them and they have to go out of business. So these laws are there to protect these businesses with the basic concept that the average better is going to know if it's an egregious mistake. And this obviously was an egregious mistake, and this Chris Benton knew it, and he took a shot, and he didn't get paid. So what I would have done in that situation is, would I have bet on this? Yes. Why wouldn't I? I mean, I see, I see a tremendously good line. Why wouldn't I try to bet and see if they are willing to pay me? If they don't pay me, would I cry foul? No. I may mention it. That's kind of amusing, but I, I would never cry foul. I would never say I got screwed because I would be knowing exactly what I'm doing there. That's not even an advantage play. That's just like taking a shot when they've made a mistake and see if they're willing to honor it. And if they're not, then it's kind of like a free roll, you know, like if, if they're willing to honor it, fine. If not, then you understand why. But, but Chris Benton was not taking this line down and he got an attorney and he had the attorney contact BetMGM and, and basically threatened to sue them. And they also made this public. So this story started to go around and that's why people like myself and Brandon heard about it. And that's why it took a while for us to hear because they were probably trying to negotiate with BetMGM who was just digging their heels in and saying no. Now, Brandon, what ended up happening with, with the school teacher, Chris Benton? What ended up happening with this 214K? Did he end up getting it? Yes, they paid him. They paid him. Yeah. And see, I don't agree with that. I, I see why they did it because the average sports better the average person in the public just sees this as the sports book being shitty booking a bet and not paying it but i'm actually on their side on this one well unlike espn uh uh, you know wait what site was this again this is bet mgm okay oh uh, that's surprising i thought it was DraftKings or something but yeah unlike them apparently the publicity you know the money's not going to do nothing then i was not going to hurt them but they obviously the people that make those sort of decisions believe that the bad publicity would hurt them much worse so they end up paying him this famously happened for the first time at least in terms of the notoriety uh it was pretty recently pretty recent after the supreme court ruling where you know the sports book started opening up where there is an in-game line i want to say it was in new jersey but it was definitely the east coast on a denver broncos game where they were either winning, I can't remember, they were trailing by two points and with barely any time left, and the losing team was driving and well in field goal range. It was one of those situations where, you know, there was like 30 seconds left, they were like within the 20, you know, the other team had no timeout, so they were going to run maybe one more play or two more plays, kick basically a chip shot field goal to win, and they set the in-game line on the team that was about to kick a field goal at some ridiculous number, like plus 14,000. This made the, all the national news. 
And I mean, it was so obviously obvious an error now, but obviously, like you know, it's the NFL. They're professionals, but no field goal is a give me. I mean, I've seen a guy miss an 18, 19 yard field goal from the two to win a playoff game. So anyhow, the people started hammering it. And anyhow, you know, one person literally, like, I think, you know, bet a couple hundred, he won like 70,000. So long story short, this was the first time something like this had made the mainstream news about this in-game line. And of course, initially, like, they, you know, made the claim right after the game that it was obvious that the line was wrong. It was a mistake on this, this, you know, they explained why there was a mistake. But nonetheless, they went ahead. This, this was DraftKings. They went ahead and they paid everyone because of the publicity and the fact they were brand new. Uh, so normally, it's kind of surprising, actually, that ESPN did it. Because when something like this gets that kind of notoriety, uh, you know, they just they don't want the bad publicity because they feel it's such a competitive market now. You know, it's a developing market, which it still is, which is why there's so many different incentives to get people to sign up and all these sign-up bonuses because they believe that their studies have shown once they get loyalty from you know, a customer, that loyalty is going to continue on and on, and they'll be a lifelong customer, and that's what they're trying to win. So that's another reason. They don't want the bad publicity, because you're right, like the guy that works a nine-to-five, you know, you know, hard job, you know, is just going to remember, he's not going to remember the rules and the laws and why they did He's just going to remember, oh, the ESPN bet, they screwed that guy. You know, I'm never going to bet with, you know, they will, people will, people do remember that stuff. So, anyhow, uh, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion, I'm going to be honest, if I saw a shot like that, I would probably take it. You know, if something looks like that, you know, it's a blatant error, you know, and you're just reading the numbers, you're not breaking any rules, not breaking any law. But at the same time, if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't be surprised and I'd understand why. That's what I said, too. That's exactly my position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's if I think we lost Brandon here. What was that Vietnam light line on other sites? I don't even know, but it was probably the other way around. It was probably one to sixty six right. instead of sixty six one. Reversed. Yeah, I think it was reversed. Then, yeah. So, do you think if he wasn't a school teacher, they would have paid him? I think it didn't matter what he was. I think they would pay just because it made enough publicity here that uh, they just felt they looked bad. It said you removed me. No, it, to me, it showed you paused. <laughs> Whatever that means. It said. Uh, it- Showed on the screen like a little crying emoji, and it said you have been removed by. Oh, I, I did. You know, I did remove you after you paused and didn't unpause. I don't even know what pausing oh, is. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pause. I'm just talking. Yeah. And it just. Okay, anyhow, so it doesn't matter. But the point is, I would not cry over it if I didn't get paid because I'd know going into it that it was a risk, and I likely wouldn't. Yeah, that's exactly you know? what I would have said. In fact, you know what? I'll tell you something. I just remembered something. It's kind of irrelevant, but maybe about two years ago. I saw something similar on bet online where I made a bet on, it wasn't a lot cause I didn't, you know, didn't know if it'd go through. I, did, I definitely don't want to get banned, but there was a, an in-game line on something that was impossible. Like it was like two minutes left and the team was up like by six and the in-game line was in like minus 20. Like it was something obvious and error. And I'm just like, you know what? Let me just bet this and see what happens here. I have a screenshot of it somewhere and I bet like a hundred or $200 on it. I mean, it was literally, I knew it was a mistake because it was impossible. They were up like seven or six, one possession, you know, and they had the ball and the line was like 20 points. So sure as shit, as soon as the game ended, uh, am I still here? Hello? Yeah, you're here. Oh, because I'm hearing an echo now. Skype is just awful lately. Anyhow, I'll deal with it. Um, So I logged out of the account, logged back in, and sure as hell, I got paid. And then I went about my day or whatever it was. It was a Saturday because it was college football. 
And then the next time I logged in, the money was gone. And I never even questioned it. I didn't write them an email. I didn't complain. I just went on with my day. And I have the screenshot somewhere, but they knew it was a mistake. They removed it. They never sent me an email telling me why. And I never questioned it because I knew it was a blatant mistake. Yeah, I mean, that, that should be the attitude you it take. It was 200 bucks. It was, yeah. like, it was more of a test than anything. Yeah, I mean, um, that's the attitude people should take there. It, it, it's just very entitled here to say they made an egregious error and I tried to take advantage of it, and they caught it, and now they've got to pay me. I mean, that's just not the right attitude to have here. You can try to get paid. If, they, if they're if they dumb enough to pay you, then that's their own fault. And as Brandon said, it's legal, and it's your opportunity to bet. But you yeah. can't be mad when they say, sorry, this was a clear mistake. You knew it was a mistake, and, and now we don't want to pay you. So the funny but thing the is I see with the story you told is people just can remember it was a teacher, an underpaid teacher. You know, it's all those little fabrics, and that's why they throw it in there. You know, that's why they point out he's a teacher. There's no reason to point out he's a teacher. What difference does it make? He could yeah. be a mailman. He yeah. could be a lawyer. Like, they point out that he's a teacher for you to feel, oh, you know what I mean? Yes. Teachers are known. They're not making a lot of money. You know, they even said, like, high school teacher or junior. You know, it's not like he's a professor. Maybe. So, you know, it's all those components. And, again, like, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with the guy getting going the lawyer route and doing that because, obviously, he's smart enough to know that it was a mistake. To You know, I think he maybe even admitted he knew. But he still did it, and then he gets a lawyer. Like that's just whatever. I mean, he got paid. You know, good game. But yeah, I've got the same. I would uh, opinion as you. If he didn't get paid. Not. I wouldn't shed a tear for him. No, I wouldn't at all. I, wouldn't, I was on the side I that he shouldn't know. get paid. If I, if I were the one deciding this, I'd say he should not get paid. Whereas the ESPN bet guy, I would say should get paid. Yeah, I agree with that. That's just kind of shitty. Yeah, the, the, it's funny. You're right. It's kind of like the opposite there. Whereas ESPN, like, I feel bad, like, he should get paid, and the other guy shouldn't, when it's reversed. Yeah, <laughs> dumb. No justice in yeah. the world. Yep. Is, okay. is the ESPN guy not a school teacher? What's his profession? <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. Mr. He, Mr. That's funny. He needs yeah. to get a different job. Next, we will talk about the Circa lawsuit that involves comps. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And Let's this is that. one I have looked into a lot years ago. Prior to this lawsuit, of course, because I was interested in this subject for myself. So here's what's going on. And I'll tell you, I think this could open up the floodgates for more lawsuits like this, because I know of other companies that are making the same mistakes. People have always been confused, and I think this includes casino employees, including high casino employees, about taxation and comps. Some of it, I think, is just ignorance, and some of it, I think, is poor programming of their systems. Because these things are all managed by computers. They tell the computers to treat something a certain way, and it does. And sometimes they don't think about the different situations that can come up. And then if you try to object to it, you get idiots there to say, no, no, that's the way it is. You don't know what you're talking about. And they force you to pay taxes you shouldn't pay. So comps have been an issue in Nevada regarding how they're taxed or if they're taxed at all. Because there's two ways to look at it. One way to look at it is any comp shouldn't be taxed because there's no sale being made. It's basically the casino's giving you something. And there's no sales tax on something that's given to you. Sales tax is supposed to be paid in the case of a sale. It's supposed to be paid based upon the sale price. So if the sale price is zero, the tax is zero. But there's other ways to look at it. Another way to look at it is that, yes, it's being given away, but not out of the goodness of the company's heart. 
it's being given away as part of another commercial transaction, which is your gambling, your hotel stays, whatever it might be that earned you the comps, that this is all part of a financial relationship. This isn't something just being given to you. And that it's a different story because in a way a sale is being made, even if you're not directly paying for the comps, you've paid for it in other ways. So those are the two ways to look at it. And this has been debated in the Nevada legislature on how they will handle taxing comps. There are also two types of comps that we have to look at here. There's food and beverage comps, which are comps like at the restaurants and the property. There's actually three types of comps. There's food and beverage comps that are food and beverage owned by that casino. So restaurants they own, bars they own, whatever it might be, that they own at least half. That's one type of comp. A second type of comp would be comps to restaurants on premises that they don't own, that are just leasing space there, but that the casino is paying for anyway for your meal. And then the third type of comp would be room comps. And I guess there's also a fourth type of comp, which is something that's neither room nor food or beverage, such as like tickets to a sporting event or whatever. So we'll ignore the fourth thing for now. I want to talk about the room and the food and beverage comps. Retail. Retail comps. And retail comps. Yeah, I mean, you can go on forever listing these, but we're just going to talk right now about mainly about the food and beverage comps and also get into the room comps and my personal history with that, because I, I had an issue with that starting a number of years ago. So a class action lawsuit has been filed against Circa Hospitality Group, and it is accusing the Circa Group, this is for Circa, Golden Gate, and D through the Club One loyalty program, of failing to disclose fees and taxes that you have to pay on comps that you've earned through their loyalty program called Club One. And that people found that when they tried to use their points, that they were charged tax. And somehow this law firm found out about it, someone brought it to this law firm, and they filed a lawsuit and they seek certification as class action and also an order requiring Circa to cease any and all forms of unlawful conduct and that Circa should not reduce consumers' earned comps by fictitious fees that, quote, defendant engaged in deceptive trade practices and then also to recover unspecified actual consequential and punitive damages to be determined at trial. So basically, they want Circa to stop this, and then the more important thing is cough up a bunch of money. They cited an instance that occurred at Saginaw's Deli at Circa, only $23 purchase, but uh, this is all they have to establish to show it's really happening. Uh, This is uh, a guy whose name was Matthew Stokes. It said, Mr. Stokes was surprised to see that in addition to the $23... The defendant's point-of-sale system assessed an additional $1.93 of, quote, add-on tax that was deducted from his earned comps balance. So basically, he not only used $23 worth of points, he had to use an additional $1.93 worth of points to pay for the sales tax. So this was cited as an example of the illegal tax that Circa is collecting and basically reducing people's comps in this fashion. And the lawsuit claims that for the four years that this Club One comp program has been operating, that 
they're estimating about $3.75 million of damages has occurred as far as this tax that was collected through the comps. Now, it does not say whether these taxes were actually then remitted to the government, which would be an interesting question. This wouldn't justify charging it, but it's uh, it, it does raise the question of whether this money was just kept by the Circo Hospitality Group or if they incorrectly forwarded it on to the government. So what is the true law on this, is the question. Well, I'm going to deviate for a second and talk about the law on room comps, because this I have a lot of experience with, with Caesars. So I earned a lot of rewards credits. I, I don't have any. I've actually blown all my rewards credits. In fact, on the last time I went to Vegas, this last trip where I won the 64K, I had Benjamin's mom and Benjamin with me, and we went to a Caesars property for a meal at one point, and I blew the remainder of my RCs on that meal. So I have no more rewards credits at Caesars for the first time in many, many, many years. But at one point, I had more than 2K worth. So when I didn't have comp rooms, I would use my reward credits to pay for my rooms. Why not? Why, why pay real cash when I can use reward credits? But I was upset to find that they were charging me room tax for it. Because in my experience at Caesars Properties, anytime you're using your RCs for anything, there's no tax on it. So why are they charging me room tax? But I thought maybe this is an idiosyncrasy in Nevada or Clark County law or both that you have to pay tax and that this is the way it works. So I actually went and researched it, what the law was, and it turned out it was a county law, and the county law actually exempted me from having to pay tax. This was Clark County Code 4.08.050, and no, I didn't memorize that, but I posted about it on my Vegas Casino Talk site at the time. This is back in 2018. But I had this problem before that. It just kept coming up, and I finally posted about it in 2018. But it says, no combined transient lodging tax shall be imposed under the provisions of this chapter upon, and then they list various reasons that they should not ever tax you. And one of them, E, said, complimentary rooms wherein there is no rent paid to the operator in conjunction with the occupancy. Well, that's right there. I mean, when you're using reward credits, you're not paying any rent to the operator in conjunction with the occupancy but yet Caesars was trying to charge me tax on the reward credits. So why? Were they just violating the law? Why would they want to charge me extra tax when they just had to forward it to the government anyway? Because I believe the Caesars really was paying this tax to the government. So why would they do this? Well, I figured it out. It is not that common to use reward credits to pay for hotel rooms. Usually, you're either going to pay outright for the hotel rooms you know, just paying on your credit card, whatever, or you're going to get an offer for free hotel rooms in which there never is a charge, or you'll play and you'll get your room, which is supposed to cost money, comped off by the host, where the host will just wipe the whole thing off. So it's a fairly unusual situation. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's not all that common where a person does pay for it, but uses their banked reward credits to pay for it. So a host isn't covering it, I'm not getting it through an offer, and I'm not paying on my credit card, I'm using my RCs to pay for it. It's not all that common. 
So they never programmed. You've done it before. I've done it before. I know, but it's not that common. So they they did not program their system to account for this situation. They didn't program their system to look at this situation and say, hey, he shouldn't have to pay tax here because he's using his RCs. Because there's no way to do an RC booking. You can't, you can't call up Caesars and say, hey, I'd like to book a room at one of your properties and use my reward credits to pay. What they will tell you is, we can't do that. We have to book it normally. We have to put a credit card to guarantee it. And then when you check out, tell them, instead of charging your card, can you please bill your RCs? And then they'll bill whatever you would have gone to your card to your RCs. The only thing you can't do that with is tips. Maybe. Not maybe, 100%. No, maybe. Why maybe? Well, I can tell you several times over the years, I've had bills on my Caesars folio, and I've told them to apply RCs, and it's gone on my credit card. They've done everything but use RCs. Oh, you're saying they made a mistake, but they could do it. Well, oh, yeah. No, they have the capability to do it, but I'm just saying, you know, you said call them and tell them to use RCs, and I'm saying maybe because it doesn't oh, okay. well, you, always follow instructions. Okay, okay. you were talking about that fail. I thought you meant maybe like yes. they... No, 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 no. I just mean maybe that they'll actually... The last couple of times that I, you know, years ago that I used RCs for something charged to the room, like, you know, I would charge, uh, you know, what I know that, you know, the trick, so you don't have to pay the tax. You charge it. The, anyhow, no, fail. So they didn't, they didn't do it. Yeah. Well, I'm not even discussing like typical, like Caesar's employee fail. I'm talking about actually in their own system, there is no way to do an RC booking. And then when you try to have them charge well, the RCs, that's not just Caesar's, right? So, you know, say I wanted to use, you know, I'm someone that doesn't have status at MGM, but I have quite a bit of comps that I've banked for years at, MGM properties, if I wanted to use my MGM points to pay a resort fee or to pay for a room, it'd be the same thing, right? It's not. This isn't just privy to... That's probably true. Right? I, I haven't tried it anywhere else, but you're probably right. So anyway... Yeah, check. I, I know there's no way to do it. Yeah. I'd have to, you know, the, when I go on the system, it shows all of that, but it would make me book a reservation, make me put down a credit card. It'd make, it would even authorize me for all the nights. And then when my trip is over, I would just have to say, let me pay with my uh, express comps, and then it would, you know, if they did it right, it would come off. That's yeah. the only well, way. So, so they didn't program the system, and, I, and since you bring this point up, I wonder if all the hotels are like this, where they just did not program the system to take a look that when RCs are being used, that they should not charge the room tax. They just did not program it. And yeah. as someone who developed software myself prior to becoming a poker pro i can tell you that if you don't program the system to do something the system won't know to do it so i'm convinced that's what happened so the first time i brought this to a caesar's properties attention they treated me like i'm crazy and they told me i'm wrong and in fact a manager there at the vip room told me that 100 percent i was wrong that he knew for sure he was polite about it, but he said, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I know this for sure. I do this for a living. You know, this is my position here to know this. And you're just not correct about this, sir. I'm sorry about that. You're just going to have to pay the tax with the RCs if you want to use the RCs for this. The guy was 100% certain. Anyway, I took it above his head and his manager said, well, I don't know the answer. You might be right and he might be right. We're not sure. That person took it to their manager. Their manager said, hmm, that's a good question. We've never thought about this before. Yeah, it could go either way. They took it up to their manager. And keep in mind, I sent them the damn law. I sent them a copy of the damn law and where they can look it up. So I, I tried to hold their hand the whole way, but they were still going, hmm, we're not sure about this. So anyway, finally, three managers up took a look and said, you know what? This Todd guy was correct. We should not have charged him tax. 
<laughs> so they emailed me and said, sorry about that. We've refunded those RCs back that you paid for the tax. And I said, okay, well, thank you very much. But I'm afraid this is going to happen again next time. How do I stop this from happening next time? And they told me, you know, whose name to say. I say it next time. And they said, oh, we don't see any notes about that. They try to contact the person. They say, oh, I'm sorry. This person doesn't work at Caesars anymore. <laughs> so I had to start all fucking over again. And every time I went through this, no matter whose name I got, no matter what I was guaranteed for next time, it was always the same thing. At the hotel level, they always told me no. I had to wait a few days till they took it to someone above. You would have to go a few levels up. Then they'd come back with, I'm right. They'd give me the RCs back. And then I'd be back at square one the next time where there's no notes on my account, no notes anywhere. The person to contact either isn't there anymore, can't be reached. Every freaking time that happened to me, I finally just gave up and started paying it, believe it or not. I just gave up with it. Now I'm out of RCs anyway. But yeah, it was really frustrating. But they, they were not following Clark County law is the truth. It's right there. 4.08.050. Go look it up yourself. So that was for rooms. But let's talk about another idiosyncrasy in the Caesar system, which also may be a problem in other systems, but I know Caesar so well, I can tell you this is for sure. Let's say I go to a Caesar's owned restaurant and I pay using my rewards credits, as actually I just did on my last trip. Well, then there is no tax charged. If you pay directly with rewards credits at the restaurant, there will be no tax, which is correct. But if I charge it to my room and then I pay on checkout, there is tax. Why is that? Once again, the system was not programmed right. Why? Because the system is not programmed to differentiate the way you pay it upon checkout. Because think about it, when you charge to your room, it is not known at that time how you're going to pay it off. It's not known if you're going to use RCs. It's not known if you're going to use your credit card. It just knows you're charging to the room. So of course it has to include tax. That part's right. But what it should do is once you use RCs upon checkout, at that point, the tax should drop out, but the system is not smart enough to differentiate that. Now, I got in a big argument, this is some years ago, but I got in a big argument with a manager at Flamingo about this. Now, no, I wasn't dumb enough to charge to my room. I was very aware of this idiosyncrasy, but the argument was about the room tax. And the guy insisted to me that there are no errors in the system and it does everything right. And I said, okay, explain this one to me then. If it does everything right, how come if I go to a restaurant right now and I pay directly with my RCs, there's no tax. And if I charge it to my room and then pay with my RCs as I check out, there is tax. Explain why that is. And he says, that's not the way it works. I said, oh, really? That's not the way it works? Let's go do it right now. Let's walk to a place. I'll make a $10 purchase. I'll pay with RCs. You'll see there's no tax. Then I'll make another $10 purchase, charge it to my room, and you'll see there's tax. He didn't want to do it. I go, ah, so you admit I'm right about this. So why, why is there tax on one and not for the other at the same place for the same $10 purchase at the same time? Why is there tax on one and not the other just because one's charged to the room and one isn't? And of course, he couldn't explain it. So I said, okay, well, since you can't explain it, that means it's an error. And if that's an error, then why isn't there also an error with the room thing. Why couldn't there be an error with the room thing if there is with the food and beverage thing? So he didn't know what to say. He just basically told me, well, I'm not changing this, have you? And so I, I had to take it above him. And, you know, they took it off. That was before I gave up on the whole thing. 
I had always wondered if this is going to come to a head one day. I'd always wondered if there's going to be a lawsuit about this because they were improperly charging tax. Now, back to the thing that was happening with the rooms, that was fairly unusual, using rewards credits when I'm checking out. I'm not saying nobody does it, but it doesn't happen that much. But I did wonder, like, something that does happen a whole lot where someone charges food to their room and then uses RCs when they check out. That does happen a lot. All that tax that's improperly being collected, will there one day be a lawsuit about that? I just quietly wondered that to myself. Well, there is, but not against Caesars. This one is against Circa, but it's the same thing, but not quite. Because this isn't about room charges. Circa's system apparently is even worse to where they just charge tax on any point of sale purchase. So if you go there and swipe your Club One card to pay, the system's not smart enough to take off the tax if you're using your points, which is pretty amazing because even Caesars does that. So really... This lawsuit is correct. And even though Vital Vegas, who's a big circus shill, was calling it frivolous, he's wrong. It's not frivolous. Now, the funny thing was, for many years, I incorrectly believed that food and beverage should be taxed. And in fact, that Caesars was doing it wrong by not taxing when you paid directly with RCs. And the reason I thought that is I was reading old articles, because until 2013, that was the truth. And I'll tell you, before 2013, Caesars was also incorrectly not collecting the tax. But after 2013, then it switched. There was a big debate within the Nevada legislature, and they decided that they are not going to collect tax on food and beverage purchases. Now, you may say, well, come on, how do we trust you? You're not a lawyer. Well, okay. I tracked down online the State of Nevada Department of Taxation document regarding restaurant and bar sales and restaurant and bar comps. I'm not going to read you this whole boring document, but I will read you the section about the comps. Exempt sales, no tax charged. And this is a document from tax.nv.gov. So it's from an official site. Here's where they do not charge tax for sales. Sales to the U.S. government, this is just in general, not just casinos, sales to the state of Nevada, sales to approved exempt entities such as churches, schools, and charities, sales to certain members of the Nevada National Guard and their families, complimentary meals, and that's it. So complimentary meals, let's get to that, obviously. It says, as of June 13, 2013, food and, alcohol, food and non-alcoholic beverages given away to patrons and employees are no longer taxable. Now, alcoholic beverages, believe it or not, they can tax them. It's as taxable based upon the cost of the alcohol, mixes, garnishments, and paper products given away. So that actually can be taxed, and it's supposed to be taxed. But comp meals and non-alcoholic beverages, they cannot tax. They're no longer taxable as of ten and a half years ago. So that's right there on Nevada's site. So I don't know how Circa is going to fight this, because they're just wrong. They're just incorrectly charging tax. And they just didn't program the system right. I think it's the same type of mistake. I think the system just says, okay, well, here's the total, you know, $23 plus tax. How do you want to pay? You want to pay credit card? Okay, credit card. You want to pay with your points? It will take points. And it just takes the same amount all the time. It doesn't have the capability to remove the tax depending upon the way it's paid. And that's a mistake. So I don't know if they'll find some way to worm out of it or maybe not get it certified class action status, in which case <laughs> pretty much anyone's screwed because they'll have to sue for 
piddling amounts of money, like a dollar ninety-three. But other than that, I can't see how they win this. They just didn't program the system right. And I support lawsuits that will compel these casinos to follow the law with the taxes. There's no excuse to not program the system right. This is part of their responsibility. And I kept bringing it to Caesar's attention over and over and over again about the room tax. And they just weren't fixing it. And they weren't taking my word for it that they were refunding me to where I finally gave up. This is one of the few customer service type things where I gave up despite being in the right because I got just so tired of arguing it. But the truth is they are still incorrectly collecting room tax at Caesars when you pay with RCs on checkout. And they're also incorrectly collecting food and beverage tax when you use RCs at checkout at Caesars and maybe at other places. I don't want to just pick on Caesars. They might be doing this everywhere else as well. And then Circa is the worst of the bunch charging tax, even the direct purchases of food and beverage. Now, the only place where this is okay, the only situation where it's okay, is when it involves a third-party restaurant that is not owned by the casino, where basically the casino is reimbursing it. And that makes sense. So if ABC Restaurant is leasing space in Caesars, and then I use a Caesars comp to pay it, I'm still buying the stuff from ABC Restaurant, and Caesars is just paying my bill. So a sale is still made. So much like if I go to the store, and I'm buying something, and then my mom hands me the money and says, here, I'll cover this for you, Todd. And she hands me the money, and, and, and I say, no, 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 you can't, tax this. you can't tax this because this is my mom's money. I'm not making the purchase, it's my mom. She's buying it for me. Well, they laugh in my face. It doesn't matter who buys it, it's the fact that a sale is being made. So, same thing, if you buy a meal at a restaurant that's on a casino property that they don't owe, and they are reimbursing that restaurant, then a sale is being made to you, and you're just being, you're just getting your meal covered by somebody else. So then, that is taxable. So that makes sense. But anything owned by the casino, they cannot tax. So this is not a frivolous lawsuit, and I don't know if it's going to win or not, I don't know if it'll be certified class action, but I support it. They need to follow the law. There's no excuse. These are big companies. They have to follow the law. I have no sympathy for large companies that violate the law that cost people money. Part of having a large corporation is to have experts in compliance regarding laws, regarding taxes, and following them. And if you don't, you got to pay for it. That's why you hire the people to make sure you don't make these mistakes. So it's not like a little mom and pop place that made a mistake and they're taxing the wrong thing and you don't want to see them go under. This is a big corporation. They shouldn't make mistakes like this. Throw on a caller. Caller from 301. You're on the air. Caller, let's get on with it. We don't have all night here. Caller. Oh, Oh, I hung up on them as they finally spoke. I bet they're trying to call the call to listen line. That's what I think happened. That's my guess. Oh. That happens sometimes. Like, oh, well, well, I meant to call I the call to listen. Call them on the earthquake thing. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, I mean, is it like pre-trial? What is they're trying to get it certified class actions. That's where it's sitting oh. at the moment. So it's, it's it takes a while to go through the legal system. But anyone who says this is frivolous. I don't know what their point is, because it's a big corporation violating the law regarding taxes. So why shouldn't they have to pay for that? Yeah. Brandon, have you heard of 
Dirk Arthur, a former performer in Vegas, a magician. No, I saw, I, you know, when I was going to call in, I briefly scanned through the agenda, and I, I'm embarrassed because I live here, I read the news, I, I've not heard of him, and I don't know the story. Okay, well, this story is almost fit for being a Tiger King 3, because it involves tigers, it involves a magician, it involves a performer, you know, it's, it's based in Vegas, it, it also involves death, just like the original Tiger King. Hmm. Dirk Arthur was a magician who performed in Vegas. He died on October 13th, 2023, supposedly of a heart attack. I stress supposedly. There are some weird circumstances surrounding his death that have some people wondering if murder was possible or if at the very least he committed suicide. Now, he used tigers as part of his act, but unfortunately he fell upon hard times when exotic animal acts started to fall out of favor. So his career started to decline. He was never a huge like Siegfried and Roy, so he couldn't rest on that. You know, he was just kind of a small-time performer who did perform in Vegas and did have shows on the Vegas Strip, but uh, he just was unable to sell tickets as well when people stopped wanting to see exotic animal shows. People started thinking this is cruel to the animals and all that. So they started to fall out of favor and he started to become very depressed that he was getting older and his career was declining and he was about to give up on Vegas, even though he loved Vegas and he just, his dream was just to have a big show in Vegas and do it until he couldn't do it anymore and retire there. He started getting very depressed that this dream of his was falling apart. It seemed to be going well for a while and then it just fell apart and he was just going to give up and leave Vegas. He was not young, but he wasn't that old. He was only 63. Now, 63 is not an unreasonable age to have a heart attack. Plenty of people have heart attacks at that age that kill them, especially males. He was found dead in his home by his housemate, Jay Owenhouse. Now, Jay Owenhouse is another Vegas magician. Who owned the house? That's that's a good pun there. I give you credit for that. Jay Owenhouse. So, Jay Owenhouse is another Vegas magician, and he was also struggling. You probably haven't heard of him. I had heard of Dirk Arthur before. I have never heard of Jay Owenhouse. But Jay Owenhouse did not have a show. He wanted to do one with Tigers, but he could not get permission to do a show with Tigers from Clark County. Clark County just would not grant him one. Uh, Dirk Arthur had the permission, but uh, he tried to apply for permission himself, and Clark County, for whatever reason, said no. So... His plans at the time were to open up a non-animal show in a tent across from Mandalay Bay. I don't know if it's going to be on Mandalay Bay property, but it's going to be some tent across from Mandalay Bay. He was going to open up a show that didn't have to do with animals. Now, he was Dirk Arthur's housemate. What kind of housemate do you think he was? A boyfriend. Yes, uh, that's not verified, but that's the assumption that they, they were gay lovers. This has never been officially stated, but that is what the word is around Vegas, that they weren't just uh, housemates. Dirk Arthur then sold his home also in October 2023. Remember, that's the month he died. So just 11 days before he died, he sold his home, and he actually filed the deed for the sale one day before his death. Who was the buyer? The buyer was a family trust linked 
to Jay Owenhouse, his probably the gay lover, former father-in-law. This wife of Owenhouse's died in 2009, and the sale had been in the works for about two years before, before finally closing on October 2nd, 2023. Not only that, the sale was about $250,000 below market value, maybe even more than that, but at least $250,000 below market value. So it was a sweetheart sale to someone that Jay Owenhouse knew, the father of his dead wife. So that guy was the buyer of Dirk Arthur's house that Dirk Arthur had been, I don't know why it took two years, but he'd been trying to sell this home to this trust for two years, finally got it done on October 2nd filed the papers on October 12th, and then died on October 13th of a heart attack. There was no will. Dirk's siblings were noticed, were notified by uh, Clark County as the next of kin, and they will be the ones to inherit whatever assets he has left. That's the way it works. By the way, the office that will be handling that would be the public administrator's office, the one that was formerly headed by murderer Robert Tellez. Mm. That that office, that corrupt office, is the one that handles that. So a conspiracy theorist might say, and people have said this, by the way, a conspiracy theorist might say that Owen House wanted access to Dirk's compound and somehow got Dirk, who was depressed and maybe not in the best state of mind, to finalize the sale, maybe even under duress, and then murdered him with something that brought on a heart attack, once the compound was officially under his control. Remember that uh, the sale closed on October 2nd, and on October 12th, the deed was filed, and the next day, suddenly a heart attack happened. So almost like maybe he didn't want Dirk to change his mind. That's what a conspiracy theorist might say, and I've heard some people say that. Now, a more gentler explanation of the whole thing would suggest that Dirk was just deeply depressed and sold everything to his boyfriend, Jay Owenhouse, at a huge discount, and did it through the father-in-law because there can be tax implications for selling something at a gigantic discount. It could be seen as a gift and then the IRS can start demanding money. So maybe this thing through the father-in-law of uh, Owen House's wife that had died 14 years ago, they figured the IRS wasn't going to notice that and wasn't going to complain about this sale that was at a price that was way too low. And then Maybe Arthur, after completing that, decided he was done and then killed himself using pills or something else that would bring on cardiac arrest. There's also the chance that this is just a coincidence. Dirk Arthur was 63, and perhaps he was so depressed about the final step of selling off his Vegas dream, and he had existing heart problems he didn't know about that had brought on a fatal heart attack. This, this has happened before where people who are deeply depressed will have a heart attack. It can't bring on a heart attack if your heart is perfectly healthy, but if you've already got issues and uh, you, you really can die from stress where the stress will affect your heart and, and if your heart already has issues, that uh, you can die from that. So that's a real thing. So it's possible that the finality of having sold his property pushed him over and, and, and killed him the next day. I think that suicide is the most likely explanation here. Hmm. Because otherwise, why would he do a sham sale to Owen House, who was probably his boyfriend, instead of just leaving it to Owen House in his will? Uh, I, I think that he probably did the sale first, and then when it was all done, decided he was done and killed himself. 
So I think Owen House probably wasn't in on the suicide thing. I think Owen House probably just came home and was like, oh, my God, he just, you know, he, he killed himself here and then just didn't, didn't want to say anything about that. Just let the public think this was just a heart attack. Dirk Arthur was never married, never had any children. So that would also give some fuel to the gay theory. I mean, there's a lot of guys who've never been married and uh, don't have children that are not gay. But uh, he was never known to have any girlfriends. Like, at least Owen House was married before. But, you know, he could have been bisexual, who knows, or could have been just in the closet at the time and married to a woman. But I, I, think, that's, I think that's what happened. I, I don't think that this was a murder. And the police seem very uninterested in investigating this. They seem pretty certain that there was no foul play here. So that really leads me to believe that they, even if they think it's a suicide, they're not going to do an investigation because there's no criminal to pursue there. The guy killed himself. So whether it's a natural heart attack or the guy killed himself, that's not all that important to the police. So that's, uh, I, I think that, uh, that's what I, mean, I think. This happened like, this happened over two months ago, though. Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Did you say that? Yeah. I kept talking about October. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, why is it news now? Why wasn't it news to, I mean, why, why is this coming out so late? I just didn't cover it before. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah it's not like the story came out two months ago. Though. Yeah. I mean, what I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, this is okay. Okay. I, yeah, that's why I didn't, I mean, I must've just missed it. I thought like it, this was breaking news. Like it was today, yesterday. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, uh, I, I, Surprising. I, I, I never heard that name in my life. I, I had seen, I forgot where he was performing, but I had seen a number of ads about the magic of Dirk Arthur. And I remember seeing that name around Vegas and J. Owen House I'd never heard of before, but uh, Dirk Arthur I had seen the, the advertisements for. I never saw the show. And uh, yeah, so I think I really think that this was someone who was just getting ready to leave Vegas. I don't know if he's going to be leaving J. Owen House too. But former of all places at O'Shea's. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably is where I saw the advertisements, like somewhere around there, walking around. Yeah, he wasn't that big. No, he wasn't big, but but I'd heard of him. Yeah. But uh, but I, I think he was just kind of selling everything off, and uh, you know sometimes that's what people do right when they're going to kill themselves is they give everything away, so where they they really have nothing left, and then kill themselves at that point. But since this is in the process for two years, I think this is really just his exiting from Vegas, and so maybe his plan was just he's going to. Sell, sell this at a big discount to Owen House and uh, leave and go back to where he came from. And then just after it was done, he's like, oh my God, what do I have to live for? Like I've completely ended my Vegas dream. I've sold my property. I have nothing now. And what am I going back to if I leave the state? So I'm guessing he like took a bunch of pills at that point and brought on a heart attack. And that was that. And then Owen House came back home and saw this and you know, called the nine one one and then he was dead. That'd I be my guess. I wouldn't want to be alone in that. I tell you one thing though, I wouldn't want to be alone in the house with that Owen house. <laughs> tell you something about him just seems off. Yeah. Trader Risky, would you want to be alone in the house with that Owen house? No, he'd be haunting me. <laughs> well, he's not dead. It would be uh, Dirk Arthur that oh, would be uh, haunting yeah, you. No, Owen house is alive and well. Owen, Owen house is is yeah. Isn't, well, isn't wait, wait, who owns the house? Wait, technically, does isn't Owen House alone in the house now? He is alone in the house, and you see, I think he's alone all the time because he can't get a show. Mm-hmm. And just because speaking of which, 
guess who I saw had a bunch of chips in the win what have you main event? Who? Mark Newhouse. Hmm. Another house. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, another house. Well, that's good. You know, Mark Newhouse, I I saw, you know, he was quitting Limit Hold'em and transitioning to No Limit. And, you know, uh, I, I I played with him a few times in 2023 in L.A., and uh, he was running pretty bad. I felt bad for him. You know, I've been there. You know, he yeah. was... Uh, Newhouse was on that one show with us when that one guy from Antigua kept playing the clip of that low house. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he actually changed it to say, Newhouse! <laughs> yeah, he did. That was actually pretty funny. <laughs> It is funny. But anyhow, yeah, I uh, hope he wins it. He's fucking not finishing ninth again. Yeah, you know that's for sure. Yeah. Well, interesting. I'll have to keep an eye out on this uh, This uh, Dirk Arthur. That was the name? Well, he's the one who's dead. There's nothing to keep an eye on now. Well, like if they charge someone with a murder, if, you know, they'll... Well, your boy here, I just read an article while you were talking. Your boy, Vital Vegas, Scott Robin. Is that his yes, name? Yes, yes. He he did some long story about this, uh, and he's of the same opinion of me that this own house uh, is a little, little shady. Hmm. He basically blames the own house for everything that went on at that house. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is the story of Dirk Arthur and Owen House's now house. Yeah. Interesting. Now, does it say where this house is located? What part of Vegas? No, it doesn't say that. It's some kind of compound, though, that can house the tigers. It was some kind of special thing that he has, like a place. Scott Robin is reporting that Owen House has a new plan. I'm not making this up. Let me me read this, uh, the quote to you. Uh, He has a new plan with these tigers. Owen House's current plan is to open a show without animals in a tent outside across the street from Mandalay No, I already Bay. talked about that. I, I mentioned the Mandalay well, Bay okay. tent. Yeah. Well, I was reading, but what kind of, what, what could it be? What kind of show is it without the animals? Yeah, I don't know. Tent? I don't think it's happened, though. What it's just his plan. What, what is he going to do? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what could you, would you go to that show? No, no, that, that wouldn't be very... Is Owen House in a tent? It wouldn't be a very appealing show. Not even a house. The tent. Maybe he could... I mean, I did see that, that, uh... What's that Caesar show outside, kind of in a tent? Oh, Absinthe. Uh, I saw Absinthe in a tent, and I, I it was okay. Maybe he's going to do something like that. You I'm know, it's it. funny you bring this up, because this always bothered me, the tent that Absinthe is in, because it's been there I for a long know. time. It deserves a real space, and people... I liked it. I thought it was a great... Have you ever seen it? No, I'm not saying it's a bad show. I'm actually saying the opposite. I'm I saying the show... take that Benjamin of yours, though, there. It's not a No, I know it's a very dirty show. I know it's a dirty show, but... Very dirty. I'm saying that this has been there a long time. It's fairly well-reviewed. It is dirty, but it's fairly well-reviewed. And why are they keeping it in a tent with, like, fold-up chairs that people yeah, would bring to a bridge game in the 1970s? Like, that's seriously what you sit on there. It's like, why, why not put it in a proper theater? And I know the excuse is, oh, they want to give it like a big top effect and they, they want people to be close to the action, but they can do that in a real theater. Like, why not give this a real space? Like that, that's actually been what's pushed me away from seeing it is I, the only bad things people really say about it is that the seats are uncomfortable. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to pay all that money and be in uncomfortable fold-up chairs. If I'm paying like 10 bucks for a show, sure, but something that... I'm paying for, like, a normal Vegas show price. Why am I sitting in a shitty fold-up chair? Like, why not improve this? And it's been there long enough. It's proven itself. So I'm not even saying anything bad about the show. It's the opposite. 
That's what bothers me about that damn tent every time I walk by it. Hmm? Okay, let's see what else we got here. You gonna stay around yeah. for? You want to stay around for? No, for I'm, a, I'm gonna go to sleep, but I'm gonna tell you, I went and I saw Abstinence, and the ticket taker. Uh, you know, I'm walking in, and the ticket taker looks at me. I look a little nervous. You know what I mean? I'm walking in there, and he goes, "What's wrong with you?" And I go, "I'm a TP. I'm not a TP. I'm a TP. I'm not a TP. I'm a TP. I'm not a TP." The ticket ta- ticket taker looks at me. He says, "No, your problem is you're too tense." <laughs> Tense, tense. Yeah, you got the laugh track for that. So, yeah, good right. job. All right. Well, I, I didn't hear the laugh track. I know we're having some trouble with the Skype. The Skype sound. Right. Yeah. Well, it's the Russians. Um, listen, I know I kind of hijacked the show as usual. You know, we went longer. I did the fat. But listen, when the hell are you ever going to do a Fountain Blue segment other than on opening day? Like you had to do it. We had to bump. If we had to bump something, let it. Let me just tell you. I don't know what's left on the. I don't know what's left. Oh, on I got a bunch of stuff on the agenda. Gonna, There's a bunch of stuff. If you're going to bump anything, I think it's the Phil Galfon thing tonight. No, no, I've got to okay. talk about Phil Galfon. Uh, well, listen, you wrote him the thing. Okay, you tried to work on run it twice, five times. The site, he didn't even write you back. Okay, that's I, not even true. No, he did write me back. He wrote me back a nice email. You don't 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 say that about Phil. I have no criticism well, about his response. He he, he, you. he wrote a nice response to me. The absolute poker people didn't hire you. It's time for you just to start keeping receipts. You know. They didn't have nothing to want, nothing to do with you. Why are we going to give them attention on the fraud show? Okay, if Phil Galfon wants to go to Palm Springs with his cult, then you know what? I don't <laughs> think you should be all the wiser to give it any attention. Okay, I have to give everything Phil attention. I, I I can't keep in mind whether I get rejected for a job at Run It Once. I I have to oh. just report on everything, good and bad. Should have hired you, and now look, it's a fail site. It right? is. If if they had hired me, they may be different. They may be the next GG. If Absolute Poker would have hired you instead of that uh, Terrence Chan, maybe it's different, too, <laughs> right? You mean, you mean Ultimate Poker, not Absolute Poker. Absolute Poker is what cheated me. Yeah. Um, I meant the Red Rock people. Yeah. yeah no, I, you know, I didn't try to get... You know what? No, no, I did kind of try to get a job there. You're right. You tried a yeah. little bit. I remember. Yeah, I did try a little bit. Shit. Well, anyhow, my recommendation is you bump that golf on tonight. But you do as you see fit. You're the main guy here. But listen, thank you for having me on. I'm just... It, you know... I've been on now for three and a half hours, maybe longer. I'm tired. We got to find a better method than Skype here. It's telling me you're hanging me up and I'm not doing anything wrong. I, I Can't we use something else? Signal, Telegram? No. What do the other people do with it? What do the other podcast people? What does that Bart Hansen do? Doesn't he have a podcast? What's the latest on his dog? Do we know? I know there's some thread. You know, on, on the fraud site, I read it. Yeah, I posted a little update. I wasn't going to put it on the show because it's it's a lot of repeats of what we've already talked about. Right. But that's uh, why I'm just getting right to the source. But what yeah, he on? basically they're charging her in California now, so he's really hoping that they charge her in Connecticut for the animal cruelty because that's I guess where the actual cruelty took place, and where he lives in Massachusetts, it was only the fraud part. So she is being charged with the fraud part in Massachusetts, but the actual animal cruelty took place on Connecticut soil. So that's where they would have to charge that. He's pressing them to do that. And in California, I don't know if they're charging the animal cruelty, but they are charging her with uh, some kind of 
fraud related charge there so she's she is facing a lot of different charges in different places but she you should see they they showed on a realistic chance she can see the inside of a penitentiary I, I mean i hope so you should see the spreadsheet i don't know who made it maybe it was bart but someone made a spreadsheet of all the california dogs that she abused and every single one of them had like the same type of thing the dogs came back skinny they came back aggressive they came back smelling of urine like these dogs were just abused so badly and then that german shepherd died that she tried to replace with a different dog and uh, then she killed Bart's dog in the same way. Like, it's just an awful woman. It wasn't just a scam. It was that she's torturing dogs as part of the scam. I was just such an awful person. And uh, and she deserves the inside of a penitentiary. I don't know if That's she'll get Josephine it. Josephine Ragland? Right? Yes, Josephine Ragland. Ragland. Yep. Very bad woman. Awful. Awful. Well, listen, thank you for coming, uh, uh, letting me come on the show. And I'll say this to the listeners. Uh, the fraud number is... 775 fraud 55 and please just take a moment you know we don't ask for these opinion polls very often maybe once every five years but take a moment as you're listening to this show just you know it's a text line and just text and be honest and let us know if you have any fears if it's crossed your mind if you've ever thought to yourself you ever said to your wife a sibling a third cousin whoever it may be that you have any kind of apprehension about coming to that fountain blue because of the potential for a catastrophic failure of the structure due to an earthquake. Just let me know if it's ever be honest about this now. This is a you know somewhat scientific. Now, Jeff, I trust you're going to be honest. Of course, I'll be honest. honest. I'm not going to scam you with the responses. Have we gotten any more responses? No, but uh, we we only asked for it at the time. So yeah, it's good. And people will listen in the archives. As we'll get most of the people, and they will. Uh, now I'm going to give you one chance here. Now we're not betting nothing, but it is a pride thing. Do you want to retract your statement, or do you still stand behind it? I, I would want to bet on this. I, I think that you know, probably of probably of the radio listeners, probably more that will respond have not heard about this whole situation, or at least well, weren't. Society, I don't mean. I mean society. It's well, I know, but that's. I, I think more haven't heard of or aren't concerned about the situation. But it doesn't have to be more. Like even if just some percentage is worried about it, that's that still could be a problem. If it's a tiny percentage, it's not a problem. If it's even a, like 10%, so that could be think, a problem. Do you still think it will be more than a tiny percentage? I, I still think it could, yes. I, I'm not sure what the general public knows about it, but I don't think the majority know about it, but it doesn't have to be the majority. Hmm. You know, let me ask you one, something else and kind of like a, a feel-good story, like on my way out here. Uh, first off, I want to give a shout-out to my boy, uh, to our boy, John, by the way. He... Uh, he loves our show. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. We don't give any more details, but he listens every week. Uh, text with him tonight. Tell him we're going to be on the fraud show. So, on another note, are you still kind of high? Off, well, you don't get high, but, you know, uh, a virtual high off the glee of your victory a few weeks ago, or is it fade in? No, it's actually worn off. It? I just thought about this yesterday. I'm like... You know what? I don't even think about now that I hit a 64K uh, hand in video poker. <laughs> in fact, it's not even like a thaw every day. You think about no, it. I just yeah. thought that's like, you know, you know what? I thought this would last longer, like the happiness about this. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know I asked you right after the fact. Now it's been, well, what? how long has it been? It's been about uh, three and a half weeks since it happened. Now, did, I know you said that your mind doesn't work that way. Like you weren't going to do nothing, spoil yourself or do anything for anyone. No, you're just going to live normal. You know, I know it's not life changing money for you, but. Did that change? Did you do anything that you wouldn't have done otherwise? Like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get this, you know, whatever that I wouldn't normally get. Or I don't know. Do you do anything different? No, I I haven't done anything different. And to be honest, like, what I've been just 
thinking about a lot lately is not related to money. It's about just, I, I just want to be hurting anymore. I've been hurting in different ways for the past three months, physically, not, not emotionally hurting. So oh, I, I just, I you know, like a hug or something. No, no, that's uh, so I, it's I just you a hug if you were here that you can, I don't I think it'll once he gave you water. That's true. You did. Thank you for that. The but uh, winner. Did he enjoy the water? He did. Yeah. Benjamin's drinking the water. Yeah. He likes the water. Well, I didn't want to tell the host, but yeah, I brought, Benjamin has a fancy for those high expensive uh, Fiji waters. So I was at one hotel with the Fiji waters. Druff was at another hotel, and we met kind of halfway to exchange. Yeah, he, he gave me this big. The, outside in that like 30 degree, 35 degree weather with a garbage bag. <laughs> <laughs> and I unload like these, like four fucking big liter bottles of Fiji water. And then Druff puts it over his shoulder like a poor man Santa Claus and just starts walking back to yep. his property. I go back to where I'm from. And, I guess young Benjamin gets his Fiji. Yep. Are they all drank by now, I imagine? Or does he hoard them, save them for occasions? It's kind of in between that. So, yeah, he kind of drinks them on and off. So he's not just drinking them all at once. But some have been consumed already. And I, I, I try not even to drink them. I just let him have it. But, I mean, is he not drinking them all because he's trying to save it? Yeah, I think so. That's cute. That's kind of cute. That's kind of cute. That's yeah, cute. Okay. Well, listen, again, thank you for having me on. And what are we doing now? Like a, like a two-week uh, thing? Yeah. Two-week uh, for, and I don't. Maybe this is a secret, but I guess it wouldn't be. Uh, you're, are you going to play in any of this win? No, I said I'm not playing stuff? it. I, I kind of thought I would, but then I didn't. So yeah, okay. And, and that, uh, the, the, I'll tell you what is coming though. I haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, this in the upcoming week, I'm going to have a colonoscopy. That's going to happen this week. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, hopefully that's good news. I mean, you know, it's, well, now that you had it once, does it make it easier, like the anxiety? I, I thought it would, but now that I'm getting close to it, I feel the same way. I just don't like doing it, but I got to do it. I have to do mine next year, I think. I've never done it. I've never done one. The thing is, if you do one next year, and if it comes up clear, I assume you have no family history of it, right? Well, see, that's the good thing, and that's the other, you know, I get kind of missed signals. Some people say you don't need to have it. I've never, There's no history in my family, knock on wood, ever. Of you know of of yeah okay then then doing it around fifty is fine and if it comes clear then you may not have to do it another ten years so you you may be in good shape where you don't have to do many I'm gonna have to do one every three years or fewer for the rest of my life wait so the last one was three years ago already almost three yeah oh wow time just goes by Jesus but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to every three obviously last year but I would have thought it was maybe two years ago. Yeah, it's every, wow. every three or even two and a half. So what's okay? Two questions. We won't make this all about that. But a, how long does it last from start to finish? Like the prep when you get there to when you're out the door, like on your way home. They wanted me to come an hour early, which seems like too much, but whatever. And then the, the problem is they like there's all these people like slow with paperwork. I can get through the paperwork so fast. I kind of don't want to come an hour early, but like I don't want them to say, "Oh, you're not here early enough. You're canceling it because it's hard to get appointments." But anyway, so how long from that? Like. From from there, it should take about an hour plus, like whatever time it takes to like come down from the propofol they give you. Uh, now, for some people, it's as little as ten minutes that you're under, but that's not going to be the well, case I with me. I didn't even know that they put you under. You're not awake for none of it. I'm not awake. Yeah. Oh, that's good then. No, it's not good. I don't like it. I, I like I choose to that, but I don't like either way. Either way sucks. Oh, it, I'd rather not be awake. I'd, I'd rather not too, but it, but it, but I don't like the thought of being put out either. I hate that thought. So, so obviously someone has to drive you then. Yes. I didn't know that. And what's a recovery? I guess it's like normal recovery, right? Like, you know, like you're groggy, groggy for that day, maybe a little bit the next day, and then you're back to yourself, back to normal. 
Um, mine was kind of a little unusual. I was much more tired afterwards than most people are, and I had pain for almost a week afterwards, which is very uncommon unless there's a bad complication. And mine did not have a bad complication, but it, it, there, were, there was pain lasting almost a week, though I think that was because they removed a really big pollock at the very end of my colon. That's probably why that pain was there. You know, let's real fast bring Trederuski in on this. Trederuski, I, you know, I, I talk to you almost every day. I know a lot about you, but have, have you had your colon? You know, you're over 50. Have you had this? procedure done buddy um yeah no, I, so was, I mean just drinking that nasty shit was uh the worst part of it when do you have to go back and do one are you like 10 years like he said since you don't have a an issue yeah or? probably uh Interesting. yeah i should probably get it done soon i think they wanted every five and i'm probably at about four uh, by, so by the way i want to tell you something you don't need the nasty stuff you, you can do what's called the gatorade prep i recommend that don't do the nasty stuff that's useless now that's something that people do because that was the way it started, and some doctors won't get away from that. But it is perfectly fine and accepted in the medical community to do what's known as the Gatorade prep, which does not involve any nasty drink. So you may want to look into that. That's the way I'm going to do it. That's the way I did it last time. And uh, they told me they were able to see everything in my colon perfectly. The prep was good, they told me. So I'm going to do the same thing. But uh, unfortunately, I, I do have polyps, and I'm probably going to have them the rest of my life i would be surprised if it comes up totally clean this time because my my dad doesn't ever get a totally clean one and that's who i inherited it from and his mom actually died of colon cancer so it passed oh, down to me that has to go now uh, he's actually going more than i'm going to be going but he they're finding a lot of polyps in him in his older age that may be my future too i mean like when you say that you mean like more than once a year he's been going like more than not once a year but more than once every two years oh wow yeah Wait, so they grow that fast meaning like if he goes you think you'd be good for a couple of years but they, they usually don't but for some reason on him they've been doing that recently oh wow and a lot of them that's, so that may be I my mean, future I guess there's worse things in the world but you know it's got to be no pun intended a pain in the ass yeah yeah that may be my future because uh, yeah and, and and i had these precancerous ones in there well it wasn't a good situation last time other than the fact that i didn't have cancer so i'm expecting that uh it won't be quite as bad this time because they got all of them out from three years ago but i'm pretty sure they're going to find something so that's uh obviously ben will have this to look forward to when he gets in an advanced stage not necessarily because so far his mom has been clear even though it's in her family so far she's been clear oh so does it skip like it doesn't you got it from your dad but that doesn't mean ben will get it from you or your dad no, because my mom doesn't have it at all. She's never had one polyp in her life. Oh, wow. So I just got unlucky. I, I, I hit the wrong side of the 50-50. I well, lost the race on that. You hit nine royals at one time, then you didn't hit nothing for a decade, then you hit Delta 10 play. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we'll talk off air more about this. I'm sure I'll talk, hopefully talk to you. I'm sure I will before this happens. But thank you for having me on. Trader Ruski, always good to hear your beautiful voice, kiddo. Well, what time is the men's group, Trader Ruski? Um, men's group is canceled for the early wow. season, so what's working. Oh, phone's breaking up. Wait, why is it canceled? No, just the early session. It's just usually a couple people. So we're passing oh. on today, but I've got a six. Really? Meeting. You guys are really devoted in that men's group, huh? What kind of streak you got going? Like, how many men's groups do you think you guys have done in the last whatever years? Like, a thousand, two thousand? What is it, like Too twice a day? Too many to count. Is it twice a day or once a day? Well, there's, you know, there's usually four or five different things you can participate in. Wow. wow. 
A lot of stuff. It's almost kind of like a loosely knit cult in a way. Like another Phil Goffon thing, like except for virtual, not yeah. Palm Springs. But he doesn't have to pay $10,000 for it. Yeah. Well, someone's making money we somewhere. We have Kool-Aid, not Gatorade. But, yeah. you know. Jesus. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for having me on, boys. We'll talk soon. And uh, try not to, you know. I stopped looking at, like, the circuit thing because it's just so disheartening. I, you know, I don't mean to, like, you know, you're talking about it. And then we, I try to change. You know, it's just. It's, what do you it's very disheartening. You know, it's, it really is. It is. Listen, I tried. I tried. Oh, stop. stop. <laughs> Trader Ruski wanted Pittsburgh. He's, he's, he's really uh, unhappy. You know, and I keep telling him that, but then, like, if you go back and say this, this, then, you know, there are other ones where we would, you know, where we changed our mind. You know, it, it's, it is what it is. Yep. But I, I'm confident that, you know, next year, more entries, we know what we're doing. And, you know, the thing, the last thing I'll say is the thing that surprised me the most about it is I thought they would all be, like, sharps. Like, we'd be playing against, like, 8,000. Yeah, I know there'd be some wrecks. But I thought we'd play against like eight thousand Billy Walters, and it's not. Like, no, there's it's a lot really of fish like, in it. It's a. I probably shouldn't say this on here, cause, but it's really exactly. a juicy Cut field. This out of the show. No, but whatever. You know, it's really a juicy field. Like it is. It is. Like some of the stuff that you see, yeah. it just blows your mind. Yep. Like even at the end, like people are like the week. Okay, listen, we lost. I get it. Fine. But think about the. There was like three people, three different people that put all 10 tickets on cincinnati that week yeah like what <laughs> like all 10 yeah put all 10 this week can you imagine you know, week, can you imagine you get to week 10 with 10 tickets and you put it all on them like they had 10 they could have cruised yes like you know i mean so i'm just saying like come on like you know or like you get to whatever the week and they had to take the jets because they used every other thanksgiving game like they you know People in week and peak people in week twelve st- still weren't even putting in their entries. Yep. <laughs> Imagine that you pick great for eleven weeks and then you just you know, <laughs> it's, it's. I still don't get that. Yeah, I that's don't understand it either. Bizarre thing of the whole thing. I remember after week two, like you made the bet that it would there'd be none of those, and they were every yeah. every week for like another like three months. Yes, yeah, crazy. You know what we're talking about, people. For those that are listening, obviously, is in this contest you have a deadline. It was actually 4 p.m., I think, on a Saturday. And if you don't submit your pick by then, one minute after four, you're done. doesn't matter if it's week one or week ten. Like, you're done. The system cuts you off. You can't even enter. And every week, there were multiple people that just didn't even put their picks. And, like, the first week, there was, like, 50. Like, 50. It was ridiculous. But even, like, in week, like, seven, eight, there was five, four, six. Like, it, it was absurd. Like, that they would do it every week and then just one week forget about it. And, you know, it's a $1,000 a man entry. So, all right, Jeff needs to get the show done. I do. Gentlemen, have a great, great day, and uh, happy Hanukkah. I think, what do we got, two nights left? Yes, two nights left. you guys left. even do that? Yeah. You guys, I mean, we have a, okay. I've got a, I've got a kid. i got to do it. Yeah. Trader Ruski, you have a menorah at home? No menorah. Oh, no. You're a bad Jew. So I, I've got the kid here, so i I got to do that. I know. You know, there's an extra well, no, candle for me, Jeff. <laughs> I got okay. All right. Good night, guys. Have a, have a great show. Okay. Have a great day. All right. All right Good night. Bye. Okay. So Trederuski can hang on here if he likes until uh, whatever he has going on this morning. Fifteen more minutes. I, I don't know how much longer I can go. But I've got some stuff here, but let me move on to the Phil Galfon thing. Even though Brandon was objecting to it, I'm still going to do it. In fact, this was one of the topics that I really did want to talk about. Shortly after the last show, and I thought, you know, I'm going to have a show soon so I can talk about this, and then it didn't happen. So I definitely can't skip it. So I noticed this on November 30th, so we're now almost two weeks past that. But let me go briefly talk about 
someone else who runs a mastermind event that is much less respected. And when I say much, I mean tremendously less respected than Phil Galfon. This person's not in poker, but I'm talking about infamous gambling coaching scammer Christopher Mitchell. Every January, he holds a mastermind event of some form, sometimes in Las Vegas, sometimes not. And suckers pay him as much as 5K per head to get useless and, in fact, harmful gambling and mindset advice from him. And, of course, the big problem is Christopher Mitchell is a longtime losing addicted gambler. He's never completed high school. He isn't very intelligent. He has nothing to teach you. He knows nothing about how to really beat the casinos or how to win in gambling. He has no idea how to do positive expectation gambling, nor does he have a desire to learn. His strategies, if you want to call them that, revolve around various forms of mathematically disproven nonsense, such as martingale, trend-following, table-hopping, etc. So that's the type of snake oil bullshit that Christopher Mitchell sells and speaks about at his mastermind. And it's not surprising to see someone like Christopher holding these masterminds and trying to flee suckers into giving him as much as 5K to listen to him just spew off a lot of bullshit. But I'll say one person I didn't expect to jump into the mastermind realm, and keep in mind, Christopher Mitchell didn't invent the mastermind. This is something that a lot of people have been doing, where there's some event, and then you show up, pay a lot of money, and then they teach you their ways, basically. One person I didn't expect to jump into the mastermind mindset realm would be Phil Galfon. Now, to be fair, Phil Galfon is no Christopher Mitchell. Phil is an honest guy. Christopher Mitchell's a career scammer. Phil is intelligent. Christopher is dumb. Phil is respected. Christopher is a laughingstock. Phil has a long history of success in poker. Christopher Mitchell is an addicted losing gambler. Phil Galfon has run a successful poker training company. And Christopher Mitchell gives people losing advice under false pretenses. So, very, very different types of people. But still, I find these mastermind events in general to be a lot of useless psychobabble. When I say in general, I'm not talking about Galfon. I'm not even talking about Christopher Mitchell, though his definitely is useless. I'm talking about just in general. These masterminds, I think, are mostly just for the ones running it to line their pockets and tell you things that sound profound but really aren't very useful to your life. So here is Phil Galfon's sales pitch that he posted on Twitter on November 29th. A retreat and mastermind event, January 18th to 22nd. My favorite environments for learning and growth have been in the form of retreats and masterminds. I've been to several, but it all started with Elliot Rowe's control room mastermind many years ago. Now, I'll explain Elliot Rowe after I read this whole thing. In 2024, Elliot will be discontinuing the control room mastermind. I spoke with him at length about the decision and his learnings from all the events he ran. In short, he loved running them, but it simply made too little sense from a business perspective, given the time, resources, and expenses required. A few months ago, I took on my first ever group coaching clients. I describe my experience there similarly. It hasn't made business sense on paper, but I love the experience of connecting with wonderful, like-minded people eager to improve their games and themselves. I've loved being able to contribute to that mission of theirs on some level. 
While I feel I've been able to deliver some value in the lecture portions of our calls, where I share my insight into specific prepared topics, what I really love is the depth of the conversations, asking questions, answering questions, digging in. And I realize that's the part of the live retreat and mastermind experiences I've enjoyed so much. Given all of that, after conversations with Elliot and some other trusted friends, I've decided to try my hand at running an event of my own. From January 18th to 22nd, we'll be gathering, collaborating, and growing together in a sprawling 26,000-square-foot estate in Palm Springs. This grand property, spread across two acres, includes 15 bedrooms, 19 bathrooms, a billiard room, gym, sauna, massage room, tennis court, pools, and spas. The program will, feel, the program will feature comprehensive individual mastermind sessions, as well as specialized sessions dedicated to personal growth and career progression. During your mastermind session, we will aim to conquer whatever it is that's standing in between you and even more success. While my group coaching is focused on poker, this event will not. And he bolded that portion. Now, that's important. If you're going there to learn how to play better PLO because Phil's a great PLO player, don't because he's not going to be focusing on poker. The group will undoubtedly include poker pros and enthusiasts, given my personal following, but my aim is to assemble a diverse group of high performers who can bring their unique perspectives to the table, just like Elliot succeeded in doing. This could be a one-off event. My goal with this is similar to my group coaching goal. Figure out if I enjoy it and can do it well, and then see if I can turn it into something repeatable that's a win-win for me and those who sign up. While this is my first event, I've learned from several excellent mentors, and some will be there. For the right people, I'm confident this will be a great experience, and I'm giving it my all to make sure that'll be the case. So who are the right people? As mentioned above, this is not a poker event. You do not need to be a poker player, and in fact, I'd go so far to say that if you're only focused on playing poker, you might as well not get much out of this group's insights. This event is not for everyone, because the group dynamic is of paramount importance not everyone will be accepted. So they may reject you if you apply and they don't want you there. The first round of filtering is right here. This is for you if you are a high performer who's proven successful in your field, a lifelong learner with a curiosity for personal growth and an eagerness to learn new skills, gain insights, and explore your potential, willing to invest time, energy, and resources into your personal career development journey, open to connecting with like-minded individuals who will share your passion for personal growth and self-discovery. This is not for you if you are looking for instant shortcuts or solutions, resistant to feedback or unwilling to share your weaknesses, uncomfortable with vulnerability in a small group setting, solely interested in networking. While networking can be a valuable aspect of this experience, it won't work well if that's the only reason you're here. Expecting to passively absorb information without participation or engagement. If this feels right for you after reading the above, the next round of filtering will be through a brief application, which I'll review with my team. Okay, let me stop here before I go on to read the rest of this. By the way, this long-ass post is on Twitter. <laughs> Elon has really opened up the ability to post long things if you pay for your account on Twitter, as Phil does. I mean, this is a super long thing. I think this is the longest Twitter post I've ever seen. There's like one Twitter post. It's not split up or anything. Aside from the length of the post... I do want to mention about this application process and the filtering process. So this is interesting to me that he doesn't just want to collect 10K per head, which is going to be the price. I'll read to you in a second. He, just, he doesn't want to just collect 10K per head of whoever is willing to fork it over, unlike Christopher Mitchell, who will take everybody. 
he wants to look at why you're going to be attending and see if you're a fit for the mastermind. Now, why would he want that? Why would he turn people down and send them away? Well, I can't tell you for sure because I'm not in Phil Galfon's head, but my guess is that he wants this to be an event where everybody's on the same page about what they want and what their expectations are. So he doesn't have people either hassling him for poker advice or just trying to use it to meet people that they think they can network with and nothing else, or someone who's going to be negative about it and is going to keep criticizing it and bring the whole group down. He wants to make sure he gets together everybody who he thinks are going to make it a happy event, basically. People who aren't going to get in the way, people who aren't going to be a hassle, people who are not going to ask things of the event, such as poker advice, which are not going to be part of it. So he doesn't just want to bring in anybody. He wants to make sure these are people that will all fit together well in this setting and make it a flawless event, at least as far as how people react to it. So that's kind of interesting to me. If you're interested in applying, the rates are 10K VIP, your own beautiful room with a suite, or 7,500 general, share a beautiful room and bathroom with a partner or unknown event goer. So I don't know what he means by with N suite. I don't know if he means with a suite or with N suite. It actually says with E-N dash suite. But basically you can have your own room for 10K or you can share a room for 7,500. So if you want to bring somebody else, it's 15K. And if you just want to go yourself, they will place you with a roommate for 7,500 unless you want to get your own room for 10K. So it's a $2,500 premium to have your own room there is basically what he's writing. So it's 7,500 for the event and 2,500 for the room is basically the way this works out. Or I guess 7,500 for half a room and then 2,500 for the other half of the room. Whatever. Since this event is a beta launch of sorts, I suspect it will sell out from one or two tweets. We won't be creating an official landing page for now. I assure you that despite that, the event will be organized, professional, and great. I'll share the application in the tweet below. And then he did do that. And if you click on that tweet, it brings you to this application. And I can't even see it because, yeah, he's correct that the registration is closed. So I guess this did sell out. He, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> Easy money, I guess. Doug Polk, who does not like Galfond very much. Remember, Galfond was the one who was one of the leaders of the charge in May to cancel Doug Polk. Remember, Galfond, who usually does not get involved in drama, wrote a long blog about how Doug Polk is a big bully and everyone's afraid to stand up to him and everyone's afraid to ever piss him off because they're afraid that he'll be, they'll be his next target and he's got a huge platform and he can embarrass people easily. And Galfond stood up and said, look, I've got to be the one to call this out. And then this emboldened people like Matt Berkey and Charlie Carroll to just really start clobbering on Polk because they had been at odds with Polk and they just painted him as like the worst person ever, which I didn't think was fair. I'm not saying Polk was completely innocent. You know, Polk is somewhat of a troll and did use his big platform to say things about people he didn't like that made them look bad. But I'm not saying he was wrong in a lot of these cases. You know, a lot of times he was very critical and nasty about people, but some of these people deserved it. Some of them he went too far. Some of them he overdid it. I'll say that. So I'm not saying that 
Doug was picked on for no reason, but it, it was very much overdone, including what Phil Galfond wrote. They made him look like he was the devil, and he definitely isn't. But anyway, Doug Polk wrote, I would make a joke about charging $10,000 to hang out with you, but I don't want to get compared to Nazi Germany again. So that was Doug Polk saying in his own little way, you know, this looks like bullshit to me. People are paying 10 cages to hang out with you. But I can't say that because otherwise you're going to write another blog making me look like the worst person ever. So then Galfond, who doesn't ever like being confrontational, he always tries to act jovial and will never like directly attack you, even if you attack him first. He wrote, if I agree not to call you a Nazi, would you go ahead and make the joke? Polk didn't even respond to that. Galfon did respond to a number of people asking him questions in that thread, including people asking joke questions. So he made himself very accessible in this particular thread. But let me get into this Elliot Rowe character before we discuss too much about this mastermind itself. Elliot Rowe is a poker mindset coach. But he doesn't just do mindset coaching for poker. He does it for a lot of things. He's just more of a mindset coach who also happens to do poker mindset coaching. Now, this business model is not a novel one. Since the poker boom began, we've seen a lot of mindset coaches come and go. In the late 2000s and early 2010s, the one who was most prominent was named Sam Chowan, and he's since vanished from the scene. But some poker pros swore by Sam Chowan. In fact, Gavin Smith, the late Gavin Smith, was running deep in a World Series event, and he was so addicted to Sam's mindset coaching that he went into a panic when on day three of the event, entering the final table, he could not reach Sam prior to the final table beginning. So then finally, the last minute, he did manage to get a hold of Sam, got a few words of encouragement, and what do you know, he went on to win the bracelet and somewhat credited Sam for him doing so. Now, I'm not a believer in mindset coaching. I think they can be of limited initial assistance if you're approaching poker with the wrong mindset or a lack of confidence. But I think there's a huge diminishing return. So after about the first 30 minutes of mindset coaching, there's really not that much left to learn. These guys become more of a security blanket than anything else. It reminds me of the classic children's story, Dumbo. You know Dumbo the Flying Elephant? Dumbo believed that he needed a magic feather in order to fly. And this was given to him by another character in the story in order to give him the confidence to fly. And he really believed that without that magic feather, he couldn't fly. So in the story, eventually he learned that without the magic feather, he could still fly. It was really just a tool to give him the confidence to do so. So the mindset coaches are kind of similar. Yes, they might improve people's mindset initially by pointing out that their approach is incorrect, whether it's to poker or to life, but there's only so much they can tell you and so much they can teach you, and then at that point, it's just all repeating. At that point, they're just offering you words to make you feel good, and you become too dependent upon them. There's also the whole fooled by variance problem, which is involved here, where if you get mindset coaching, let's say in poker, and then you win a tournament shortly thereafter, then you're going to credit the mindset coach. You say, oh, that's what I needed all along. Ah, no wonder I wasn't winning tournaments. I got the mindset coaching and I, now I win. Oh my gosh. When in reality, maybe it was just because you got lucky that event. It just happened to be when you started the mindset coaching. But let's say you get mindset coaching and you continue to brick tournaments 
Well, then it can just be blamed on, well, you have more to learn. You have to work harder. You have to improve your mindset even more. Now you need the coach even more than ever because it shows how much you still have to learn because you haven't improved yet. And then finally, when you do hit something, you finally do bank a tournament, and you're like, oh, there you go. I improved. Oh, the mindset coaching is working. So if you're losing, you just need more work. If you're winning, then it's the mindset coaches doing that helped you improve. So it's like a free roll for the mindset coach. Now, with all that said, poker players tend to be erratic, superstitious, unstable. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, many of them very, very logical in their decision-making at the table. But anything away from the felt, sometimes these people aren't very wise, to say it lightly. (laughs) It also doesn't help that poker tournament success and failure is often separated by a few key hands and a few key spots. So the perception of crushing and the perception of failure are often just the result of the way these few hands fall. Think about tournaments where you were kicking ass and then a few coolers or bad beats knocked you out. And you'll remember the beats, but you're not going to remember your kicking ass in that tournament. You'll remember you were winning early, but your results at the end weren't that good. So you're not going to remain impressed with the way that tournament went. Whereas some other tournaments where you weren't doing well and you hit a few lucky hands to chip up in the right time and you end up winning or finishing second or third, you're probably going to remember it differently than it really was. Yeah, you'll know you were short stacked at some point, but you'll think of yourself as very successful in that tournament when in reality, luck had a lot to do with it. So really, success and failure in tournaments is often separated by a few key hands. And when you're going through a streak of when you're getting unlucky, then you start searching for answers. And sometimes you may be blaming yourself for what is just variance. So when you're on a downswing, it could be tempting to grab at anything which can right the ship or at least possibly right the ship, especially if the rest of your life is chaotic at the moment. So let's say you're not only losing in poker, but you're fighting with your girlfriend all the time. And you're also having trouble with other family members. And some of your friends are not getting along with you at the moment. And you're also noticing you're gaining weight. And you're going, oh my God, I'm just like, everything's going wrong. And then in comes the mindset coach. And he tells you everything you're doing wrong. And he has all the answers for what ails both your poker game and your outside life. Now, if you go to Elliot Rowe's website, which is just ElliotRowe.com, you will see that he's coached a lot of big names, such as Fedor Hulse, Haralabob Volgaris, Scott Blumstein, and a bunch of business people who aren't even involved in poker but seem to have pretty impressive credentials. He's also managed to do what Sam Chawan and the other poker mindset coaches couldn't do. He's had success in the mindset coaching realm, but he's avoided the snake oil reputation, which constantly dogged all the other poker mindset coaches, including the successful ones like Sam Chawan. Even when Sam Chawan was at his peak, there were a lot of people who said this guy is a snake oil salesman. He's a phony. Why does anyone pay this guy? You don't see anyone saying that about Elliot. He's just universally loved. Everyone says he's great at what he does and he really helps people. Will Jaffe, who is not my favorite guy, and I'm not his favorite guy, but he is someone who clearly has depression issues, someone who clearly has a moodiness issue. You can see this in his tweets. You can see this in his 
tough convos he does. You can see this is not a guy who seems like he's happy all the time. He tweeted on November 29th, the same day this mindset thing was announced by Phil Galfon, he tweeted about Elliot Rowe saying that uh, he used Elliot as a substitute for talk therapy that he had previously been receiving and claimed that Elliot helped him immensely. He said, I was in talk therapy for a long time before I started working with Elliot. Presumably the talk therapy was just a traditional therapist, like a psychologist. Within the first few months, he helped me solve a bunch of poker-related problems that I've been working on in vain with my therapist for the better part of 10 years. There are a lot of people with far more success than me who swear by his work. Just because the entry price to something is restrictive doesn't mean the product is ineffective. So he basically was defending the high price of Galfond's mastermind thing, saying, hey, Galfond's taken over for where Roe is leaving off. And just because it's a lot of money, it might be worth it to you. And he's saying, look, I worked with Elliot and Elliot really helped me. In fact, Elliot took over for what my therapist was doing and he did a lot better of a job. So that was a very big endorsement for Elliot Rowe from Will Jaffe. This was in response to Aubrey Williams, one of the few people who spoke out against Elliot Rowe. Now, to be fair, Aubrey Williams does not have any kind of personal experience with Elliot Rowe. But this is what Aubrey Williams wrote. Rich people waste their money on the dumbest shit. Like it's called therapy, people. You don't need a BS mental coach like Elliot Rowe. You need a real professional and maybe some supportive friends and you don't have to pay for. Being a mental health coach is like being a chiropractor. Now, it didn't help that Aubrey Williams had a number of spelling and grammatical mistakes in this tweet. Aubrey Williams is a male-to-female trans person. In fact, I saw Aubrey at the WSOP main event. It was pretty hard to miss Aubrey because uh, I had only seen pictures of Aubrey. That's how I knew it was her. But Aubrey is very, very tall. Aubrey is actually a little taller than me. So (laughs) that stuck out. You don't see many women taller than me. And I, I knew what Aubrey looked like facially from Twitter. I've never spoken like in DM with Aubrey or anything, but we did interact in the past with uh, debating something regarding trans women in ladies events. So that's how I was aware of Aubrey Williams. So I recognized Aubrey when I saw her at the WSP main event. And I rarely agree with Aubrey Williams, who's very much on the left and uh, kind of like a radical trans activist on top of that. And I, we just don't agree on very much. But I will say that Aubrey was the only one willing to come out and say, you know what, a lot of this may be kind of bullshit. And Aubrey, I'm going to tell you something here. I know you don't listen to this show, but uh, you maybe have some friends who do. I think you're onto something. I think you're not that far from the truth here. I do think that if you need therapy, you should go to a professional. And not all therapists are good. There are some psychologists who are crap. There are some psychiatrists that are crap. But I think going to a professional is a much better idea than to go to some guy who calls himself a mindset coach. The mindset coach may say things that sound more profound and are more pleasant for you to hear, but I think the therapist is a better choice. And that is despite what Will Jaffe claimed. Now, it's possible for Will Jaffe, it worked better to go to Elliot Rowe. But I think for the typical person, that would not be the right decision to substitute therapy with a professional with someone like Elliot Rose. I I actually think that 
Aubrey Williams is onto something, including the thing about rich people waste their money on the dumbest shit. That's actually also true. That is true. And I'll get to that when we're discussing this. And Aubrey was the only one speaking out about this. And Aubrey got attacked by a lot of people. And when Aubrey was getting attacked, she wrote, people swear by chiropractors, and if it works, keep doing it. So Aubrey is basically saying, look, if what you're doing happens to be working for you, then fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right choice for everybody. And that's a good point. So like Will Jaffe, if he's convinced that Elliot Rowe helped him so much and doing a lot better for his poker game and his life than his therapist, okay, great. You know, like if, if this has helped Will so much, then he would be stupid to change it at this point. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be helped the same way. And I think, in general, that wouldn't be the right choice to switch from a therapist to a mindset coach. But let's go back to how Elliot even fits into this. So, remember, Elliot Rowe is not going to continue these mastermind events. He's been doing them, but 2024, he's not going to do it going forward. So, Phil Galfond is picking up where Elliot left off. So, is this just Phil deciding he's going to fill a void? Or is this with Elliot's blessing? Well, as you might guess, this is with Elliot's blessing. Phil's tweet sells his mastermind event as his own attempt to channel his inner Elliot. Galfon said that he attended Elliot's own mastermind event, and he was very impressed by it. Elliot is discontinuing his events, and Phil is now picking up the baton and running with it. Elliot is giving his blessing, and in fact, he will be there. Elliot tweeted on November 29th, same day that Galfon tweeted, Great to see Phil Galfon continuing this concept. It's my favorite type of event. I've booked a ticket. Yeah, I don't believe that. I believe he'll be there. I don't think he booked a ticket. I don't think he just saw this as like, oh, cool. Oh, wow. Phil is now doing this since I stopped doing it. Well, wow. Aw, shucks. That's pretty amazing. Wow. Pretty cool, Phil. Okay, well... Very interesting. I just noticed this on Twitter. I'm going to go book my own ticket. Here's your $10,000, Phil. I don't think he's paying a dime. I think he's going to be there and assist Phil with the transition. I think he's going to be doing this with Phil and then taper out of it. I don't know what he's getting out of this. Maybe he's getting some piece of it, but I don't think he's booking to be a guest there because he thinks it's going to help him. Now, it's also worth noting that Phil Galfon himself has been dabbling in the mindset coaching realm before this. In August 2023, he released a free poker mindset ebook. And I remember seeing that. I'm like, what? Why is Phil Galfon releasing an ebook that's free about poker mindset? It's kind of a weird thing to do. So I'm assuming, since this was fairly recently, August 2023, I'm assuming he did this with the plan of eventually launching this uh, 2024 event in January. Just didn't announce that yet. Now, I will say that I have a lot of respect for Phil Galfon's poker accomplishments. I also have respect for his successful poker coaching business run at once. I also have respect for the fact that he is a very good ambassador for the game. He has an incredibly even temperament, which most players, including myself, do not have. So I cannot remain as calm and positive, at least outwardly, as Phil Galfon does. I do get emotional about things. 
And I do get negative about things. And you can see it sometimes. And Phil Galfon is someone who never seems to get that way. At least, if he does, we don't see it. So that's good for the game. That makes him an endearing personality. And he's been very successful. So these are all things to admire about Phil Galfon. He's also never been in any kind of scandal. These are all positives about Phil Galfon. However, I don't think Phil Galfon is the right guy to be teaching mindset beyond poker mindset. Why? Well, let's think about his poker site run at once. Not the coaching business run at once, which is successful, but the poker site run at once, which we've discovered, which we've discussed many times here. This was an epic fail. This was a major fail. It never did well. Even at its peak, it was doing poorly. And now it's gone. It lost a ton of money. And it did not fail because of market forces. It's not that he launched it at a bad time when no poker site would have succeeded. And I can say that with certainty because he attempted to launch the site at roughly the same time that GG Poker was attempting to launch a site. And both were aimed at the same market. So it's not like one was in the U.S., one wasn't. Both were after the same market, launched around the same time. GG Poker is presently the biggest site in the world. And they have a big partnership with the World Series of Poker as well. They've passed poker stars. And Run It Once failed the entire way, hemorrhaged investor money, and is gone. Polar opposite results. Polar opposite execution. GG Poker, while I didn't agree with some of their decisions from a player-friendliness standpoint, especially to pros, from a business standpoint, they did just about everything right. few mistakes, but they did just about everything right. And they're huge because of it. And I told the owner that when I met him. I wasn't trying to kiss the guy's ass. I, I told him, I said, look, I saw you guys launching around the time Phil Galfon's site did, and I saw one was a huge success and one of them was a huge failure. So I, I admired that you guys came in late in the game and are doing as well as you are. And obviously that was from a lot of correct decisions. And I told him which decisions I thought were correct. And he, he was actually uh, interested to hear this from me. He, he just thought I was just going to be some idiot poker pro who was, oh yeah, I've heard of GG. Oh, cool, you're the owner, blah, blah, blah. And like, I was telling him right there what I thought they did correct and what I thought Phil didn't do correct and why I thought their site has been successful and how I know the market is tough at this time to just come in new and I explained the whole thing. He was pretty interested in hearing that from me. But it's proof that it could have been successful. And in fact, GG Poker, the owner was not someone who was known. He was just this Asian guy that nobody knew. Whereas Galfon, he had a lot of goodwill in the community who wanted to see him succeed. So he came in with the edge, and yet his site failed and GG Poker worked. So why am I bringing this up? One of the big reasons that Run It Once failed was because Phil was surprisingly resistant to community feedback, and he did a very poor job reading the market. So it's ironic that he is now running a mindset program, teaching people to receive feedback and confront weaknesses, when his own inability to do exactly that resulted in the failure of his poker site. So let's say Phil Galfound was giving PLO lessons. Would I like to take those from him? You bet I would. I'd love to take PLO lessons from Phil Galfound. I'm being completely serious. I'm not being sarcastic. He would have a lot to teach me about PLO, especially at the higher limits. So I'd love to take PLO lessons from him. I would be interested to hear from Galfond how he made his poker coaching business a success 
and the decisions he made regarding his run at once poker coaching business. I thought he did a very good job with that. If he wanted to talk to me about that, I would be a very, very avid listener to that. I'd also be interested to hear from Galfon how he manages to keep such an even temperament. Now, it's possible that's just him. That's just his personality, and it can't be taught, but I'd still like to hear from him regarding his temperament and how he manages to keep it that way, how much is natural and how much is effort. But you know what? I don't think he has anything to teach me or really anyone. And that's how to use mindset to succeed in a world outside of poker and poker coaching. Because he hasn't. As successful as he's been in those two areas, he has not been successful in any other area. He attempted to run a poker site and it was a complete failure from start to finish. And it was mainly because He would not listen to feedback. People wanted to give him free market research, free feedback, very good feedback, very useful feedback, polite feedback. I'm not talking about listening to trolls. I'm talking about people who wanted to see him succeed. Didn't want to listen. And even as the site was failing, he never stopped and said, you know what, maybe these people were right. Maybe we should shift course. Just different forms of the same stupid strategy, and the site fell apart. So to me, this exposed a big weakness on his part. And that is that as nice of a guy as he seems to be, as even as his temperament is, and as intelligent as he is, he's very set in his ways. And he's not open to learning about his weaknesses. He's not open to believing that some of his decisions are wrong. He's not open to thinking like other people. So that's a weird choice to be paying $10,000 to learn mindset from a person like that. In fact, I'd rather learn mindset from a jerk who at least is good at reading the room, at least is good at taking suggestions and advice, or at least considering suggestions and advice that might be correct. I'd rather take that course than someone who's a nice guy who also is very stubborn and set in their ways. So really, that poker site demonstrated a lot about him. It kind of surprised me a bit. I really thought when he started that site that, first of all, that he wouldn't make all the mistakes that he did, but second, that he would really take a lot of community feedback and trust it. He wouldn't just listen to every idiot, but that people who had been around for a long time, people who seemed to know what they were talking about, and especially if a lot of people were saying the same thing, that he would say, wait a minute, I've got all these people who seem knowledgeable about the poker community and the online poker landscape telling me I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, that's what I would do. If I were starting a poker site and everyone came to me and said, hey, Todd, decisions A, B, and C suck, and nobody likes it, I wouldn't say, no, too bad, I'm right. I'd say, wait a minute, why does nobody like it? Maybe I'm wrong here. Like, seriously, I would do that. Because I would want my own site to succeed. And if all these people who have experience in the online poker realm are telling me my decisions are stupid, then I would say, you know what? My decisions are probably stupid. Because you can make stupid decisions as a smart person. And that's basically what he did. So, maybe he's changed since then, but if he hasn't, I don't see 
how he's going to be expecting the attendees to confront their weaknesses. This is his own words. He wants people to confront their weaknesses, share their weaknesses, and invest time, energy, and resources into their personal and career development journey and engage in a process of self-discovery. I hate to tell you, Phil, but you got to do it too. (laughs) To me, it looks like you're someone who just kept succeeding in everything you were doing, poker-wise and poker coaching-wise. Because keep in mind, Phil's not that old, so... He started being successful in poker from a very young age. He's a lot younger than me, even though he's been around for a while. So he really didn't have an example of failure until this poker site he tried to run, and that was an epic failure. And that demonstrated to me that this wasn't someone who was used to failure, and this wasn't anyone who was used to being introspective and thinking, hmm, maybe I'm doing everything wrong. Now, I'm not saying he hasn't been introspective about his poker game and changed things that weren't working, but I'm talking about something outside of poker, that he seems to have a hard time looking and saying, hey, I'm doing this completely wrong. Maybe everyone else is correct to be criticizing. And even in his post-mortem that he posted about Run It Once when it went down, he still didn't get it. And we discussed this on the show. I had Cal Watt on here. We were discussing his post-mortem, and he just didn't get it. Like, even when the whole thing failed... He was blaming market forces and even doing like little passive aggressive swipes against people for not playing on the site, for not understanding his vision, for not trying something new. It was the customer's fault. He didn't directly say that. He'd never say that because he doesn't want to come off like a jerk. But you could tell that's what he was trying to say. It was very clear if you read it carefully. So he still didn't get it when the whole thing failed. He really thought he did everything right, but just the market wasn't ready for it yet. It's kind of like the Apple Lisa. Any of you remember the Apple Lisa? This was an early 80s computer released by Apple that had a mouse that had a lot of similarity to modern Windows. But it was a complete flop. And the truth was that people just weren't ready for that type of interface yet. Whereas it was going to become the interface of the future in not too long. So this wasn't like an Apple Lisa situation where Phil had the proper vision for a poker site. He was just ahead of its time. No, it just sucked. It just wasn't what people wanted. It had some features which could have been interesting, but the basics of the site were terrible, and he never would acknowledge that. He never acknowledged the misplaced priorities. We've talked about this before, but it was just someone who was really, really, really stuck in tunnel vision that his way was the correct way, and that if it failed, it was because the customers were stupid. So let's go back to the 10K that he's charging to have your own room, or 7,500 to share a room, and that price. Is it really charging someone 10K to hang out with him? So I don't doubt that people will leave this believing it was money well spent. Apparently they're sold out already, so there's interest for sure. And I'm not surprised by that, because he has a very good reputation. So I'm not surprised that people signed up for it, and I would be pretty surprised if after it's over we see any criticism. I think everyone's going to leave believing it was money well spent and that they experienced immense personal growth during their stay in Palm Springs at that estate. So then how can I criticize this? If it's sold out quickly, and if I think people are going to walk away satisfied, how could I possibly say that it might not be money well spent? Well, because someone believing they spent their money properly doesn't mean they really did. Let's go back to Christopher Mitchell, who, again, 
is not like Phil Galfond at all. He's very, 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 very inferior to Phil Galfond in all ways. So I want to get that out of the way. And unlike Phil Galfond, Christopher has nothing useful to teach. In fact, his advice is actually harmful. Yet, after one of Christopher Mitchell's masterminds, people walk out, I'm not saying all of them, but at least some of them walk out believing that they learned valuable lessons and valuable information. So you have satisfied customers, at least for the moment. They don't stay satisfied when his strategies to beat the casino don't work and these people go broke. But prior to that, a lot of them walk out believing that they really learn stuff. They have no idea that they learned harmful advice and are in fact 5K lighter plus future gambling losses as a result of this advice for this experience. So satisfaction from one of these events doesn't really mean that the person actually learned anything or got their money's worth. It just means they think they did. And thinking you did doesn't really mean much if you didn't actually get much out of it. Now, you may say, well, it's mindset, though. So if it improved your mindset and you think it improved your mindset, shouldn't that be good enough? Not necessarily. Because, again, it's a law of diminishing returns. I don't think mindset advice is worth 10K. Even if you're really rich. Mindset customer feedback is useless because anyone can convince themselves that they've grown from learning mindset advice. And it's a free roll for the mindset coach, as I discussed earlier. If things improve, the mindset coach gets the credit. If things don't improve, it's only because the student needs to work harder. So why is Galfine even doing this, though? I mean, he's got a fairly successful poker training site. He still wins in poker, to my knowledge. I think he probably has a lot of money saved. And not only that, his wife was a soap opera star. If you've heard of Farrah Fath, that was her name before. I don't know if she does any acting anymore, but she's probably made good money on the soap operas that she was on. So this is kind of a weird and unexpected turn by him, pivoting into mindset coaching when he doesn't really need to do that. And this really does seem to be like a new career attempt. Now he is admitting he's going to try it, and if it just doesn't go well, he's not going to continue, which I believe. But clearly between this... August ebook that he released in this retreat, he probably thinks he can parlay his strong reputation in poker into a business model like Elliot Rose. And Elliot Rose seems to be at least scaling down what he's doing and sticking to things that are easier and more profitable compared to the time spent. Whereas Galfond is willing to spend the time that Elliot doesn't want to spend anymore. So why might Galfond be doing this? Well, it's possible that he's feeling the need to pivot because poker games are drying up, especially if you don't want to play that whole stupid game with a private game nonsense. And I'm sure the recent events with all the cheating in the private games just make him feel even less excited about doing that. I don't know if he even plays private games, but uh, I can understand why he doesn't want to get involved in all that. And the coaching landscape, as well as the coaching video landscape, you know, Run It Once is doing that has increased competition these days and a smaller customer pool. There just aren't as many people who are willing to pay to learn now as there used to be. So he's probably watching the profits from Run It Once decline. He might not be playing that much poker anymore because the high stakes are hard to find unless you want to play these private games. 
And maybe he's thinking, shit, you know, I'm just not making that much money these days. So I got to do something else. And his attempt to be a poker site owner, that lost a lot of money. I don't know how much was his. So this is his next thing. Saw24, who has long been a critic of Phil Galfond, wrote, I wonder if he's got a lesson on how to create a fail site, LOL. Well, if actual humility regarding his mistakes with his poker site are not part of the course, then he's really not bringing the introspection he's promoting. So he actually kind of raises a good point here. Saw24 is trying to troll here, but he actually is bringing up a good point. Because if Phil Galfond has this retreat and does not bring introspection regarding how he failed and why he failed with that poker site. And if he's not honest about it, if he goes on with this nonsense about how the market wasn't ready for it or people didn't want to try new things, that's not being introspective and that's not confronting his weaknesses. I don't know if this is going to be part of the discussions or not, but I just know that blog he wrote after Run It Once went down, that it was missing introspection pretty much completely. So I think if you're going to lead a mastermind event where everyone gets together and each person bears their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses and then asks the group how they can improve, which I think is basically what they're doing there. I think he wants to collect a lot of successful and intelligent people together to improve one another. But if he's not going to say, hey, a place I could have improved was the way I ran my poker site. I wouldn't listen to anyone and I just kept doing the same stupid things over and over and the thing failed. And I was too stubborn, and I wasn't listening to the market that was trying to tell me things, because I thought I had all the answers, and I didn't, and the whole thing flopped while GG Poker, starting at the same time, kicked ass. I could have taken their model, and I didn't, and now they've got this giant site making huge money, and I lost my shirt on this. If that's not part of the course, then he's not delivering what he claims he's delivering. That's the truth. Because remember, he's supposed to not just be a teacher there. He's supposed to also be a student. He's supposed to be learning from you, too. That's why he is restricting who attends. He wants people there that he can learn from as well. That's what he's trying to say here, that we're all going to learn from each other. We're all going to confront our own weaknesses. All of us have weaknesses. All of us are human. Now, that's true. Everybody has weaknesses. Everybody has ways they can improve. And it can be useful to talk to other people who will tell you what they perceive to be your weaknesses. I've sometimes had people tell me what they think my faults are. Sometimes I agree. Sometimes I disagree. Sometimes I partially agree. But I will tell you that when I have changed things, it usually has been because I've received criticism that when I take a hard look at it, I say, hey, you know what? They might be right. I don't like to admit it, but they might be right. So maybe I better change this. Like that's I've done that a number of times in my life. So getting constructive criticism can be good. And getting it from people you respect can especially be good. If you know they're smart people, successful people, you know they're trying to help. They're not there to troll you or make fun of you, but they're actually trying to improve you and you're trying to improve them. This can be useful. But only if you're really going to bring that attitude in, and I, I don't know if he's going to. I don't know if I don't know what weaknesses he's going to claim he has. That I would love to hear. One more thing before I move on. Palm Springs is not the best choice as a venue in January. 
Why is that? Well, Palm Springs is not Miami. Miami is a very nice place to visit in the winter. It's very warm. It's like you're there in the summer, but it's better than the summer because the summer in Miami is oppressively humid. Whereas the winter in January is nice. Even the nighttime is pretty nice. And you can swim in the ocean. And there really aren't mosquitoes around in January, too. So you have no mosquitoes. And it's warm, but not blazing hot. And the nights are very nice. A very nice time to go to Miami is January. But you know which place is not like that? California. California has a winter. It doesn't have a winter like New York or Chicago or even Las Vegas. But California does have a winter. Palm Springs is still warmer than a place like L.A., but not that much warmer in the winter. In the summer, it's blazing hot. The summer can be like 120 degrees. But in the winter, it is not all that warm. It's a lot warmer than the rest of the country, except for places like Miami. But it's not a place you'd want to go and lounge around by the pool. The average high in January in Palm Springs is 71. The average low is 48. Now, that's not cold by any means, but it's also not swimming weather, and it's not the type of weather where you'd want to sit outside for long periods of time at night. It's kind of cool at night. The sun will go down, it'll drop into the 50s. It's not terrible weather, but that's not like retreat weather. So I'm guessing that Phil probably got a good deal on the rental. And given that it's mid-January, and people don't really come to Palm Springs in mid-January, because the weather there's just not very exciting in mid-January. If you're from L.A., it's pretty similar to L.A.'s weather. L.A.'s a little bit cooler, but being pretty similar to 71 high, 48 low. Both places rain in the winter. So why even go to Palm Springs? Palm Springs is much nicer mid-March through mid-May, and then again from late September to late October. That's a sweet spot where the days are hot, but not blazing hot, and the nights are very warm, but pleasantly warm. That's when you'd want to go sit by the pool, and you can stroll around at night in a short-sleeved shirt and be very comfortable. That's not what January's like. So it's not January weather in Miami, it's January weather in Palm Springs. Now, I realize this isn't a sit-by-the-pool retreat, but if I'm going to want to spend four days at a beautiful resort-like home, which this is, I'd want to spend some time enjoying the ground outdoors. And, you know, it could be raining, it could be cloudy, it could be cold. It's just not a great time to go to Palm Springs, but that's probably why he chose January. It's probably cheaper then. Jeff Dime in the forum said it's a placebo effect. He said it can work for some people, though 10K seems steep. He said... Roe has clearly helped Jaffe realize his inner insufferable douchiness. <laughs> yeah, what was Will Jaffe like before? If he's improved under Elliot Rowe, what was he like before? If this is like mentally healthy Jaffe. Then he says, in all seriousness, Druff's well-thought-out critique is extremely important counter to much of the groupthink in the poker community. So many barnacles attached to the same ship because it financially benefits all. At least Druff is making a counter-argument, not just rubber-stamping it like most of the community will do. And see, that's where I have some respect for this Aubrey Williams. Even though Aubrey and I don't agree on very much. 
I do give some respect to Aubrey Williams here for being like the one person to say, hey, you know, I know you all love Galfon, but I just don't really think this is a smart thing to spend your money on. This kind of seems like quackery to me. And then she got attacked pretty viciously for it. So at least Aubrey broke away from the group thing. And that's what I'm doing, too. I didn't get involved in the whole Twitter discussion because, you know, I got to pick my spots on Twitter. And, like, I didn't see a reason to be the naysayer here because there's no scam happening. This isn't something where Galfon is bad or evil to be doing. I just don't think it's very good value. If he wants to do this, fine, and apparently there's an interest in it, and okay, people want to spend 10K to hang around with Galfon to Palm Springs, let them. You know, that's their money. I wouldn't do it, but people want to do that, that's fine. And he's presumably going to provide what he's promising, so okay, from that standpoint, it's fine. I just don't think that's the best use of 10K. Now, some people on the forum argued that if you have a high net worth, the 10K isn't very much money. So if there's any chance this might improve your life, that there's no harm in doing it. If you think you can experience some personal growth or maybe even network and meet some people who might be helpful to you, then the 10K is worth it. So he's saying, you know, for working class people or even above working class, 10K seems steep. But for people who have a lot of money, 10K is nothing. And if they think they can be helped by it, then it's money well spent. I understand that logic, but you can say that about anything. But I'm just speaking just from the absolute perspective of, is this a good expenditure or not? Is this worth it or not? Are you going to be helped that much by this or not? And I just I just haven't seen an example from Galfon that he's particularly in, introspective or someone who confronts his own weaknesses. I'm just not seeing that. There's a lot of positives about the guy. I just don't see that as one of them. If anything, I see that as a negative, that he can't seem to do that from what I've seen. Just because you're nice doesn't mean that you're good at assessing your own issues. I just found it interesting that Phil pivoted to this. If it were somebody else, I probably wouldn't even be doing the segment. Like, I've never discussed Elliot Rowe before this. I was aware of him, but like, what am I going to say? Okay, there's a new mindset coach here and discuss him. Like, okay, we've had mindset coaches the whole way. So what's there really to say here? But it's because it's Galfon who's so notable in poker for things other than this, and now he's going into this. I don't know. It seems a little bit weird to me. I don't think he's going into this with bad intentions. I want to get that out, too. I don't want people to think that I'm accusing him of scamming or something shady. I don't think that at all. I think he's going in with good intentions. I think he believes that he's going to make money and maybe benefit from it himself that he's going to meet with other successful people, other intelligent people. We're all going to analyze each other. We're all going to sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya, and we're all going to walk away as better people. I, I think he really believes that. So I'm not saying he's going into this with any kind of bad intentions or with anything in mind that people would be pissed off if they knew. I don't think it's like that. I think he really believes everything he wrote. I'm just kind of questioning whether... It's going to be all that useful. Before I close this topic, I want to do something for you. I'm going to give you the Dan Druff Tournament Poker Mindset Course. Now, mind you, this is a Tournament Poker Mindset Course. This is not General Mindset. This is not even just Poker Mindset. This is Tournament Poker Mindset. And I'm going to give you my course on Tournament Poker Mindset. 
And I will admit, just like Phil Gal found, that I have to learn some of my own advice. Some of this advice I don't even always follow myself. But nevertheless, I feel it's correct. So here is the Dan Druff mastermind for tournament poker. Get ready, get your pencils ready. This is great stuff. Don't go into a tournament believing that you're unlucky or you're going to lose in big spots. Don't just assume that you're cursed. Don't be intimidated by anyone in the field. They're human just like you. Just like you, they're also operating on imperfect information. And instead, if they're at your table, think about how they perceive you and then do the opposite. If they think you're tight and straightforward, try bluffing them. If they think you bluff too much, then only bid into them when you have it. Figure out their perception of you and then make them wrong. Don't be jealous of anyone else's chip stack. Just focus on your own. So often, a lot of times, the people who have a mountain of chips early, even the good players, will chunk them all off very quickly, sometimes just by bad luck. So don't worry about what someone else has at the moment. Just focus on your own chip stack and try to maintain it. Each hand is independent. There's no such thing as running bad, no matter how much it feels like it sometimes. Approach each hand as if it's a new opportunity to win. Don't get upset about bad beats. The bad beats mean that you got the money in good, which indicates that you're a skillful player who did the right thing. In most cases, these spots will make you a lot of money and you won't even think about them. You'll think, oh, of course I won. It's the times that you take the bad beat, the times where you lose where you had a 95% chance to win, that can be frustrating, but you don't bother to think, wait a minute, I got a lot of chips in with 95% shot to win. Some of the most inspiring tournament victories came from people who were short-stacked even late in the event. So remember that if you're still in, but you're short, you've always got a fighting chance. And in fact, it'll be more impressive if you end up winning the whole thing. Always just play your best game and go with your instincts. It's more important for you to make the right moves than for others to be impressed with your play. See the tournament as a competition where the goal is to take everyone's chips. If people are giving you info, either willingly or unwillingly, take it and use it to beat them. If you want to be a generous guy, do it off the felt. So don't volunteer information. Don't help people out. Don't try to be the guy at the table that's giving people a break or a chance. You're there to win. And if you want to be generous and you want to be nice, do it away from the poker table. Remember, others have the potential to get frustrated and play badly just like you potentially can. So recognize who's in the wrong mindset and exploit that. Be friendly to everybody, and they'll be easier to play against. Sometimes they'll even show you hands after you fold. It benefits you to be social and to come off as kind. If you're about to register for a tournament and can't shake the feeling that you're going to lose, don't play. Don't register and do something else with your day. Chips saved are just as good as chips won. Be just as proud of your correct folds as your moves that win you extra chips. Finally, don't get psyched out by table changes. Even if your new table is tougher than the last one, you can handle it. Everyone there will be uncomfortable because they don't know your playstyle yet. So there you go. That's Dan Druff's Tournament Poker Mindset course. Now that you've heard this and you've learned from it and you've improved your tournament poker game, I'm expecting you to send me $10,000. In fact, I'll be nice here. I won't expect the $10,000. What I'm going to expect is that if you win anything after hearing this advice, you send me money. 
If you don't win, don't. But if you win after this, after what I just said here, you've you got to send me a piece. That's my expectation of you as your mindset coach. But I really do mean that advice. I actually think all that is good advice. In fact, I can learn from that advice. Like the table change thing, I have a very hard time with table changes. When I'm going well, and I'm at a table I like, and I'm beating everybody, and I have a play style that works well against the people at the table, and they pick me up and move me somewhere else, I, I'm immediately pissed off. I'm immediately feeling negative. Maybe I should reread all that stuff before I play my next tournament. Okay, so this is a good time, after being on for all these hours, to talk about WSB Paradise. Some things happen there. WSB Paradise is at Atlantis in the Bahamas, same place that they have the PCA. And some interesting things have occurred there. First one I want to talk about is something I wasn't very happy to see. And that was giving away free seats to their 5 million guaranteed event. Now, I've already played twice on this show Seinfeld talking about poker guaranteed events, even if it was me putting the words in his mouth. And we're going to talk about guaranteed events again, because I always have a problem when venues manipulate the guarantee in any way. Guarantees should just be organic. If they happen to get there, then the venue's not out anything. And if they don't, then the venue will have to cover the difference in the overlay. And that should be that. Now, if they want to promote it and say, hey, we're headed towards an overlay, blah, 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 they can do it. I don't love that either, but fine. They want to use the fact that an overlay is coming to market it to people who want to come play at the last minute. Okay, because the truth is they're still getting registrants using their own money entering within the predetermined time to enter. But here's what I don't like. Not only don't I like the elimination or lowering of the guarantees, or adding extra flights so they can reach the guarantee. What I also don't like is when they stuff in players for the guarantee at either a discount or free. Because that is really going against the entire concept of the guarantee and the spirit of the guarantee. Because if you think about it, if a venue is going to fall short of the guarantee then it costs them nothing, literally nothing, to drop players in for free at the last minute. Because they're going to be paying those buy-ins anyway. If they're 40 buy-ins short and registration is about to close, they've got to pay those 40 buy-ins if there's a player or not. So if a casino says, hey, rather than just throwing in 40 buy-ins for free, why don't we just buy in 40 players we like and at least we'll get the goodwill from 40 people, well, I think that's crappy. Because what they're doing is they're abusing that whole guarantee thing. They're basically throwing people into the field who aren't paying anything because they have to pay it anyway and making it tougher for all the other players. They're basically robbing equity from all the other players. So that's not right. So I never like when players are put in for free or at a discount. And in fact, there was a scandal a number of years ago at the Westgate where they were advertising on Twitter that if you come down, you can get a discount on the buy-in for one of their guaranteed tournaments in the final hour. And there's a big deal made over that and people criticizing it. And the criticism was correct. And I called it out on this show too. But it's even worse if they bring people in for free. 
If the casino wants to give a gift of a poker tournament buy-in to one of their preferred players, then the casino should contribute that to the prize pool. They should not be doing that on a guaranteed event. They should be doing it on any event but a guaranteed event. So if you want to add a player to a regular event and cover their buy-in, great. But if you're basically adding them in for free, which is what you're doing when there's going to be an overlay, that's not ethical at all. So I was very disappointed to see that WSP Paradise was quietly emailing certain Seven Stars members that they have been given, they've been gifted, a free buy-in to event number one at WSP Paradise. Very bad. And this was not something they publicized loudly. In fact, I posted it, and that was the first time that most people had heard of it other than those that had gotten the email about it. This was sent to me by a radio listener who received this offer and said, this is kind of weird. (laughs) Look at this. This person wasn't planning upon going, but they just got this out of nowhere. This is what it said. Complimentary $1,650 entry to WSOP Paradise. Claim your WSOP Paradise free entry, December 3rd to 6th, 2023. Congratulations on earning a complimentary $1,650 tournament entry at the 2023 WSP Paradise. As a Seven Stars member, you have been selected to receive a complimentary entry into the $5 million guaranteed WSP Gold Bracelet event number one, which is the $1,650 Mystery Millions No Limit Hold'em event at Atlantis Paradise in Nassau, Bahamas on December 3rd through 6th, 2023. Based on your tier status, you may also be eligible for a complimentary stay at Atlantis airfare, cash, or other benefits. See you in paradise. So this is a free entry into a $5 million guarantee event where they were assuming that they were not going to make the guarantee, and they barely made the guarantee, but very, very close, and this is after giving some of these away. And who knows what else they gave away to get there. So this is not good. This is not ethical. I don't like it. Not as bad as what MGM Grand did, but still not good. They should not be handing these out to guarantee events. They want to hand these out to other events. Great. No problem. But they should not be handing these out to guarantee events because they weren't sending these out months in advance. Then you could say, well, they thought they're going to hit the guarantee anyway. They're just giving out free stuff. No, they sent these fairly close to when the event was going to take place. They sent these like a few days in advance, I think like November 29th or 30th or something. So some people complain, hey, how am I going to have time to get down there? <laughs> or the, the cost of the flight to get down there is very expensive if you're not all that close. So it's not worth it. Some people said this is ridiculous to be notified so late. But the reason they were notified so late, I'm guessing, is because that was when WCP Paradise was starting to, be, to become convinced that they were not going to make the guarantee and they were going to have an overlay. So they say, well, might as well do some nice things for our seven stars. Now, what I can't determine is how they picked the seven stars to receive this offer. I tried to figure out a pattern here by asking various seven stars I knew whether they got it or not, and I could not discern one. So certain seven stars got it, certain seven stars did not get it, and I couldn't really figure out who did and who didn't. It didn't seem to be totally related to casino play, like how much you've been doing. It didn't seem to be all that related to whether 
you've played a lot of poker in the past at the World Series. I thought maybe who played people who played a lot at the World Series of Poker would get it, and those who didn't would not, but that wasn't necessarily true. I couldn't find a real pattern to this. Now, maybe you had to have played at least one WSOP event at some point for them to give you this offer. That might be true. But also maybe not. I'm not sure. I couldn't really find a pattern. So it is interesting they didn't send this to every Seven Stars member, but maybe that's just too many people. They didn't want to overdo it. There's only so many that they would need to give away here to cover a potential overlay they thought might happen. Maybe they estimated the overlay and said, okay, we have this many free entries to give away based upon this. So under such and such criteria, here's where we're going to send it to this many people. But I, I don't like that at all. And it really didn't get much publicity or much discussion. I brought it up on Twitter, but there really wasn't much discussion beyond that. But you should realize that they kind of crammed people in there for free into that Mystery Millions event who really shouldn't have been there because they were not contributing to it. So they had 3,446 entries, and at 1,650 each, it ended up 5.685 million before the rake was taken out, and after the rake, it ended up being 5.169 million. So to be fair, this probably didn't affect the overlay that much there's two ways to look at an overlay, and I know there's been arguments with Alan Kessler about this. I, I forgot what side he was on, but some people felt an overlay is only an overlay if the prize pool after the rake is taken out is affected. And others feel that if the rake is even reduced at all by a partial overlay that it counts as an overlay. So like, look at this case here. The price pool ended up as $5.169 million, which means the guarantee didn't come into play. But let's say they had enough entries to get past $5 million, but after the rake, it would have been below $5 million, but then they still had to pay $5 million. Well, then you still get, did benefit some from the guarantee. I call that a partial overlay. But this wasn't a partial overlay. This is a full overlay because the price pool after the rake was $5.169 million. However, the question is, if you remove the free entries they gave out, I don't know how many there were, how many people took them up on this. But if you remove those, then what would the prize pool have been? I wonder. So they did take a chance when they were giving these away that if there wasn't the overlay they expected, then they really would have to put in the 1650. Because basically they were putting the 1650 in for each of these players. Then of course they get some of that back immediately because they're raking themselves. But then the remainder that goes into the prize pool, they do have to pay that out if there's not an overlay, and there turned out not to be. But maybe the only reason that there wasn't an overlay because they gave away a lot of seats. I don't know. I'd love to know how many seats they gave away. But either way, they shouldn't be doing this. Either way, they should not be giving away free seats into a guaranteed event. Unless it's already busted past the guarantee. Then if they want to give away free seats, then they can, because then they really do have to contribute the money to the prize pool. And it's no coincidence they chose that event to do it. Phil Helmuth did an entrance, like he always does to these main events at the World Series. He typically does it at the main event of Las Vegas in the summer. But this was a bracelet main event, and he decided to do one of his crazy entrances at this event as well. He decided to be Poseidon here, maybe with the whole 
island theme there that he thought Poseidon was appropriate. And he does spend money on these entrances. He hires models and other people to assist him. So I don't know how much he spends, but he does actually spend money on these entrances. And he does this not at the very, very beginning. He's not there for the first hand. He enters late. And then he goes in with these grand entrances that do interrupt the play. He doesn't do it on a break. He does it when everyone's there to see it. He does that on purpose. So here's the one he did for WSP Paradise. <laughs> so they're showing him getting ready with all these girls. Now, before I play that sound, that's the part I want to share with you. He hired 17 girls to dress as mermaids. And he hired 17 because he has 17 bracelets now. So one for each bracelet. These were all Bahamian girls. They were all local girls. This isn't anyone he brought with him. And then he also hired a Bahamian marching band. So I guess he was contributing to the local Bahamian economy. But yeah, a marching band actually came in during poker play. And this is how it sounded. Now, it's skipping around here, this video. It's condensed, so it, it didn't sound this jumpy, but it was even louder than this. People played some videos on Twitter. It was very, very loud. And Phil was dressed as Poseidon, and Jungle Man, Daniel Cates, was part of it as well. He's kind of been... Phil Helmuth Jr. for these things. He's been helping out Phil with these entrants recently. Okay, so there's some complaints about this. People said, how should we be expected to play poker under these circumstances? We spent all this money to enter this main event and were interrupted by this, we're trying to think about how to play our hands, and this very loud marching band comes into the room and blasts their music into everybody's ears. And some people showed videos of the marching band right by their table, just incredibly loud. So some people said this wasn't fair, that nobody else would be allowed to do this. Nobody else could interrupt the tournament like this. And why isn't Phil just doing this on a break when people aren't playing? Phil clearly wants everyone to watch this and wants to force everyone to watch it. Daniel Negreanu, who is friends with Helmuth, defended him and said, every year Phil Helmuth does a grandiose entrance to the WSOP main event. Every year some people complain about what is ultimately a minor inconvenience during a poker tournament, saying it's disrespectful. Personally, I think those people should be thanking him for the color and outrageousness he brings to the game, because in the end, these pros are all richer in part because of Phil's antics both on and off the felt. You don't have to like it. You can think it's obnoxious and self-indulgent. I wouldn't do it, but I'm glad Phil does. So his point was basically that Helmuth is one of the crazy characters of poker that has attracted fish to the game. That without Helmuth, there would be fewer fish in the game, and that the pros who criticize him don't stop to think, wait a minute, if Phil Helmuth wasn't there, we would have fewer fish in the game, and we would have all made less money than we did. Eric Froelich disagreed with Negranu. He tweeted, I strongly dis disagree, but not for reasons listed here. 
the Jungle Man stuff is fantastic, and the reason why is it isn't disruptive to an entire venue playing an event that requires concentration. And that's not totally true. Jungle Man will sometimes do these along with Helmuth as like an assistant. But he's referring to Jungle Man just dressing up in funny costumes where he doesn't really disrupt anything. He just takes on some weird theme and dresses like it. Spectacles, fun, and entertainment are great. Loud noises are awful. DJ McKinnon, another poker pro, said all he has to do is do it during a break in the action. That's it. But somehow he has to parade in while everyone who paid 5 to 10 k to play their tournament is trying to focus. There would be 98% less complaints if it was during or coming back from a break. Someone else named Chris Golick said, Poker is fun, and there should be more of this. His antics are a big part of what got poker to become mainstream. Like it or not, Helmuth antics have benefited everyone who calls themselves a poker pro, similar to what Negranu said. So how do I feel about this? Well, first of all, there's definitely favoritism in poker, big time, especially at the World Series. Everybody's not treated equal. There are certain things you can get away with as a known pro that you cannot if you're anyone else. In fact, also at WCP Paradise... Scotty Wynn just strolled over during the final table of the ladies' event and said, hey, good luck, ladies, good luck, good luck, and just interrupted the whole thing, and people just dismissed it. So, oh, yeah, that's just Scotty Wynn being Scotty Wynn. <laughs> if anyone else did this, they'd say, who's this creep? Like, why is this creep allowed to just walk over and interrupt the ladies' event final table? But Scotty Wynn does it, and a lot of people look past it. Nor is he asked to stop by any of the tournament directors. Where if, like, if I did that, let's say I just strolled into a ladies' event, even in WCB Paradise, and during the final table just walked in, hey, ladies, good luck, good luck. They'd say, sir, get out of here. What are you here for? What are you doing? You can't be here. That's what they'd say to me if I did it. But Scotty Gwynn can do it. Phil Helmuth, with his very loud entrances that he purposely does when everyone's playing and not taking a break, if I tried to do that again, they, they would uh, throw me out. They'd say, what are you doing? You can't interrupt play like this. You can't disturb everyone like this. Why are you being so selfish? This isn't all about you. This isn't the Todd show. Get out of here. But Helmuth does it, and he's allowed. I talked about many times how I played with Phil Ivey once, where at the end of the day, he just walked off, didn't bag his chips. And a floor man dutifully came over and bagged his chips and wrote his name on it. If I walked away without bagging my chips because I felt above bagging chips, they would give me a penalty. So I've seen many examples of this over time where there's favoritism for the name pros. And Phil's ability to walk in with these gigantic loud spectacles is part of that preferential treatment. And that's the way the World Series has always been. Now, is it true that Phil Helmuth has brought people to the game? Yes. Is it true that Phil Helmuth is one of the characters of the game that makes people find poker more interesting? Yes. Is it even possible that what Negranu said is true, that poker pros are probably all at least a little bit richer because of Helmuth and his antics? Yeah, that's probably true, too. Of course, not the ones who played on UB. They're probably a lot poorer because of Helmuth and his antics. Namely, promoting a site that had cheating on it, even after he knew there was cheating. I don't think he was cheating, but the fact that he knew there was cheating and continued to promote it for two more years was pretty bad. But should he be allowed to do these entrances when people are playing an event that costs 5 k or 10 k 
In this case, it was 5K, 5,300 to be exact. But in the summer, it's 10K. Should he be able to do this? Well, I don't really have a problem with it. It's just part of the landscape. And the truth is, it doesn't take that much time. And if you have to play a few hands with that in the background, so be it. Now, let me tell you something that was very inappropriate and difficult that I did complain about. And that was also something involving loud noise, where it was hard to concentrate. And those were times at the Rio when I was playing in the Amazon room and they were having a final table at the same time and that some people had very loud rails, especially like Brazilian. For some reason, Brazilians always have really loud rails. So if there's like a Brazilian at the table, it is so noisy with the Brazilians' rails. Chanting and singing and yelling. And if you're right next to this, playing a different event, it's very hard to concentrate. And unlike Helmuth's little spectacle, which lasted like five to ten minutes, this went on for hours. And I was just going crazy trying to concentrate during all that crap in the background from that very, very loud final table. And I brought it up at the table, and some people agreed with me, and some gave me a hard time. Some said, oh, come on, they're having fun. This is a final table. Lighten up. You know, we're just on day one here. What do we have the right to complain? Let people have their rail for the final table. And I said, okay, fine, but then hold it somewhere that it doesn't disturb the other tables. Because we paid the same money to enter this event as they did for that event. They're just further along. So either calm the rails down and don't let them be this loud, or if you want to let them be this loud, then don't hold any other events next to it. It's got to be one or the other. It's not fair to the people who entered. So that was a reason to complain. Yet I had all these idiots there telling me that I'm wrong, I'm an ingrate, I'm someone who's just too sensitive. And I'm like, no, I could deal with this for a short time, but hours and hours of this gets on your nerves and it's hard to concentrate. But hours of this is different than five to ten minutes. So if Helmuth wants to come in, he wants to have his marching band and all his other crap when he does his entry where he wants everyone to look at him, let him. If you can't handle five to ten minutes of that distraction, then you're in the wrong game. Five to ten minutes of loud music or distractions shouldn't be something that should change your tournament results. It's one of those cumulative things where hours of noise that are destroying your concentration, those build up on you and it gets very hard to play that way after a long enough time of that going on. For a short time, it shouldn't really matter. And if you think about it, what if Helmuth's entrance was 10 seconds? Would that be okay? I mean, I know some people would prefer he doesn't do it at all, but if he's going to do it, would 10 seconds really make an impact on your tournament? I bet you'd say no. Okay, what about 20 seconds? I bet you'd say no. What about one minute? You'd probably still say no. So where's the point where it changes over to something that's really disruptive? I don't think it's at five minutes or 10 minutes. I think that... If something is going on for a very long time and just doesn't stop, that's when you can complain and say, look, I just can't hear myself think here, and I can't just look past it because it's just going on too long. So I don't think it was that bad. I understand people who are objecting to this, but it's not that bad. And why can't he do it during the break? Well, because he wants everyone to see it. During the break, people are running to the bathroom or making phone calls, and they're not in the room. So he wants everyone there in the room to see his grand entrance. Yes, it's self-indulgent. Yes, it's 
to bring attention to him. Yes, it's kind of selfish, but I guess he feels like he's entitled to do this since he has been a major figure in the modern game. One of the most major figures in the modern game. So, like, whatever. I'm not saying I'm thrilled he does this, but I don't really care. I don't really care either way. I think the people complaining about it are whining too much. Final WSOP Paradise topic. Jordan Sakuchi, who is an EPT champion, had a pretty interesting situation with WSOP Paradise. And I'm not even completely sure how this all happened. The reason I play that sound effect is that this involves a pretty serious criminal charge that is against Sakuchi in Canada, where he's from. And this story came out before WSOP Paradise began. So Jordan Sakuchi, who won an EPT event in 2022, he won a million bucks in that event. He was wanted in Canada in November and early December for being part of a home robbery gang. And apparently, it's pretty serious. It's for committing multiple home robberies. And Canadian authorities released four pictures of the members of the gang with a side-by-side of a direct facial shot of them and them in action during their robberies to show that you know they were really doing this. Sakuchi is pretty clearly shown in one of these pictures wearing a baseball cap in the process of one of these. He was wanted along with Marcel Blackburn, Dumarc Lindsay, and Paul Nkrumah. Now, these other three guys, to my knowledge, don't play poker, but Jordan Sakuchi does. Canadian authorities were looking for him in November and finally caught up with him in December, on December 5th, and they arrested him. So you'd think, well, that's got to be the end of the story. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you this on December 13th, early in the morning. How much more could have happened since he was arrested on December 5th? Well, something has happened. He popped up in the strangest of places. The main event at WSOP Paradise. This is on December 9th, day 1B of the main event for $5,300. Now, how do you get arrested for being part of a home robbery gang after being on the run? How do you get arrested on December 5th and then are able to leave the country to get to WSOP Paradise by December 9th? But that's what he did. Somehow he got out of Canada. He got arrested. He got released. He got out of Canada and registered for the WSOP Paradise main event on day 1B. Crazy. So I don't know if he made bail. I don't know exactly how the justice system works there, but somehow he was able to leave the country, which is crazy because he was accused of a pretty serious crime. It's not like he was arrested for something fairly minor and they figured that he's probably coming back. He's not going to leave the country to avoid some kind of small charge. Yeah, let's say he got arrested for shoplifting or public drunkenness or even like a DUI. I could see where they let him leave the country thinking he's not going to just uproot everything and give up his uh, Canadian citizenship just to run away from a minor charge. But this is a home robbery gang. I mean, this could land him in prison for a while. 
So, of course, he might leave the country to flee justice. But yeah, they just let him leave. They let him leave to go to Bahamas. And he did. And there's a picture of him I'm looking at right now. He was wearing a mask in the picture. Now, I don't know if this is because he just didn't want to catch something or if this was a way to cover up who he was. He wasn't doing a very good job with the mask, though. It was over only part of his mouth and not his nose. (laughs) So how did he do in the WSB Paradise main event? Well, we'll never get to find out because he was kicked out of the event and banned from the Atlantis Resort shortly thereafter. So he was disqualified, presumably not given a refund, and kicked off of the property. Apparently, this was not from anything behavioral at the WSAP event. I don't know if he did something maybe in the hotel. It was the Atlantis Resort, which 86'd him and told him he can't come back. And they told WSAP officials... He's not allowed on property. So we're getting rid of him. So you handle it how you want. So WSP said, okay, whatever. We'll do what you say. So he was disqualified and kicked out. Again, I don't know if he got a refund. He probably didn't. But he was booted from Atlantis, where it took place, on day 1B. So he didn't even complete the day. He still had chips, but they booted him out of the event and the property. Atlantis would not say why they removed him. It's possible they did this because they heard about his home robbery charges that were awaiting him there in Canada and decided they didn't want any part of having this guy at the resort. They just may not want him there. Someone may have complained when they saw him and then when they verified it was the same guy, they were like, no, we don't want this guy in our resort. Because remember, he was wanted for robbery. So they may not want him there robbing people at Atlantis. So it's very possible they just don't like someone like that being there when they've just left Canada after being arrested for home robbery. So I'm guessing that's why they got rid of him. It's possible he caused some kind of issue there, but I'm guessing probably not. Because to my knowledge, he hasn't caused any issue during other poker tournaments. No one reported him causing any issues. No one witnessed him doing anything while at Atlantis. So I think it was just based upon what he was arrested for. The million dollars he won was only a year ago. It was an EPT event in 2022. You may say, well, why is he robbing houses then? But it's possible that he either chunked it all off or that a lot of this went to backers. Maybe he was in a lot of makeup and didn't get to keep much of that million dollars. I'm just speculating here. Maybe he has a gambling problem, who knows. But whatever it is, he seems to be committing robberies in addition to playing poker. You'd think if you could win a million dollars in an EPT event last year, you'd try your hand at winning more and not uh, resort to robbery, but that's what he's been doing. Ryback feed me more from the forums that the only reason I can see for the casino wanting him out was at the behest of being notified by Bahamian authorities of his potential pending charges since both Canada and Bahamas are part of the British Commonwealth. They do share info. And it's possible that Bahamas weren't informed about his charges till after he had entered, and possible while not deported, he was strongly urged to leave and go back north. Yeah, I guess it's possible that Canada didn't even want him to leave, and somehow he got out of the country, and then they found 
something in Bahamas about uh, how he did that and they didn't want him there. Or it's possible that just someone notified Bahamian authorities and it went from there. It's got to have something to do with those charges. Like if you're already wanted for home robbery, being part of a home robbery gang, like why, why would you go to Bahamas just to act up over there and get thrown out there? If there's any time to keep your head down, I would think it's then. So I have a feeling he wasn't causing a problem in Bahamas. I think they just didn't want him there. I don't know if he was shipped out of Bahamas back to Canada or if he was just booted from the Atlantis and just voluntarily went back to Canada because there was nothing left for him to do if he could not be at Atlantis. I think it was probably the latter. I think there's something wrong with the Canadian justice system if a guy wanted for home robbery is back out within four days. <laughs> what was he doing not in jail at that point? And if you do let him out on bail, how could you ever let him leave the country? It's very weird. Because I'll tell you, if you've got money, and remember he just cashed for a million dollars the year before. If you've got some money and you're facing serious criminal charges that could put you behind bars for years and you can get out of the country, then, you know, it's not that bad of an idea to do. <laughs> Seriously, like, would you rather spend years in prison in your home country or leave the country and go somewhere else and be free? I think most people would prefer to be free. Yeah, if you're just avoiding a month in prison, that's a different story. But if you have enough resources to live on in another country and you can just leave and not have to face the music for some serious criminal charges, it makes sense why you'd want to leave. So why would they let him go to Bahamas? It doesn't make any sense. So unless he just slipped out somehow, there's a big fail on the part of Canada. Moving on, I want to talk about the UNLV shooting, which took place since our last show. And sad story, of course, that a psychotic shooter went to UNLV with the goal of murdering people and did. And when it came out who did it, it turned out to be different than what people would have expected. Because you heard there was a shooter at UNLV, you pictured it was going to be a former student, or maybe even some kind of terrorist. What you probably didn't expect, but turned out to be the case, was the shooter was a college professor, not someone working at UNLV, but a longtime college professor who was 67 years old named Anthony Polito, and he had tried to get a job at UNLV and other colleges and universities in Nevada, was turned down for all of the jobs, and then showed up with a gun and a lot of different clips to reload, and killed three people, wounded one other, and then was shot dead by police, who got there pretty fast. This was something he planned to do, and people were wondering what was the motivation. Of course, once it came out that he was a college professor and that he had tried to get a job and was turned down there, people were assuming this was probably like a version of workplace violence, where he was taking it out on UNLV that they didn't give him a job. But it was more complicated than that. That was partially true. But it's more complicated than that. And I've read some of his rantings on his website, which is still up to this day. 
And I've kind of learned his mindset from reading a lot of these rantings. It's now pretty clear to me why he did what he did and why he didn't do certain things. Because the three people he killed were all faculty members. He did not go after any students. He walked right by students and did not shoot them or attempt to shoot them. And when he was shot dead by police, it appears that he wasn't even trying to shoot the police dead. It appears he was trying to make it look like he was going to shoot them dead. He fired off a shot that badly missed and seems to be intentionally have missed just so the police would fire back and kill him, which they did, which is known as suicide by cop. So it looks like the goal of this attack was to kill faculty and maybe staff members at UNLV, but not to hurt the students and maybe not even to hurt police responding. And he assumed that he was going to be shot dead in the process of doing this. And it kind of looks like he was intentionally trying to make that happen. And he did. So he was shot dead. His website is still up. It's a very old-looking website. Looks like it's a 1990s GeoCity site, but it's not entirely made a long time ago. It just looks like he never updated the style, which I guess I can't criticize myself because Poker Fraud Alert looks like it's from the 2000s. But he has links to a number of things on the site, including some newer things, such as like articles from 2015. So... It isn't all antiquated stuff, though he does link to some things from the 90s. And the format of the site looks very antiquated. But if you go to Tony Polito, that's P-O-L-I-T-O dot com, you can still see his website. It is still active. I imagine it's going to stay active until it expires because he doesn't pay the bill. Unless the host takes it down because of what he did. But so far it's still up. And it's been some time since the shooting happened. I'm actually kind of surprised it hasn't been taken down. Makes me think it's going to stay up. So the shooting occurred on December 6th. It's been a week now. He basically walked in and shot four people. And the police responded really, really fast. They were there within about a minute and a half of receiving the call that there was shooting going on. And then right away they saw him walking down the stairs. And then as an officer was approaching him, he fired off a shot, but again, he didn't seem to be firing it at the shot to hit the officer. He seems to just be firing a shot to kind of give the officer the justification to shoot him dead. So he fired off a shot, didn't seem to aim. The officer then retreated and rolled behind his vehicle to take cover. And Polito just calmly kept walking in that direction and then walked right past the vehicle where the officer was now taking cover, turned to face the officer, and the officer unloaded a lot of bullets into him, of course, justifiably. And Polito didn't instantly die, but he was pretty close to it, and he died before any paramedics could get there. So, looked like suicide by cop. Was this a political attack? No. It does not seem to be political. In fact, it's not even clear what politics Anthony Polito had. He didn't seem to rant about politics. He had a lot of rants I'm going to read you, but none of them were political. 
And of the tons of links he has on his webpage, they just don't really seem to be about politics. There was one link he had to an article called Excellence versus Equity, written in 2015, that was a left-leaning article. He also had a link to a biography of George Soros as one of the great minds of the 20th century. He listed a whole lot of people, but one of them was George Soros, which someone who's on the right would not link as, quote, one of the great minds of the 20th century. He's considered to be an enemy of the right, and someone who is political and on the right would not be promoting Soros as a positive figure in any way. So it's possible that Polito was on the left, but it just looks like that politics really didn't inform his behavior or what was important to him. It looks like he had a lot of different interests and opinions, but politics just didn't seem to be that much of it. So I don't think this is political at all, though I would have to guess that he was a Democrat. He also had a link to NPR News, which is a left-leaning program. So I think he was probably a Democrat, but again, this didn't seem to be a political attack, nor did he seem all that political. So it looks like he did this because he was very bitter at the academic establishment. He felt rejected. He felt screwed over. He felt that people at his previous jobs had been unfair to him and ruined his career. And he felt like he was 67 and had no career prospects anymore, and he wasn't ready to retire or give up. Also, apparently, he didn't have any money anymore, so he needed the money. And he couldn't get hired anywhere. And he was basically blaming this on the previous people he worked with. And this is far away. He did not work in Nevada. He worked on the other side of the country. But he was very bitter toward past co-workers. And I know this because a few days before he committed this act, he changed his website to say content of envelopes, a very big link. He had all these small links to all these different things. And he changed the website to have an additional link to content of envelopes in very big print. He also, for some reason, increased the size of the print for Biosketch, which I've never heard of a Biosketch before, but it actually isn't a sketch. It's a biography of him in PDF format, just explaining his academic accomplishments. Basically, it's almost like a resume. So for some reason, that was highlighted very much, and then he added this new link called Content of Envelopes. Now, there were envelopes, he attempted to mail off 22 envelopes shortly before committing these shootings. And some of them had some white powder in it, which was meant to scare people, but it turned out to be talcum powder. So he was really just sending angry letters to people with talcum powder in there to scare them. Which is a little bit weird, you know, if you're going to go commit a suicide murder spree and you or mailing off letters to people you despise, uh, why are you just trying to scare them? You'd think he'd want to kill them with some kind of powder, but it's possible he didn't have access to anything that could have been harmful, so he just put talcum powder in there. 
but he actually had a link on his website to read the content of these envelopes that he sent out to all these different people. Now, you can't find that anymore on TonyPolito.com because for whatever reason, he removed it just before he went out to do the shooting. There's no way to know why he did this, why he would post all that and then remove it. So he added it and then quickly removed it. And it was caught by archive.org. And you can still find it there. And that's how I read all this stuff. But my guess is that he put it up there and then thought better of it because he was afraid that he was so unhinged in these envelope messages that he put a copy of in this PDF that he was probably afraid that someone's going to report this to the police and then the police would figure out his plans to commit this murder. So he probably took that down to avoid that happening and didn't think about the archiving site, or maybe he didn't care about the archiving site, figuring that people would only search it after he was already dead, which is what happened. He was listing in this content of envelopes PDF a bunch of people he sent it to, and then a message for each of them. So it looked like this PDF was containing exactly what he wrote to these people in each envelope. And he wasn't really explaining to the reader who these people are. You'd have to infer it by reading his rant. So it's not like he'd say, well, this person is who you know, is this, and his, here's where they worked, and here's my relationship with them. Here's uh, why I'm mad at them. He didn't give an intro to any of this. He was just put a, he'd put a person's name, and then he would have the message that was for them that they were to receive from these envelopes. Now, they never got these envelopes because they were intercepted after he did this. I don't know how they knew that he sent these envelopes, but they found out and then they went through like many, many thousands of pieces of mail to find them. They had no return address on them, but they found them and confiscated them all before they got anywhere. But here's an example of one to someone named Scott Shook. You trustee or are you a spineless shit? If you trustee, then I trust you will take care of this. Professor Darth Vader Zamanek files to Thailand on breaks having sex with children and everyone knows it. A felony in the U.S. even when committed abroad. Uses office computer to watch illegal kitty porn. Once charged with felony wife beating of the bride he purchased in Thailand, then pled down to a misdemeanor because of felony equals moral turpitude and he might get fired for it. Has massively disrupted or blocked almost every 10-year promotion decision he's been involved in for the last 20 years pulling all sorts of illegal and unethical shit unless he owns and operates the candidate as part of his never-ending empire-building campaign. So, he's talking about this other guy named Zamanek, which we'll get to in another one of these letters, but this is aimed at Scott Shook, who is a trustee at one of these schools. And he's describing this Zamanek guy. This five years of signed, positive, 10-year progress letters. Then the week before the vote, Zamanek starts pulling his shit and everyone runs scared. Dozens of excellent faculty he blocked, run off, caused to move to other schools, often appears on campus while using various types of altering drugs he buys in Thailand, when that turns his skin fucking orange. Don't believe it? Ask ex-dean Ernie Err. Zamanek was a destructive pain in the ass even back when Err was the dean 20 years ago. Don't believe it? Check with Rich Gunner down at UGA. Ask him what dirty shit Zamanek pulled to steal his tenure bid and run him out of town on a rail. 
or ask Dr. Bev Wright what Zemanek did to destroy her valid tenure bid. Had to skip no-notice run to Georgia to find other jobs. All this criminal behavior, all these victims, all this damage to the university, yet Zemanek endlessly heads all the hiring, tenure, and promotion committees and has the cozy corner office with all the windows. Is that steaming Zemanek shit okay with you for ECU? So I guess Scott Shook was a trustee at ECU, which is East Carolina University, which is one of the places that Polito taught. So this was mainly a rant about this Zemanek guy, but he was sending a letter to him for allowing this to all happen. Then he wrote one to Leslie K. Wilson. When you still just a faculty, you stop new temporary faculty, 160 IQ, top degrees, top student evaluations at your school, stop him in hall, demand he take off his necktie because you're going to be the boss babe, bitch queen, and you're going to make sure all faculty department know to kneel down to you. Neckties got to go because your ego pinhead brain sees neckties as a sign of male patriarchy. Then when he don't do it, you make sure he got to leave, not stay, not permanent. You bully other male faculty too, I know. I hear, I overhear you bully tenured Sashi Kaparthi in late spring. He had one month to turn in an annual performance and you drift into his office and say, I say you need one more research paper for this year's performance and be sure to put my name on it. Where was he supposed to pull that paper in a month? Out of his ass? And you bully up a free ride? How about you do your work, you damn cunt? You're a real piece of shit you are. You put in for assistant dean job, then you buy it with a million dollar donation from your family, then you mark time until dean stepped down and you slide up. Now, it looks like he's writing this with bad grammar on purpose, because I've read some other stuff he's written. It's not like this. All your faculty talked behind your back what a tyrant, deadweight, terrorizing cunt you are while I was there. And look at you now. You're still the only one there... For when you first became assistant dean, everyone else gone, retired, but not you. You still squatting on your do-nothing throne, your face all shriveled up like a hag put up wet, you freeloading hanger on. You just an arrogant do-nothing ego-blown skulls true. I hope someday FBI look into what you did to cripple your husband, who was once a successful manager at John Deere, so you could make him your houseboy gopher prisoner. What was your positive impact on humanity? Nothing. You just spend your life to serve yourself. Zero moral compass. Accomplish nothing. When you retire and you are forgotten, how will your empty life, no purpose but to shit on everyone, how will you feel then, Granny Weatherall? You just got to do nothing arrogant, man-heading cunt who thinks she's entitled to rule a roost. Capiche? That was to Leslie K. Wilson. This one's interesting. To Stanley G. Eakins. You stole the last 10 years of my career... The PhD I spent seven years in slavery and abuse and victimization to get. You stole maybe two million of my paychecks and 401k contributions, and you thought you would get a pass? You arrogant numbskull fuck. Did you? You did because you're a fucking moron. You're a criminal idiot like clan goober fuck. And what is worse, you stole a decade of joy in my life, my purpose in life, to teach and help those students become better business people and better citizens. And you stole that experience and benefited from all of them, too, because you're too fucking stupid and corrupt to even understand what I was doing and what they were gaining. Now, these are all letters these people got directly from him or were supposed to get. They, they were intercepted, but they were supposed to get it. He sent these out just before committing the shooting. You're just an ego-blown blown stupid prick. You have your suck-up gophers forge records and you hunt up vulnerable students and pump them full of straight-up lies to tell so you can steal all that, not just from me, but from 18 tenured faculty members of age. All of them fucked out of the last years of their careers, well-earned by serving the institution for a lifetime. Then you ego-blown ego shit say, what have you done for me lately, and stab them all and twist the knife like some kind of righteous fucking Brutus. 
You do not see deans at other schools do this to other tenured faculty of age because they're smart enough to know that if they do that shit, their school is blackballed. They are not moron, power-crazed, self-centered, clan-goober idiots like you. You are going to lose accreditation. Nobody ever lose AASCB accreditation. Not one school in history, you fucking idiot. And why did you commit to deliver a mountain type of research to a credit renewal? Not, not realistically possible. So I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it's just more and more stuff like this. And he ends with, I know, some of you, I know you won't mind that some of your other unionized administrators and deans, AACSB, Club Frat Brothers, pay the price for your own stupidity, discrimination, theft, and crimes. So I wonder if he's referring to the murder he's about to commit. Welcome to the new world, you shit. When stupid and evil people fuck over and tyrant over the good, the good will fuck them back. Capiche? And then he oddly sent a second letter to the same Stan Eakins, where Stan, Stan Eakins was supposed to open the second one, and it says, Ha ha, fuck you yet again, you corrupt idiot clan goober lizard brain thief. So there were a lot of things like this. One of them, he told the person that they're lucky that he left town instead of coming over and seeing them. He wrote that, this guy's lucky that he left town instead of coming over to the guy's house to settle things. And that guy is lucky because, to me, this looks like that his real problem was with people he worked with previously that he felt ruined his career. He seems to have felt he was forced out early. I think the Stanley Eakins, he thought, knocked him out before he got tenure and wouldn't give him tenure. That's why he's talking about how he lost $2 million worth of paychecks that otherwise he would have gotten I don't think he's saying that Stanley Eakins physically stole $2 million from him, but that Stanley Eakins stole $2 million he would have made otherwise had he been given tenure. So I think he believed that certain people at these institutions he worked at were corrupt and screwed him and many other people over. And this left him in a position where he was broke and unable to get a job instead of being a tenured professor who could work basically until he voluntarily retired and would not only get a lot of money while working and uh, as a tenured professor, but also when he would retire, he would get the benefits as well. Here he was walking away with very little, and he was blaming all these people for it. Now, I don't know how much of this was valid. Obviously, this guy was a crazy murderer, but that doesn't mean that perhaps he was screwed over in some way. Perhaps these people were not very good people that he worked with. It's, it's also possible that he created a lot of his own issues because he's a crazy man. It's probably more likely that he's a crazy man who created a lot of his own issues, but the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can have a guy who is a crazy man, and you can also have bad people that the crazy man works with and notices that they're bad people and then makes them further crazy. So I don't know which one it was, but he was definitely crazy. In his diatribe, he also was attacking academia in general, which is funny because that's what he was working at a career. And it looks like he's only bitter because he can't be part of it anymore. So it's not like he walked away from it and said, I'm not going to be part of academia anymore. It sucks. And let me expose it. It was like, hey, no one will hire me anymore. So now let me expose how terrible it is. So here's an excerpt from his diatribe that was found on his webpage. As you can see from these few examples above, 99-plus percent of higher education, once a most noble of endeavors, has morphed into an absolute corrupt scam, 
a massive sewer where average people with zero moral compass, amoral grifters can pose themselves as expert professors and valuable administrators and do little while collecting a lifetime of shitload of salary and fat benefits with almost no chance of being fired. Liberal or conservative institution, public or private institution, they're no different. They're just two different teams, two different sides, playing the same self-serving, dishonest, unethical sport and rules. A game just as self-serving and corrupt as these days that can now be so plainly and publicly seen in most other dysfunctional governmental bureaucracies or thieving, greedy corporations. Faculty, staff, administrators all care nothing about students or education, despite all their, quote, cover claiming so loudly that they do. The ultimate attitude in universities about students typically is they paid their fees so they get their Bs. Almost 90% of all undergraduate students get either an A or a B in their classes, even though C is supposed to be the average grade. Now, let me stop right here. That's a weird complaint on his part, because the reviews of him that he was very proud of and he was linking from his page, the reviews of him as a professor were pretty good, but most of them were good because his class was known to be very easy. Apparently, what he would mainly do in his class is just talk about Las Vegas and how much he loved Las Vegas and how much he knew about Las Vegas. He'd sit there telling Las Vegas stories, even though he didn't live in Vegas at the time. And he would give very easy tests because he wouldn't really teach that much. And people would ace the tests and there'd be a lot of people getting easy A's in his class. So it's funny how he's complaining that too many people get A's and B's when he had one of the easier classes on purpose and getting good reviews because he was so easy. And now he's complaining here that uh, they're giving easy A's and B's. A lot of hypocrisy here. He goes on, goes on to write, So mommy and daddy and student can all peacock and strut that they got above average grades and look up to the institution their entire lifetimes. So as to let it run wild unquestioned, maybe even donate to it more money. But universities and colleges do care about attracting even more students so they can be milked for ever more tuition and for a supposed societal purpose. A purpose that can be used as an excuse to eternally expand their self-serving cozy infrastructure, support, and salaries. Why would a department chair slash supervisor at a top 50 institution deserve a base pay of nearly 400000 a year? For what? For building a class schedule each semester and drafting a set of annual faculty performance reviews? Mostly for faculty who are already guaranteed lifetime jobs by tenure? And that work coming with a reduced teaching load? And research, almost all research in all but the hard sciences at the top 100 or so institutions is entirely worthless. If it actually contained any useful knowledge, someone, anyone besides other professors would try to read it and use it, but no one does. The real purpose of research is to act as nothing more than a complex maze slash game to run using highly obstructed rules by which faculty constantly strive to obtain the supposed highest quality and quantity of research, no matter by what scummy methods they use to obtain it in order to establish their place in the pecking order slash hierarchy in the universe of other faculty in their field. Most faculty really are not that smart. In reality, most of them are merely average or slight above average in intelligence. Higher education is not an abundance of intelligence. So he has some valid criticisms here. This is not totally off base. A lot of modern colleges are just mills to bring students in and collect their ever-increasing tuition. The price of tuition today, even at public colleges, compared to what I paid about 30 years ago, it's a tremendous difference. It's way, way, way outpaced inflation by several times, and it doesn't make sense. Like, why should it be so much more money to attend the same university I attended in the early 90s, inflation-adjusted? Why is that so much more? What's so much more expensive about providing those services that I received 30 plus years ago. 
It shouldn't be. It should be the same thing inflation adjusted, but it's not. So he's basically saying that this whole thing is a big sham. He's saying that people go there, the grades are inflated, the parents pay whatever they have to pay to get the kids in college to receive these inflated grades. So these inflated grades will then credentialize them to get jobs in society. And that when people leave these colleges with a great point average that's good and then get a good job, then they have a good feeling about the university they attended and then they perpetuate the cycle for their own kids. That's what he's saying here. He's saying here that uh, also the research they're doing there other than the hard sciences, is mostly useless. And it's mostly just for other professors to read and jerk each other off, and really nobody else makes use of it. And the whole thing's just a stupid game. So, you know, yes, he's oversimplifying it, and yes, he's being he overly critical. Great, sorry, Jeff, I had to chime in. He, he does have a lot of great points. Because, you know, and then when you get the Sally Mays and a lot of these corrupt loan companies that are... You know, that, that for kids that didn't have parents to pay for their education, when do these bad loans where they're just getting killed on? Yeah, and I mean, then, yeah. You know, and, there, and then and now the, the jobs, you can you can get, uh, you know, the same amount of education and, and maybe a, you know, six-month program in certain areas that are important. And it's like, I just think the whole thing's changing. And I can see there's a lot of, aggravation would be good i mean i did not hear all the stuff that you've been talking about with this guy but i just think a lot of this stuff is coming to a head in education yeah it is and so 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 these are valid criticisms now it doesn't make sense why he was trying to remain part of this whole structure <laughs> and is only mad that they wouldn't let him stay part of it so that's kind of hypocritical as is the whole right, but maybe he's trying to fix it from the inside uh, no i hear you no nah, he's just bitter but i mean but he but still you can be bitter and then actually at that point be telling the truth like once you're kicked out of it go you know what uh, this is a screwed up place anyway so now that i'm not part of it let me let me attack the true fault it has that seems to be what he was doing you know i understand these points and like, I don't want to get too much on a tangent here, but I remember when there was the discussion of just, you know, why don't we just make free tuition for everybody? We've got to make college more accessible to everybody. We've got to have more students in college. And I said, no, we don't. We need to have fewer students in college. We, we shouldn't have it inaccessible to those who qualify academically for it and can make use of it. So I'm not saying we should shut out the people who can't afford it. There should be a path to get there if you cannot afford it without taking absurd loans to be able to do it. But it's also true that it should not be something that most people go to just because that's the path. Because for a lot of people, it really isn't very useful for their life or even their career. So you can go into a whole tangent discussing that, but I I really feel that colleges have become too mandatory for a lot of types of jobs and positions that really shouldn't need it and that uh, at the same time they've gotten too expensive because of the whole student loan structure and the guaranteed tuition structure by the state where they'll uh, pay for public colleges and the, the whole thing is a vicious cycle where the price keeps going up and up and up and what the students are getting is actually less and less so there definitely needs to be a lot of reform in a lot of ways in these colleges And a lot of it also comes from the perception that people have of what a college degree means 
versus what not having a college degree means. So they, they, this really all needs to change in American society. And so he's right about a lot of that here. Trust the recruitment process is so broken at companies and, you know, for kids getting, getting out of college. Oh, hold on. What's broken is the sound quality here. I can hardly hear you. Sounds like a lot of background noise. Sorry. I'm walking my dog in a truck drove by. Is that better? Yeah. So, right? Because it's so, you know, it's so, and I, you know, part of what I, the work I do is coaching people on career shifts and some of the things they do. That's kind of been my background for many years. And just hearing the stories and the aggravation, and it's depressing, and people thinking they can just go around applying for jobs. Then they get the auto reply 48 hours later and just feel rejected. When in fact, the person that needed them at that company probably never saw their profile. You know, so it can just get depressing. And I'm sure that's what this guy kind of went through to bring him to this point. Yeah, and what, what he felt when he got to this point was that, and this probably was just paranoia, but he felt at this point that the people on the East Coast basically ruined his career, these people he wrote about and wrote to, that they ruined his career and this made it impossible for him to get work anywhere else. He didn't explicitly say that, but that seemed to be strongly implied. He also was strongly implying that they screwed him out of a tenure position that shouldn't even have required him to have to move to Nevada. See, it seems like his move to Nevada was a final stab at getting the final stages of his career restarted and getting a fresh start somewhere else, uh, albeit at the age of 67. And that when that failed, he felt helpless. Like He just felt like he's not going to get a job anywhere. And I believe what he did at that point was take it out on whatever faculty there was nearby, which happened to be UNLV, because he saw them all as the same. You even heard one of the things he wrote was about how yeah, colleagues are going to get theirs. Like you're going to be happy to know that the evil colleagues are going to get there. So, like he was referring to like that other people like him will get there. So I, I think he came to see all faculty as just evil, all but a few people. That the whole structure is terrible. That there's lots of evil people who screw over everybody else, and that basically that whole structure ruined his life and are ruining other people's lives. And that if he goes in and shoots up UNLV, he's probably shooting evil people anyway, which of course is crazy, but that was the way he saw it. And that's what I got from reading what he was writing there. So these people that he wrote to are very fortunate that he moved across the country for this attempted fresh start. Otherwise, instead of going to UNLV, he would have gone after these people he really had the problem with. And he even wrote to one of them, not directly saying that, but talking about how that person's lucky he left town. The reason he went to Nevada, aside from it just being far away from where he had the problems, was that he was obsessed with Las Vegas. He wrote on his own website that he probably has more knowledge about Las Vegas than any non-local, and that he visits Las Vegas all the time, even though he's not much of a gambler. So he just seemed to be obsessed with the city of Las Vegas, and even in his classes would constantly talk about his visits to Las Vegas. I don't know what he was doing when he was traveling across the country to go to Vegas and would barely gamble, but he was finding like a lot of stuff to do in Vegas that just didn't really revolve around gambling, and he really enjoyed it. So I think after he was having all of his troubles in the East, he decided that, well, let me try to restart. Let me try to come to Vegas, the place that I'm obsessed with anyway, 
and try to restart my life there. I'll get a professorship job there, and I'll get away from all these people I hate that ruined me over here. And yeah, I'm kind of old, but you know, maybe I can finish off my career over here and it won't be that terrible. And then everywhere is like reject, 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 reject. And who knows why? You know, it, it may not have anything to do with his past issues elsewhere, which I'm not even sure were visible or if anyone even could legally say. He may have just come off as weird and crazy. Because obviously, if he's to the point where he's going to go just bring a gun into UNLV and shoot randoms that he's never met before then obviously the guy has a number of screws loose. And it's very possible that in the interview process, they notice these screws loose. And they're like, okay, well, we have this guy in his late 60s coming in wanting to get a professorship job, and he seems crazy. Nope. That's probably what happened. They probably just rejected him because he seemed like a nut. And he was old. I'm guessing it was a combination of those things. Because, of course, if they hire him at 67, how long is he going to be there? I bet it was a combo of those two things. And then he just thought, okay, well, that's it. I've given him my last shot. He apparently was served with an eviction notice very shortly before committing the shooting. So he was probably broke, couldn't get a job, felt like his career was over, that what the people had done to his career on the East Coast has just ruined him. He has nothing to live for. So he might as well take it out on whoever is close by that's in the same field. That's another faculty member. He wants to shoot other faculty members in the nearest college and then expect to get shot dead. And he brought 11 clips with him to reload. That's a lot of bullets that he could have fired off. So I believe that the intention was to get shot dead. I also think that he was planning upon killing possibly more than 100 people. But I don't think students. He purposely did not go after the students. Because you can see in his rants, he never once criticizes the students. And in fact, on his webpage, he posts links to glowing reviews that his students gave him. So he basically had an easy class where he constantly just bragged about his trips to Las Vegas, gave easy tests, gave good grades... People liked him for that reason because he had an easy class. A few people complained the class was too easy and they didn't learn much, but for the most part, the students were just happy to have a cakewalk of a class. So I think he wasn't bitter towards students. I think he was bitter towards the administration and the faculty. So when he walked into that school, he didn't just want to target random people. He wanted to target randoms who worked in a department that he felt was evil. So it was basically the... the administrative structure and the faculty structure that he was mad at, not the students at all. So he really targeted a specific demographic in these schools, which is different than a lot of these other shooters that you see at schools who just go in and start firing, just want to kill random people, whoever. They don't care if they kill students, teachers, they, they don't care. They just start firing. They just want to kill. This guy didn't just want to kill. He wanted to kill a specific type of person that he felt was evil he felt was representative of those who ruined his life. And that's what he did. And it's it's obviously very sick, and these people who died didn't deserve to die, and they seemed to be f- decent people. And they had nothing to do with his problems. They didn't even know him. So imagine you're just a faculty member at UNLV, and just some guy walks in and shoots you dead. 
You're like, uh, like I wonder how long these people lived before they died. But you had to think, what did I do to this guy? Like, it's just a random shooter. I'm sure they, you know, they, of course they didn't know his background, so they just thought this is just some random shooter shooting up the place. They, of all things, this is someone who's mad at college faculty and administration in general and just wants to kill others in that field. And they happen to be the unlucky ones that he lives close to. So that's what happened here. Sometimes when these shootings happen, they will go into the place they're mad at, but then they'll just start shooting randoms. Like an example is the Thousand Oaks borderline bar shooting five years ago, where the shooter had been thrown out of the bar and was very mad at the staff there for throwing him out. So that's what he decided to shoot up. However, he didn't just go there to shoot dead the person who threw him out or the management. He just went in there and started firing, and he killed a number of of patrons, including college students who were just there. So, of course, he shouldn't have shot at anybody. But this guy targeted that place because he was mad at that place, but also didn't care who he killed there. But notice he didn't go to a school or something like that. He specifically went to the place that pissed him off, that, that threw him out. And then he just started killing randoms. So this guy was a little more controlled than that. This guy wasn't just killing randoms at at a college. He was killing a certain type of person at the college. So it's weird how these people's minds work. He didn't go after the specific people that he felt were responsible for his downfall. This was just going after people that represented that type of person. So that's what's happened here. It's it's very obvious from reading. I, I just read you a few of them, but if you read from that PDF of the letters, and you can find a link to it on the Poker Fraud Alert thread. It's called Breaking UNLV Shooting Multiple Victims Reported Suspect Dead, Please Say. It was started by uh, Desert Runner. And you'll see I posted a link to the PDF of these letters. And you'll see the guy's very unhinged, and he seems like a complete nutcase when you're reading it. You can see how angry he is at the administrative and faculty structure at the schools where he worked. And he really felt like he worked very hard on getting this PhD and had his career ruined by these people and was denied tenure. So that's what this is about, as strange as it sounds. I know there's talk about gun control because of things like this, but really, unless just nobody has guns, which is impossible at this point, this still would have happened. This guy was not someone who had a long criminal record. Strangely enough, the only thing he was ever arrested for was 31 years ago for computer hacking, of all things. He was very into computers, too. You could see that on his webpage. So he was arrested for some kind of computer hacking 31 years ago, but nothing violent, and that was his one arrest. So this was a guy who would easily be entitled to have a gun, and wouldn't be questioned. It's not like this is some crazy person you could have prevented having a gun. So there really wasn't much that could have been done to prevent this. So they really shouldn't be having the gun discussion around this. And a lot of politicians jumped on this to claim that there needs to be gun control over this. And, and this wasn't even a matter of him using some kind of higher-powered weaponry. He used a handgun. He had a lot of clips on him to reload that he never ended up using. But what are you going to do? Are you going to stop people from buying extra clips? Or, and when there's talk of semi-automatic weapons, they're not talking about things like machine guns. They're talking about anything where you can fire a second time by pulling the trigger without doing anything besides just pulling the trigger. Well, if, if you're going to make that illegal, then you have to make a lot of handguns illegal, including the one I have. 
So that's not a good idea. If you want to defend yourself, you need to be able to fire multiple rounds and then not keep uh, manipulating the gun to have to load another bullet in there. That's just not practical. So uh, I, I don't agree with a lot of these uh, proposed gun control measures. And I, I think this is just something for the politicians to get airtime to make it look like they care. So obviously very tragic situation at UNLV, and I feel for the people who were affected by this. And it's really awful, you know, you're just there at work and going through a normal day and some psycho walks in and shoots you. I mean, that's, that's just terrible. But he just got so angry that he felt these people ruined his life. He just wanted to kill anybody who reminded him of them. That's basically what happened. Finally, I'm going to talk about another workplace and an incident at a workplace, but fortunately it didn't involve any violence. Though actually it could have. Not gun violence, but could have had violence. I want to talk about an incident I had at a Target store. I posted about it on the forum already, but I want to tell you guys on the radio about this. And this is going to be... Oh yes, Ruffy Time Theater. You know, the way this used to work is you would explain what this is about after this intro. But you've ruined it. You, you start off with, um, oh, I'm going to tell you about my time at Target. And oh yes, it's Ruffy Time Theater. And Colonel Fabersham, go ahead and introduce it. How about you bloody introduce the whole thing after I've done my part, but you've even ruined that for me. Now, what am I supposed to say now? I, I don't even know. On with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. I'm sorry I didn't let you do your thing first. I'm, I didn't think of it. Sorry. I was just eager to get this done and end the show. It's been a very long show. Sometimes you can be at a business and everything can just be normal and very mundane and just very routine. And then it can turn into something much worse. It can escalate very quickly. Even if you don't want it to escalate. If you're not looking for escalation. So that's what happened to me here. So let me tell you about this weird experience. Now, before I get into the whole thing, I need to give you some background. Target has a thing on their app called Target Circle, and it's very confusing and it does not work well. It's a discount program, and it's basically they're offering some kind of special deals on certain products each week, and you have to enable them. You have to click on them in the app and enable these circle deals, and once you've done that, if you then buy the item, and sometimes you have to buy a certain number of the items or buy certain things together... Some things are very easy. You just get you know this much off this item. Other things are a pain in the ass where you have to buy a bunch of things together. Or, uh, jump to too many hoops I would never do. But the stuff where you just get free money back for buying things you're going to buy anyway, yeah, why not? And it's very easy. It's not like clipping coupons, which is a pain in the ass, and I never do, and I never have done. I'm talking about just going on an app and looking at the circle deals and seeing what I'm going to buy anyway and clicking to add these deals to my account. And then what's supposed to happen is then when you bring these items to the front, you enter your phone number associated with your Target account, and it automatically will see what circle deals that you have selected, and if they match the items you're buying, then you get the discounts. That's how it's supposed to work. 
Alternately, if you don't enter the phone number, you can bring up this barcode they can scan, but either one works. You don't have to use the phone number, you don't have to use the barcode, you just have to use one of those two to enable the circle discounts that you have clicked on. So you, got, you got to identify who you are, basically. And I've been doing this for a while now, and one problem that the Target stores have been grappling with is that just the system doesn't work right. That a lot of times you'll see the circle thing on the app, you'll do everything right, and it just won't give you the discount. This doesn't just happen to me, this happens to everybody, and this has been a big thorn in the side of the Target stores to the point where at this particular Target store where I went, which is not very close to where I live, but I, I happen to be over there. I won't go into why, but I, I happen to be over there. But I'm telling you this because I didn't have a history with anyone there. It just s snowballed from something very simple, as you're going to hear. But the manager of that store, as I found out later, had actually instructed everybody who worked there that if a Target Circle deal doesn't take when going through the register, every cashier was instructed just to put it through and not to ask any questions because it's just is such a buggy system. And that was the directive that's been given to everybody for at least several months now. I didn't even know this, but I did notice when the circle things would have an issue that they were very cooperative and easy about it at every target I went to. So that's probably why. It's a pain in the ass catching that the thing didn't take, but once I did, they'd fix it very quickly without arguing with me. So I went through the line and I had them you know, run all my items and I entered my phone number. I did everything right. I saw some circle deals take, which meant that I entered this right, you know, because if I didn't enter the right phone number or didn't do something right, then the circle deals wouldn't take at all. So I saw some going through, but there was one thing where I bought four of them for $3 off each in the circle deal that did not go through. So it was a matter of $12 that I was charged $12 plus tax too much because the $3 off each of these items, which I bought four of, just was not given to me because of an error in their system. So I pointed it out to the cashier. The cashier was a young woman, probably around 20 years old or something, and she was nice and she was trying to fix it, but she was very new there and she was having a hard time with fixing it. She was trying, but she was hitting the wrong buttons and had to back out her mistakes and it was taking a little while. In the meantime, a line was starting to back up behind me, which I... I felt bad about, but, you know, this wasn't my problem. I just wanted the price that I was quoted through the app. I just, I wasn't looking for any extras. I wasn't looking for any special treatment. I just wanted the price that they were quoting for these items. And I was charged too much because the circle discount wasn't working. And she was very close to getting it right and fixing it. She was seconds away from hitting the button to fix it for that $12 and just before she hit it, like seconds away from hitting it, another employee showed up. A male employee is about 30 years old. And this employee asked, is there a problem? And she explained that the circle discount's not working and she's trying to fix it for me. But then she did it wrong at first and she just backed it out and she's about to finish. And all he kind of heard was like she's having trouble and he knows she's a new employee there. So he said, let me take care of this which kind of annoyed me a little bit because she was just about to be done. And now he's making me start over. But he said, let me take care of this. He was clearly more senior than her, clearly had more power there than she did. And he moved me to another register. Like he 
opened up a new register and just moved me there. Which they can do pretty easily because they can print out a little slip to basically move the entire thing over there so they don't have to rescan and every, everything. Now, I didn't have to physically move over my stuff, but I didn't have to have them scan everything all over again. So, I didn't love this, but I didn't object to it. Like, I understood that he didn't realize she was like a hair away from fixing it. So, whatever. So, we're walking over to the other register, and he says to me, So, all you need is to have your barcode scanned from the app, and that'll fix this. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't need to scan the barcode. I entered my phone number. He says, phone number? No, that doesn't work. The phone number is only to give you points for your purchase, but it doesn't enable the circle. And I said, no, no, it does. You can look. You'll see other circle discounts I got, and if it wasn't enabled, I wouldn't get any of them. So the fact that I even got one circle discount on anything shows that it went through. And he says, no, you need to do the barcode. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what is this guy's problem? Like, why can't he just fix it like everybody else does? It's it's one thing if he wants to get me out of the line so the line can move again. That I'm okay with. That's why I was willing to do it. And I didn't object. But what's all this crap about the barcode? Like, I know I entered it right. I know I entered the right phone number. And it was giving me other circle discounts. So obviously it took. So what's he talking about? So he kept obsessing over the barcode. So we get to that register. And he asked me again, bring up the barcode. So I bring up the barcode and ask me for a password. Now, the reason it asked me for a password is because the barcode can do one other thing. is It can allow you to pay for the item through your credit card that you've linked to the app. And obviously, there needs to be a higher level of security to bring that up. So in case someone finds my phone, they can't just go there and buy a bunch of shit from Target using my credit card through the Target app. So it asks you to enter the password to basically verify this is really you. Whereas the rest of the Target app, it doesn't do that because there's no other way to pay through that app other than if you're using the barcode. So I didn't remember the password. Was it because I'm careless? No. It's because I had no use for that password on a daily basis. Because I don't need that barcode to pay. I bring a physical credit card to pay there. So I just have no use for that barcode. I enter the phone number to enter the circle stuff. And I bring my own credit card to pay. So I don't need that barcode to pay. I don't need the barcode for anything. So I just never need to bring it up. However, there were two times in the past, in the past year or so, that I have had to bring it up. And that's twice in the past I've shown up to Target without my credit card. These were both after I did a hike and I just didn't bring stuff with me. And then I went to Target afterwards to pick some things up. And I go, oh, crap, I have none of my stuff with me to, to pay for anything. So I'm like, oh, crap, how can I pay this? I, I barely have any cash. I probably have like the 10 bucks in my pocket. I'm like, how am I going to pay for this? And then I try to bring up that damn barcode. For, I don't have the password. And then I try to reset the password. And I stand and wait and wait and wait. And it never comes. I finally have to just walk out because I don't have anything with me to, to pay. And uh, it's frustrating. It happened to me twice. The reason I'm telling you this I don't blame anyone for that but myself because I just forgot to bring the credit card or, or enough cash. But the reason I'm telling you this is when I tried to reset my password, it did not work. And then when I get home, like 45 minutes later, the password would show up, of course, which uh, doesn't help me at that point. So the point is from two times in the past year that I needed that barcode to actually pay and I tried to reset the password, the password reset link didn't come until after I was back home at which point I didn't need it anymore. So I knew that that was not a quick thing to come up anyway. So the guy tells me, bring up the barcode. I said, I can't. It's asking for the password. I don't know the password. He says, well, reset the password. 
I said, no, I can't do that because I've tried that twice before and it takes like 45 minutes to get. So it's not going to work. And besides, we don't need this barcode anyway. I already entered the phone number. He says, no, no, you need to bring up the barcode. I said, but I just told you I can't bring up the barcode because it's asking for a password I don't have. He says, yes, reset the password. I said, no, I just told you it's, it's going to take a very long time. It took 45 minutes twice. He says, that's okay. I have all day. <laughs> now, that's a nasty thing to say. He has all day? Well, I don't have all day. I don't want to stand around forever waiting for that dumb password to come, which I don't even need. It's not like this is the only way to solve it. And he wants me to try to reset it to see if maybe I'll get it fast. This was not going to help anything, and I knew it. Because the barcode was going to accomplish the same thing as the phone number did. And he just wasn't getting that. Which surprised me, because I'd seen him around when I'd gone to that Target in the past. Like, I didn't go to this often because it's not close to me. But I'd seen him around before. I never had him as a cashier, but I'd seen him around. So he wasn't like a new employee there. I'm like, how does he not know this? How does he not know that the phone number is just as good as the barcode as far as enabling these discounts? So he was obsessed with this barcode. And then when I tell him it takes a long time to reset the password, he says, that's okay, I have all day. That's a nasty thing to say to the customer. Because that shows he has no value for my time. I have all day. So I'm supposed to stand there for 45 minutes while I wait for it to come? Why doesn't he just fix the damn price? Like everybody else does. Well, the reason is because it was a battle of egos. He just decided for, I don't know what reason, that the barcode was the grand fix of this whole thing. That that was the way to fix it. He was wrong. I knew he was wrong. But this was the way to fix it. And even though he'd been instructed by the manager to fix any circle errors, he decided he's going to compel me to use this barcode because he thinks that's what's wrong and he's going to make me fix it this way instead of the way he was told to by the manager. He was not a new employee there. He'd been there a long time. He was very aware of the instructions. He just decided to go off the script and force me to do this barcode, which he really did believe was the solution, but it wasn't the solution, and I knew it, and he was violating store policy by compelling me to do this even if it were the solution, which it was not. So I said to him again, I don't have the time to wait here. I even have a few cold things in my cart. Can you please just fix the price to match what the circle discount's supposed to be? He said, I'm trying to. Bring up the barcode. And I said, but I can't bring up the barcode because of the password. He says, I know. Reset the password. <laughs> I'm getting real frustrated. We're going around and around in circles. I said, I can't reset the password because it takes a very long time to come. Well, just try it. Try it right now, he says to me. I said, can you just fix it? This isn't going to do any good. And I don't want to go through this exercise. There's no point. It's not going to fix it. And I know it's going to take 45 minutes because that's what it's taken the last few times I tried it. Why are you making me do this? He says, I'm not. I'm not making you do it. I'm trying to help you. I said, you're not trying to help me. You won't help me here. Why won't you help me? I just want you to fix the price. He says, I am trying to help you. So bring up the barcode and reset the password. <laughs> this is an endless loop. Every time I asked, why won't you help me? He just kept saying, I am. Bring up the barcode. So I could tell this was a passive aggressive way to screw with me because he was mad that I wasn't following his instructions. It all started when 
He tried to tell me that the barcode is the solution. I told him I don't need that because of the phone number. And at that point, he decided he's going to make it his mission for me to bring up that damn barcode because he wants me to. And if I won't, he's going to be stubborn and not help me, which, again, is completely against store policy. Completely. I found this out later, which I'll get to. I knew everybody else at every Target I'd been to would just fix the circle errors without question. He was the only one being a dick about it and digging his heels in until I bring up this barcode, which isn't even necessary. So it was just a matter of punishing me because I wouldn't do it his way, which he's not allowed to do there. So I said, look, I'm starting to get really frustrated here. I just need you to fix this price. I'll show you right here. I click this offer here in the circle in the app. I showed him that. See the price? See the price I was charged? See, it's $3 difference per item for a total of $12. Can you please just take off $12? You see it all right here. You see I was supposed to get the discount. You see I didn't get the discount. Can you please just fix it and not worry about any of this other stuff? And he said, sure, just bring up the barcode. (laughs) And then a big smile came across his face and he started laughing at me. Not like, ha, 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 but you know, kind of like a giggling type of laughter. Like he thought this was funny. He's watching me get frustrated, and he couldn't help but laugh at that point. Now I'm getting real pissed. So I said, why are you laughing? Is this funny? Is something comical here? You're really frustrating me. You're not fixing the problem. You're purposely not fixing the problem. Why is this funny? What do you th- find funny about this whole thing? Well, before he could answer, I hear a voice behind me. The voice behind me says, he's probably laughing when he's seeing my reaction to you. And I turn around, and it is a trashy-looking, middle-aged guy, probably a few years younger than me, but fairly close to my age. And he has decided that this is going to be his moment to play hero. Because he's probably seen one too many Karen bothers the employee videos on Facebook. You know, when you see some awful, usually a woman, sometimes it's a man, but usually it's a woman, berating innocent, helpful employees who are just trying to do their jobs and just being the worst possible customer you can imagine and unreasonable, won't follow any kind of logic, just being a horrible, horrible human being to nice people who are just trying to do their jobs. And you see these videos on Facebook and on Twitter And you think to yourself, wow, what an asshole. Wow, I wish that person would get theirs. Wow, I wish this employee would really tell them off, but I know they can't. Wow, I feel bad for this employee. They're just trying to help. So the problem is this has induced a reflex in some people that whenever there is any kind of altercation or argument between customer and employee, they assume employee must be right. Customers must be asshole. That's the way they default because of seeing all these videos. Now, admittedly, in the videos I've seen on Facebook and Twitter, the customer really is awful. The customer really is in the wrong, and it's very clear. And there are some very awful and unreasonable customers who just won't listen to logic and are terrible to those trying to help them and trying to be very polite. But that's not what was going on here. This guy wasn't trying to help me. In fact, he was violating store policy by not helping me. He was trying to refuse to help me. In fact, not to try. He was refusing to help me. Unless I went through these pointless exercises that he was trying to put me through with resetting my password, which I told him will take a long time, because he wants me to do it his way. And if I don't, he's going to punish me. And that's not his right to do. It's not his store. 
He's an employee at a store, and he was told by his manager, as was every other employee, that if there's a circle issue, just put it through. But he decided he's going to punish me because he gave me a suggestion to fix it. I didn't like the suggestion because I was right, and he's going to punish me. So that's not the employee being right. The customer has a right to be annoyed with that. Now, I have to respond in an appropriate manner. I shouldn't be cursing him, which I didn't. I shouldn't be yelling, which I wasn't. I shouldn't be breaking anything or throwing anything or slamming my fist. I wasn't doing any of that stuff. So, like, yes, you can overreact. And even if the employee's in the wrong, then you're still in the wrong with how you're reacting, obviously. But I wasn't doing any of that. I just was refusing to jump through the hoops he wanted me to because he was turning it into a battle of egos and not helping me as, as he was supposed to. And as I knew he was supposed to. And also his solution didn't make any sense and wasn't going to work. If what he was suggesting was actually going to work, maybe I would have tried to reset the password and given it like a minute before giving up. But I wasn't going to try it because I knew that wasn't the solution. It was just going to be a waste of time. And it wasn't going to come. But all this customer could see was the employee is telling me to reset the password and that'll fix this. And I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do it. So who looks like the jerk? Who would the customer think is probably in the wrong here? The employee who he would assume knows the system better than the customer? The employee's telling me, just reset the password on the barcode and bring up the barcode after you've reset the password and it'll fix the whole thing? Or the customer saying, no, I won't do it. Who looks like the jerk here to someone who doesn't know better? Well, obviously, the customer looks like the jerk. It looks like I'm being stubborn. I'm refusing to follow instructions. And I'm getting mad when he won't do anything else to help me when I won't follow what he's telling me to do. So I look like a jerk here because, of course, this guy didn't understand what was really happening. I tried briefly to explain to this guy, without going into the whole story, I tried briefly to explain that the circle thing is having issues and that I just want him to fix it. And this guy didn't want to hear it. This guy says back to me, yeah, you got to talk to these people with more respect. You're showing no respect to this guy. And you've got to learn to talk to these people in a more respectful fashion. And I'm not going to let you talk to them like that, he says to me. So at that point, I'm like, you know, screw this guy. This, he doesn't want to understand. I tried to explain to him briefly what was going on. All I'm getting is this lecture about respect, which is stupid. So I just said, look, this is really none of your business. I already explained what's happening, but out of it. So as I'm walking back to the cash register, the guy says to me, and the guy meaning the customer, he shouts at me, yeah, fuck off. Well, I had to decide what to do at that point. Should I just ignore him? Well, I thought of ignoring him, but I didn't ignore him. I said back, no, how about you fuck off? Fuck off! So this enraged the guy, because I think he believed he was intimidating me or something. He didn't expect me to say that back to him. So the guy runs up, gets in my face, and says, You don't know who you're fucking with! You don't, you don't know! You, you don't know who you're fucking with! You're, you have no idea what I'm capable of! And I'm like, what the fuck is this guy's problem? <laughs> I don't know who I'm fucking with. I don't know what he's capable of. Like, at the same time, I'm looking down. He's shorter than me. I'm looking down, and I'm seeing he's wearing kind of a baggy jacket. And that did make me a little bit nervous, because like, I don't know what's in the jacket. What if he's got a knife? What if he's got a gun? Who knows if this guy's a psycho? Like, I, I know nothing about him. I just know he's 
very emotionally involved in this now and is furious that I just told him, no, you fuck off. Anyway, he got right in my face and uh, I wasn't sure what he was going to do when he's telling me, you don't know what I'm capable of. But whatever, you know, I was still wasn't going to back down. So again, I said, look, this just isn't your business. You don't understand what's happening over here. You don't understand what's going on. You don't see that this guy's refusing to help me. And I'm trying every way to get helped. So I don't know why I tried to reason with him again, but he, of course, the guy said, I heard everything and you're just being disrespectful. And he, he didn't hear everything, or otherwise he wouldn't be taking this line. I don't know at what point he showed up, but uh, he clearly didn't hear everything. He probably just heard parts of it and believed I was just being stubborn. So I asked for the manager at this point, which I was about to anyway. I was about to write when the laughter started and then I had that customer interfere, but I was done with this customer. I wasn't going to keep engaging him. So I asked for the manager. The cashier says, okay, and picks up the little uh, microphone to call for a manager. And then he starts to walk towards this like employee only area on the side of the store. So he starts to walk that direction, but he passes by that other customer who had been harassing me. And he says to that customer, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And the customer says back, yeah, well, you know, he shouldn't be talking to you that way. And I want to make sure that he knows he can't get away with that. And the cashier says again to him, no, really, thank you very much. And pats him on the shoulder. Now, that was the worst part of this whole thing. That was by far the worst part of this whole thing. Target can't control if there's going to be asshole customers there who interfere in issues between the cashier and another customer. Like, they can't control who shops there and who's going to misbehave. You can't blame them for that. You can't blame any of their employees for that. And it's even reasonable that their employees don't get in the middle of a customer versus customer argument. But when one customer is harassing another, when one jumps in the face of another customer and says, you better not fuck with me, you don't know what I'm capable of, and gets right in the guy's face, and previously told the guy to fuck off, and previously said he's going to teach him how to show respect, to thank that customer for doing that when you're an employee there, just because you don't like the first customer, is a huge, huge no-no. You can't do that at any company. You cannot go to a customer harassing another customer and thank him for it. doesn't matter how you feel about the first customer. Now, if the first customer is committing some crime and he's stopped by the second customer, that's a different story. But I'm talking about where it's just the cashier and the customer are having an argument and a second customer comes in and starts harassing the first customer. You cannot go to the second customer and thank him for this. That's really, really bad in any form of business. That's never allowed. And if you think that's allowed, then you don't understand how business works. That's just absolutely a huge, huge no-no that you never encourage one customer to harass another. You never thank a customer for harassing another. Unless, again, it's an extreme circumstance. If it's a customer causing a major disruption, if it's a customer committing some crime, then you thank him. But if it's just an argument between a cashier and a customer, that cashier should never thank a second customer who starts to harass and threaten the first customer. Never. Absolutely never. I was very shocked by that, but I didn't want to say anything about that. Because at this point, I knew I'm going to be going to the store manager and reporting this whole thing. I had a feeling at that time of night, it was like 6.45 p.m., I had a feeling at that time of night that the actual store manager was not there, and I was correct. But if they weren't, then I was going to 
find them the next day during business hours and report it. And I didn't want to tip off this cashier that that was going to be the main thing I report, the thanking of the guy. So I didn't say anything. And at that point, I just stood there and waited for the manager to arrive. So after thanking the second guy, after thanking the uh, psychotic customer they were getting in my face, then the cashier walked over to that employee area and disappeared for a little time. So it was just me and that other customer sitting there. Now, surprisingly, for the moment, things didn't escalate from there. Surprisingly, I stayed in my spot right in front of the cash register. The customer who had been bothering me stayed in his spot, you know, maybe 10 feet away. We kind of just sat there glaring at each other and didn't say a word. And I was fine with that. I didn't want to have further altercation with this crazy person. I noticed he was hanging around and I'd heard him saying something to the employee when he was thanked about how he's going to now stay around and tell the manager I was at fault. So I'm like, I don't want to give this asshole the satisfaction of this. So the quote manager arrived who didn't look like a real manager. It was like a young woman with like blue hair. I just didn't see her as like a real manager. I thought she was just like the night manager or the assistant assistant manager or something like that. But as soon as she got there, I said to her, you know, there's this guy over there. He's trying to interfere in this whole thing. And, uh, you know, he's been very harassing and threatening towards me. Can you please just not talk to him? <laughs> like, can you not let him get involved in this? Because it has nothing to do with him. So before she could really process this, the guy charged forward and started ranting about me to this manager. And then again... I told him this is none of his business and he needs to stay out of it. Well, for some reason, that really set him off this time. And again, he jumped right in my face. And this time he was shaking. His whole body was shaking. His face was shaking. His body was shaking. His teeth were clenched. And he's telling me through his clenched teeth, you need to learn some respect. And someone's got to teach you some respect. You've got to show respect to these people. And someone's got to make you show that respect. And I I was ready for him to throw a punch. Because the shaking wasn't going on the first time. The first time, it looked like he was trying to intimidate. Even when I told him to fuck off, when he told me to fuck off, it looked like he was trying to posture and make himself look scary. But he wasn't, like, in full psycho mode. But now he was actually shaking. And to me, what the shaking meant was he's trying to hold himself back from throwing a punch at me or maybe do something worse you know maybe he's got a weapon on him who knows but he's trying to hold himself back to do whatever he wants to do but then part of him is like not wanting to do it and get in trouble like go to jail or whatever so like he's he's just on the verge of doing something it was very clear by the shaking and by the talking through the clenched teeth i didn't think it was an act either because of the shaking like this he didn't want me to see him shaking but the shaking wasn't like shaking in fear. It was like shaking in anger. So I was getting all ready to just throw down with him if he's going to throw a punch at me. I wasn't going to punch him, but if he's going to punch me, then I was all ready to punch back. And I couldn't believe I'm in this spot here. Then I tried to again say to the guy, I've shown respect to everybody here. The only one I haven't shown respect to is this one cashier who hasn't shown me respect. And I show respect to those who show me respect. And he wasn't doing that. He was refusing to help me and he was laughing at me. That's the reason that I haven't been all that respectful to him. But everybody else, I said, you can ask other cashier right over here, uh, talking about that young girl that I first dealt with. 
I was very respectful to her. I've been respectful to everybody here except for this guy who doesn't deserve it. I don't know why I gave that whole speech to him, but I don't know. Maybe I was trying to de-escalate a little bit because this guy seemed crazy. So then a surprising thing happened. I don't think the guy believed me, but he kind of decided he was done. He just said to me, I don't want to hear your bullshit and turned around and walked out of the store. (laughs) Kind of a weird ending to that part of it. Like, I didn't expect him to just disappear that easily. At one point before that, he was even telling me to step outside with him. And, uh, like, it was weird that this would be the way it ended. That it went from, like, the shaking, just about to throw a punch thing to, he, like, interrupted me and said, I don't want to hear your bullshit. And turns around and just walks out. So that was the last I saw of him. He was just gone. So, okay. So then I said to the acting manager, I said, well, this is exactly why I was hoping you weren't going to talk to this guy. But, all right, you know, I know he just ran up. You couldn't control that. So... Can we just please fix the matter of my order here? So she said, what's the problem? So I explained it to her. She says, oh, well, that's a really easy fix. And she hits a few buttons, and it was fixed. And she says, there, that's what you want, right? I said, yeah. She said, oh, yeah, that was very easy. I said, yeah, it was easy. I said, so why couldn't this last guy do it? I said, you don't know what the hell he put me through with with telling me to bring up a barcode and reset passwords and refusing to help me. And he dug his heels in and he's just telling me over and over and over if I won't reset the password on this barcode, which takes like 45 minutes to do, he's not going to help me. She says, yeah, he shouldn't have done that. He should have just fixed it. I said, exactly. So (laughs) I'm glad you agree with me and thank you for fixing it. But uh, uh, tell me, what is your position with the store? And she said, oh, I'm a team shift leader. I said, okay, well, then, so I didn't say this out loud, but I thought to myself, that's what I was expecting. So I said, okay, well, is there an actual manager in the store right now? She says, no, I'm the acting manager right now. There's no store manager here present. I said, okay, that's fine. I know it's uh, in the evening. So how do I contact the store manager? So then she pulls out the receipt and says, okay, look at the bottom of this receipt. See that uh, phone number and this uh, survey code? Uh, Call that up and take this survey. (laughs) and i said no no no, i don't think you understand i'm not looking to take a survey about my experience at target i'm looking to report this particular incident to the store manager of this exact location i don't want to speak to a national center or do surveys i said that more politely than that but that was uh, that was the message i got across so she said back oh well yeah, that's how you report it, but uh, I said, well, no, I'd really like to speak to just whoever the store manager is, so how do I reach them? She said, oh, um, I don't really know. I said, you don't know how to reach the store manager? She said, no, if I, I, I don't know how you'd reach the store manager. I said, so there's no way I can just reach him? There's no way to get a hold of him? I mean, you must know who it is and how to get a hold of him. She said, no, I, I don't really know how to do that. So this just sounded like bullshit to me. This now sounded like that she was trying to protect this cashier. Also, she kept telling me over and over, don't worry, I'll tell the manager about what happened. So she kept wanting to be the one to report it. She wanted to be the one to give the message for me rather than have me say it myself and contact the manager myself. So this really looked like she was trying to cover up. Now, I didn't accuse her of it because, you know, she did help me. She did agree that the cashier was inappropriate that he should have just fixed it, that it was a very easy fix. She told me all that. And she was nice. But the whole thing about not knowing how to reach the store manager was bizarre. So I said, well, what if I call the main number of this target, 
between like 8 and 5 p.m. tomorrow and then ask for the store manager. Is that a way to reach him? She's like, um, yeah, that might work. (laughs) I said, okay, I'll do that. So I left. Next day, I got a hold of the store manager on the phone and I told him the story. And at first, the call was going very well. Number one, he agreed with me that only the phone number is necessary to get those circle discounts, that the barcode's not necessary. He didn't understand why this guy kept insisting that. He also told me that the Target circle stuff fails all the time, that it's a big problem for this store, that he's made it very clear to every single cashier that they're just to put it through and not question the customer. He said he's very surprised this guy put me through that whole thing and that the guy's been there a long time and should know better. He doesn't understand why this happened, but he believes me this happened. Then he also said that me not having the password, even though I didn't really need the password here and it was useless, that that's also reasonable. And he said, hey, you know what? I actually don't know my own password. I I couldn't enter my own password right now in the Target app and I'm the store manager. He also agreed that this guy thanking that customer harassing me was very against store policy. And he also was quite interested in the whole thing that happened with that shift leader not giving me a way to contact him. He said, that's really strange. He knows exactly how to get a hold of me. And that doesn't make sense to me why she wouldn't give that to you. And I said, well, to me, it kind of seems like she's covering it up. I said, she was very nice during the whole thing. And she helped me out and got the discount through. But it does kind of seem like she was trying to prevent me from speaking to you. And he said, yeah, it seems like that to me too, because she knows exactly how to reach me. And for her to tell you to take surveys and that she doesn't know how to find me is very bizarre. And I'm going to find that out too. So it sounded very good. So I said, okay, well, so uh, what's going to happen next? And he said, well, I'm going to look into all this and uh, provided what you say is true, which I believe it is, I'm going to give that cashier some coaching. I wasn't doing this to get this guy coaching. If he wants coaching, he can go to one of Phil Galfon's masterminds. I was looking to see this guy get disciplined or fired because of thanking that customer. Had it not been for the thanking the customer, I wouldn't have tried to get him fired. I probably wouldn't have even gone to the store manager, even with all the guys being difficult with me. But thanking that psycho who was harassing me was so just out of line that is something you should be fired for. You just absolutely should never, ever do that in a retail or other business environment. It's just a huge no-no. You don't do that. That's just extremely offensive to do to the customer, to thank another customer harassing them. So coaching wasn't what I was looking for. So, of course, you know, I can't lecture the manager how to do his job, and I'm looking for his cooperation. But I was unhappy with that coaching statement. So I politely said to the manager, I said, you know what, to be honest, everything except for him thanking that customer was kind of just, you know, mundane employee doesn't handle something right sort of thing. Like this, everything up till that, it wasn't good and the guy mishandled it and the guy was being needlessly stubborn and also was wrong, but... Yeah, this is kind of a more run-of-the-mill situation where an employee thinks he has the solution, actually doesn't, and then gets mad that the customer won't follow his direction. Like, that's not good, but it's not uh, anything unusual. But what really gets me here, a day later still thinking about this, is the fact that he thanked this guy who's getting in my face and threatening me. That should be something that's really a big deal. 
And the manager said to me, and sounded very sincere, he said, you know what, you're right. That should be the focus of this investigation. That is a big deal. He said, so I am going to be centering the investigation around that. And I asked, do you have any cameras there? I assume you do. He said, yes, we do. We have cameras. And I'm going to have all that pulled. I'm going to have security pull up all the footage. I'm going to watch the footage. I'm going to interview people who were around when this happened. And I'm going to interview him. And I'm going to get to the bottom of everything. And I'm also going to talk to the shift leader and see why she was not giving you my info. So I will get back to you, he said. So he didn't get back to me. But we were coming into like the Thanksgiving holiday. So I figured they were very busy that week and maybe he wasn't working every day. So I gave him a little time. I didn't hassle him. So it wasn't urgent. So then I I heard from him the Monday of that following week. So it took about a week for him to look into this whole thing. But I heard from him and he started off with, I want to start off by giving you our sincerest apologies. This was messed up big time. A lot of things were done wrong. A lot of store policies were violated. So I asked, okay, well, my first question is, did he admit that he thanked that other customer who was harassing me? And he said, yes. I took this to HR. And in fact, that's what I took to them. I took to them that he did this and that he admitted to having done it. And that HR had a meeting with him. You know, the, the store manager, the employee, and HR had a meeting where he was basically raked through the coals over this. And he was put on about the most severe probation you can have, which they didn't have to tell me, but he told me that he was put on basically like a final chance probation. And it wasn't that he had messed up before, at least I don't think so. It was that this was so severe that they almost fired him for it, but they decided to give him one last chance that if there's any kind of screw up, big or small, he's gone. And that's what the manager told me. He said, if anything further happens with this guy, with you or with anybody else, something big like this or something very small, anything that happens with him, he's not going to be working here anymore. And he knows that and he's acknowledged that. So sometimes managers will lie to you and just tell you what you want to hear so you get off their back. But I could tell I was being told the truth, especially with this whole detailed HR story, because I had no idea HR was going to get involved. I, I would only imagine HR would get involved if the person got fired. I didn't think that the manager disciplining the employee would involve HR. So there would be no point for him to tell me this whole HR thing if he's just trying to tell me bullshit to make me go away. But he told me this whole thing about HR, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing to you guys. It was actually a longer conversation than that. And I asked him, did he say why he put me through all this in the first place? What was the whole reason for making me do this barcode? Why wasn't he just changing it if you told everybody here that they're supposed to do that? Why was he so stubborn about it? So he said, I asked the, I asked the employee about this, why he did that, and he didn't really have an answer for me. He did say that he really believed the barcode was what would make it work, and he was operating on very old information that at one time you did need the barcode, but it's been a very long time since that was the case, and I don't know why he didn't know that, and I don't know why he wasn't following my instructions to just give the credit like I've told everybody, including him, many times. And when I asked him about it, the manager said he didn't really have an answer other than that he really thought this was what was necessary to do. He said that he asked the cashier 
even if you were right, why were you fighting so hard to make a customer unhappy over a matter of $12 and a $12 that we definitely owed him anyway? And the cashier he didn't have an answer to that either. He couldn't explain why it was so important to prevent me from getting that $12. He said, let's say you were right here. Is it really worth making this customer walk out angry over a matter of $12? But here the customer actually showed you that he was right and that he really was entitled to that discount and he still wouldn't do it and were demanding that he reset the password and wouldn't help him. And so the cashier said, yeah, I, I don't... I don't know why I did that. I kind of got caught up in the moment. I don't know why I did it. So he, he couldn't explain it. And the truth was, it was just punishment. It was just passive-aggressive punishment. He just didn't want to say that to the manager. But the manager knew. The manager knew, you know, a non-answer basically meant he was doing it maliciously. But he said that had it just been for all this other stuff, without the thanking of the customer who was harassing me, that he wouldn't have taken this to HR. He said it was that factor that made me take it to HR it was that factor that made this a major incident. That's what the manager told me. I asked, did you pull up the footage and see the way that customer was treating me and the way he was getting in my face? He said, yes, we did. We saw that happen multiple times. And we brought that up with HR also, that a customer behaving this way to another customer to thank that person is egregiously bad. And apparently this guy could not explain either why he thanked the customer. We know why he thanked the customer, but... He didn't want to admit this to HR or his manager, why he thanked that customer. So he's on the thinnest of thin ice, this guy. The manager then wanted to give me $50 in gift cards, which I kept turning down. He tried twice to give me the gift cards. And I kept saying, that's not why I'm doing this. That's not why I reported this. I reported this because of this guy's egregiously bad behavior that was so obnoxious and so bad and so shocking that uh, I, I had to report this. That, that was the purpose for me going to you. I, I'm not trying to get anything for free. And you might not believe me. You might say, wait a minute. Druff is really turning down $50 worth of free groceries? Especially from an incident that really was distressing? But yes, I was turning it down... Because I was telling the truth. That wasn't the reason I went to the manager. I was not ever thinking, oh, maybe I'll get some free stuff out of this. Turn that music off. See, that doesn't apply here. I wasn't trying to get free stuff. In fact, I didn't want to take the gift cards because I didn't want him to think there's even like a 1% chance that's why I'm doing it. Because that's not why I was doing it. Well, he kept insisting. And on the third time he tried to insist and said, look, this is important that you take these gift cards because this was a very bad incident that shouldn't have happened. There were a lot of bad mistakes that were made. And you helped us by bringing this to our attention that most people would have just walked out and never came back. And you brought this to my attention. And not only did the employee in question admit to everything, but everybody I asked about this that was around and the camera, it all verified every bit of your story. So everything you told me was right. There were a lot of violations of policy here. The only way we can improve is by getting these type of reports. So this helped us here. And I really want you to have these gift cards. So I took them. When I took them, I made one more speech that, again, like I, I wasn't ever asking for anything like this. And I wasn't hoping to get anything free out of this. I really just wanted him to know. And he said, oh, no, I, I fully believe that. I had some people criticizing me, saying, look what you did here, Druff. You almost got the guy fired, and he's on like 
the very thinnest of ice that the slightest thing he does wrong now, he's going to get canned. Why did you do this to this poor guy? I mean, yeah, he was a jerk. Yeah, he was inappropriate with some of the things he did. But this guy's just a working employee. You have a lot more money than this guy. You're in a lot better position than this guy. Why would you do that to him? Here's my answer. If you use your job to inconvenience me or show me up or do anything for the sake of your ego on purpose, then I'm going to let your manager know. I'm not going to lie about you. I'm not going to exaggerate about you. I'm not going to say anything which is any different from the truth, but I'm going to basically be the eyes for your manager. So your manager then can take a look at the situation and see if this is something that he wants out of you as an employee. Now, I'm not going to do that if it's something that's not my business. Like, let's say I see an employee smoking pot during the break and it's against company policy to smoke pot. I'm never going to report that. It's none of my business. It's victimless. Who gives a crap? Or even if I see an employee mistreating another customer. Well, I'm not going to get involved in that because that's up to the other customer to complain about. I'm not going to go be a snitch about things involving other people. Or let's say a customer, or let's say an employee makes a mistake and b- drops something and breaks it that belongs to the store. I'm not going to go to the manager and say, "Hey, do you see who broke that?" I'm, I'm not. You know, these things aren't my business. Or even if there's an accidental mistake, which causes me some kind of inconvenience or even some minor harm, I'm still not going to report it. I, I've given this example a number of times, but in 2009 at the World Series of Poker. A janitor opened the bathroom door too fast and too aggressively, and I happened to be reaching for the door at that point, and it slammed into my hand and made one of the biggest cuts I've ever had. The thing was bleeding for like over an hour, even though I'm putting pressure on it, and it made a giant cut on my on my hand. I went to go get a Band-Aid, actually a few Band-Aids, from security, and they kept wanting me to fill out a report. And I refused to fill out a report because I didn't want this guy getting in any trouble because it was an accident. Even though I had this gaping hole in my hand that was bleeding, I didn't want to report this guy in any way because I could tell he felt bad. It was a fluke accident. Yeah, he opened the door too fast, but whatever. I didn't want to get a guy in trouble for that. So I refused to file a report. They kept saying, we can't give you a Band-Aid until you file a report. I said, that doesn't make any sense. Just give me the damn Band-Aids. They finally gave me the damn Band-Aids. And I never filed a report. Never said who caused this. I just kept saying that, you know, I've got this cut. It happened on the bathroom door. Can you just give me the Band-Aids? Never even told them how it happened on purpose because I didn't want to get the guy fired. I didn't want to get the guy in trouble or written up or anything because it was an accident and he was gracious about it. So I don't take pleasure in seeing people get in trouble or get fired, even in situations like that where I've got a big-ass cut in my hand that's bleeding all over the place. It's only when it's something spiteful. It's only when it's something where they're purposely using their position to screw with me in some way. When that happens, yeah, then I'm going to tell their manager. And I can't fire anybody. They don't work for me. So all I can do is tell the manager what really happened. I mean, I could be a dick and lie about it, but I don't do that. I tell the manager what really happened. And if the manager thinks that this true story is a good enough reason to discipline or fire an employee, then that's on him. All I'm doing is telling him what happened, and the only reason I'm doing that is because someone is using their job to fuck with me when they shouldn't be doing that, because that's not part of any job description is to fuck with the customer. If you go to any 
job interview and you say, if I don't like a customer, I'm going to fuck with him. Zero percent chance you get the job. Absolutely zero. So if they're not going to give you the job, if you say you're going to do that, why should you be able to do that once you have the job? So if you use the job to fuck with me, I'm going to tell the manager. I'm going to tell him the truth. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to exaggerate. So that's what I did here. But you know what? If the thing with thanking the guy had never happened, I would not have gone to the store manager. Even with the bullshit I was put through with the barcode and the password, I wouldn't have done it because it doesn't quite rise to the level where I should go to the manager and report the guy. All I wanted was to get the correct price and be done with it. It was only because of this other customer, which I I don't blame him for having this other customer there who was being a dick. But what I do blame him for was thanking the guy and encouraging the guy to be worse. Because remember, the time it came closest to a physical fight was after he had thanked the guy and made the guy feel like a hero. If he hadn't done that, I bet the guy would have walked away earlier. It was after he thanked the guy that the guy was extra motivated to further interfere and was extra angry when I was still defiant. I can't say that for sure because I'm not in the guy's head, but it seemed to follow. And either way, you don't ever thank one customer harassing the other. So anyone who does that, honestly, if they lose their job for that, too bad. That's an obvious thing you lose your job for. I mean, I'm kind of surprised he survived here. But if he got fired, I would not have felt the slightest bit bad. Because this wasn't just a customer mouthing off to me a little bit. I mean, the guy's getting my face, telling me he's going to teach me some respect, telling me to fuck off, telling me I don't know what he's capable of. And he's thanking the guy. So fuck him. If he gets fired for that, that's uh, too bad. That's a fireable offense. And if you don't think so, then you don't understand how business works. That's all I can say. Because no business would tolerate that. I think they only gave him this final chance because he probably had a decent record prior to that. I don't know for sure, but I wasn't told of any problems that he had before that. It kind of seemed like this was like he was given one more chance because otherwise he hadn't done that badly there. I was given a little bit of insight as to how this all happened in the first place. They said that they had just promoted him to being like a helper cashier, that basically, instead of just manning a cash register, that his new position was to roam around and make sure that all the other cashiers are running everything smoothly, and if they're not, to kind of intervene and help them, which is what he did here. And remember, I didn't object to that. So I think this went to his head, and I think this guy believed that he was like the king of Target, and that if he was assigned the position to be the helper cashier to help all the cashiers solve their problems, that how dare a customer tell him how to do his job? How dare a customer tell him that this barcode isn't what actually makes it work? And even if he was instructed by the manager, which he was many times, to just put the circle discount through, if there's a problem, he wasn't going to let this asshole customer tell him how the system works. So he thought to himself, how dare this guy? How dare you? How dare he tell me how the system works. I know how the system works. And if this guy's not going to bring up the barcode like I say, well, I'm just not going to help him. Fuck him. We'll just stand here until he backs down or walks away. When he said, I have all day, that's really how he was feeling. Because he did have all day. He was going to be there for the rest of the time till closing. So he knew I was the one who needed to leave. And that he figured that he just waited out until I 
did it his way because he wasn't going to help me otherwise. So I could either eat the $12 or do it his way. No other choice. That was his moment of power. And then it all escalated from there. Now, I had some people asking me, why didn't you just walk away and eat the $12? It's only 12 bucks. Why would you go through all that to save $12? Well, it's the principle of the matter. If the price is $12 less than what they're charging, I'm not going to pay an extra $12 because an asshole there is being stubborn. It's not his job to be stubborn. It's not his job to charge me $12 too much. I showed him all the proof I could that I was entitled to that $12 and he would not give it to me unless I went through this pointless exercise of resetting a password that takes 45 minutes to reset. That wasn't going to help anyway. So I could have walked away with the $12, without the $12 and maybe complained later or something, but I just wasn't going to back down here. This wasn't something I have to back down from. I want to pay the posted price. I wasn't asking for extras or benefits or any kind of compensation. I just wanted to pay the posted price from the app. And I showed him the posted price on the app. And he wasn't honoring that posted price. So I was not going to just say, okay, you're right. Someone said, why didn't you call for the manager sooner? Okay, fair point. That's the only fair point that people raised in this whole thing where I could have done something differently. It may have been a different result. Yes, I could have much earlier in the whole thing just said, you know what? You're not helping me here. Call the manager. And then he would have called the manager and then the manager would have fixed it with two keystrokes and then I would have left and thought the guy was kind of a dick, but that would have been that. And there would not have been this story on radio here. But this is not my job to have to do that. At the time it was happening, at first I thought the guy was really just trying to help and wasn't getting it. And it was only after a few of these where I realized that this was like a moment of power for him and a clash of egos. And at that point, I just wasn't going to give him the satisfaction because he shouldn't get the satisfaction for that. He shouldn't be using his job to mess with me. And I knew that's what he was doing. So I was trying to reason with him. And at one point, I even said to him, if you just put this through, I'm not going to complain. If you just put this through, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'll just walk away. I won't complain to any managers, nothing like that. So there's a last chance. And that, I think that was the time he started laughing. But basically, he refused. So I even gave him a chance to fix it, saying I was going to go to the manager otherwise. And uh, he wouldn't because he wanted to win. And that's not what your job is about. You're not, your job is not about winning over the customer. If that's what you think your job is, then you should work somewhere where you don't deal with customers. Then you should work in the back somewhere that you don't ever interface with customers at all. If you feel you have to beat the customer, I don't mean physically beat, but if you think you need to win a battle of egos with the customer and show up the customer and do things to prove to the customer you're in control, then you should not be in any kind of customer-facing position. Or start your own business. And then you can treat the customer how you want and then suffer the consequences when nobody comes back. But if you work for somebody else, you can't mistreat the customer because you feel like it. But I'll have tolerance of this to some extent, but, but nothing like this what happened here. So this was a case where not only was the guy unnecessarily stubborn just for his own ego, but this is one of these cases where he just made it worse and worse and worse. And I think he erroneously believed that because there was no manager at the time that he was basically untouchable. I think he didn't expect me to come back the next day. I don't know. It's weird. Because I was told this is someone who'd been there a long time and values his job. So it's not like he was trying to get fired or something. And he really didn't have any answers. I I was thinking he might 
deny the whole thing. I thought he might claim he didn't thank this other customer. In fact, I already had something prepared in case he was going to do that. I, I said to the manager, in case he denies this, pull up the camera and look at how he tapped the guy on the shoulder. That's when he said it. Look at the friendly way he touched the guy's shoulder. And that's when he said it. So if he denies it, ask him why he was touching the guy's shoulder like that and talking to him. What was he saying there? But none of that had to be done. <laughs> they asked him, you know, did you thank this customer who was harassing this first customer? And he said, well, yes, I did. You thanked him for harassing this other customer? Well, yeah, I did thank him for that. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that. I mean, he didn't try to deny it. I'll give him that. He told the truth. He, he didn't deny any of this. Basically, my entire story, this guy admitted, and he couldn't really explain it. He didn't do it in an apologetic way, like that, that he felt terrible for it. I wasn't told that. Just he was like, yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I did it. So they hauled him in to HR to talk about it. And I don't know if it was an HR meeting over Zoom or something. I didn't ask about that. But HR, wherever that is, for Target got involved. And they uh, basically laid the smack down and said, you do one more slight thing, you're gone. And obviously put this down on his record that he admitted this. So, And they have to do this in case he does get fired and he were to sue them for wrongful termination. They could show that he admitted on such and such date that he thanked one customer for harassing and threatening another customer. And that's, uh, that's a fireable offense. In fact, I was told by the manager that Target actually has a strict no retaliation policy. That if any employee is caught retaliating against the customer in any way, that they get fired. So I'm surprised he didn't get fired here because that actually would qualify as retaliation of uh, thanking a customer who's in the process of harassing another customer because he don't like the first customer. Somehow he dodged it, but I, I do believe that he's on very thin ice, especially the whole detailed HR story. So that was my target incident. Very unnerving. I didn't mean for it to escalate like that. I just wanted the damn price that I'm supposed to pay, you know? I don't take pleasure in getting anyone in trouble, but you can't treat me like that at your job. You just can't. I'll be the guy who goes to your manager and tells what really happened. But I don't feel any guilt when people use their job to screw with me and uh, I have to tell the manager what happened because I know I'm telling the truth. And every single time I've ever reported something to a manager, every single time they come back to me and tell me, yeah, the way you reported it, it you know, everyone verified this would happen. Like, I can't tell you, I've ever heard from a manager like, oh, you know, people are disputing this. It didn't go the way you said. Like anytime I've reported something over the years, it, I've always been told that it, everybody admitted this is the way it went. Often the one who I'm complaining about admits it, strangely enough. Because I don't lie about these things. I, I want to be honest. Yeah, I could exaggerate and make it sound worse to get the guy in more trouble, but I wouldn't feel good about doing that. I, I want to be honest and tell the honest story of what happened. And then the manager's, it's his job to decide what to do at that point. Right? It's not my job. It's not my decision. Someone gets fired. I'm not firing them. As long as they tell the truth, which I do, then whatever happens, happens. And again, I only do it in cases where something malicious is done, not something accidental, not something that's victimless, not something that doesn't involve me. So I think I'm pretty fair. And I don't, I don't do it for every little trivial bullshit that happens at a business. It's, all, it's only when it gets to something like this. But yeah, if you do try to use your job to fuck with me, I will be the asshole who goes to your boss and tells them the whole story. That I will do. And I think everybody should do that. Why? Because 
Let's say this guy got fired. What would happen to that position? Would it just go away? Would there just be no replacement? Of course not. They would replace him with somebody else. Somebody who's currently not working there would now have a job there. Now, who would they replace him with? Well, presumably somebody who's unemployed. So what would be happening is they'd be trading this shit employee for somebody who's currently unemployed and really needs a job. So I think that's a good trade, right? You may say, well, this guy doesn't deserve to lose his job, and what about him making a living? Well, what about the person who's unemployed who can't make a living? Why don't they have a job? Why shouldn't they have a job? Why don't they deserve a job? So why not give the job to the person who's more deserving of the job? Someone who's currently unemployed that would love to have it in place of the one who decides to use his job to screw with people. I think that's a good trade. So it's not like the position is just eliminated and what happens is we have minus one working person in the area. That's, that's not how it works. It's just replacing one with another. So that's another reason not to feel bad. But, you know, it's hard to tell stories like this because there was a subset of people that believe that if you're in a more advantageous financial position over the person you're reporting, then you've just done an awful thing by reporting them. Now, before I close out here, I want to compare this to another incident where someone reported someone, not directly, but they kind of reported it to Twitter, which got back to their employer. And that was the situation we talked about a year and a half ago, where Phil Galfon's wife, Farah, tweeted about a masseuse, and we had her on this show named Cynthia, who jokingly tweaked a player's nipples during a massage which was at the guy's request for a picture so they could do a little joke at the table. So it wasn't a sexual massage. It wasn't a nipple massage. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't sexual at all. It was something for a picture that was funny at the table and everybody could laugh. And Farah saw this and tweeted about how disgusting it is and because she has a fairly big following because she's Phil Galfon's wife and because she was a soap opera star. Of course, this uh, became a big controversy. And then, of course, it got back to her contract employer there who let her go. And we had her on the show. And at the time, I took Cynthia's side, and I, I still feel that way. And that's because this was a victimless situation. Farrah wasn't even present for it. You can't even say she was disgusted by it. She wasn't physically there. So there was no reason for Farrah to lodge this complaint on Twitter, which got the woman fired, because it was victimless. It didn't involve her. So that's where someone, especially someone in a better position than the one that is being tweeted about, just needs to keep their mouth shut. That's where you don't say something and tattle and get them to lose their job over something that was harmless. And I was very against that, and I had her on here, and I said that then, and that's what I'm saying now. And I would never do anything like that. And you won't find any case of me doing anything like that. It's only when something malicious is done. That's a very big difference. And there's really no good argument to help a bad or malicious employee keep their job. When someone who's a crap employee loses their job, it's good for the business, it's good for the customer, it's good for everyone except the crap employee. It's good for the new customer, the new employee who replaces them, it's good for everyone except for the crappy employee. So it's a positive for almost everybody involved to have them replaced, provided they really are a shit employee who's using the job to screw with people. So there's, there's no harm in reporting that if you've been screwed with someone's job. Don't feel bad for the person you're reporting. Unless it was victimless, or unless it doesn't involve you, or unless it was accidental. Those are reasons not to say anything. If it's malicious, say something. Because you know what? If you don't, 
then the next customer is going to be abused and the next customer is going to be abused and the next customer is going to be abused and most of them won't say anything. So you're doing people down the line a favor and you're doing the business a favor. If you disagree with me, you're welcome to text me 775-372-8355. This is a very long show. It's one of the longest ones we've ever had. Here's some comments we've received. I think this is not about my show. I think this is about... This person's going to need to clarify. I'm, I'm basing this especially because this person's texted me before and has always been positive. But this person texted at 7.32 a.m. This podcast sounds like SNL if SNL was doing a parody. OMG awful. <laughs> I think that's the time I was playing that terrible thing where this guy was defending Christopher Mitchell, which is not going to be in the archives. But I was just playing it to kill time when I was taking a break, so... I think that's what the guy means. If it's about this episode, well, what can I say? From the 585 regarding Phil Galfon. Galfon is partnered with Bet Rivers, who is positioning themselves to operate poker in New York and other states when legislation passes. Wouldn't be surprised to see Run It Once provide their poker software. I didn't know he's associated with Bet Rivers. Or maybe I did. I know something bought the rights to run it once software and him maybe it was bed rivers the thing is i don't know if they're going to use that software because it's not really ready like it doesn't have tournaments they never had multi-table tournaments so what are they going to do with that software it's got some interesting features but it's missing a lot of the basics i guess they could complete it but it still needs a lot of work to be ready for some kind of legalized poker site in the u.s but also online poker is not a priority at all for any of these companies because it just doesn't make money it's just not a money maker and it won't be until like there's a massive partnership between a lot of different states to where there's a big enough pool of players but so far online poker is pretty much a loser for these companies then the same person texted that mastermind thing is ridiculous though so who knows what his plans are (laughs) yeah it is kind of ridiculous the person in 559 said he was referring to that other podcast I was playing is the filler and not mine. Okay, thank you. I'm glad I don't sound like SNL doing a parody. From the 714, shocked tonight's return of Garrett Adelstein isn't a topic. I can understand how you feel that way. One, we had a lot to talk about tonight. I mean, I almost left out the fountain blue thing until Brandon insisted I include it. The other thing is that I'm just kind of garroted out. He just kind of isn't that interesting to me anymore. He wasn't ever that interesting to me, but like I've got less and less interested in him over time. And it's not just because he said he's never been a fan of Dandruff, which he did say. He did say that on Spaces. But even putting that aside, that he's not a fan of me, which, by the way, I think he said because I made some pro- Robbie Jade Lou comments. Not that I'm like on her side, but just I, I felt he should return the money and vocalized it. So I think he didn't appreciate that. But whatever. I don't give a crap what he thinks. But like, whatever. So he's returning to play on some other stream. If he was going back to Hustler Casino Live, I would have talked about it. But I don't know. I just didn't find it that exciting that Garrett's coming back to play live poker. Like, I, I just don't find it very exciting. So I had a feeling some people would want to hear me talk about it. I just. I just didn't find it that interesting. Like, I didn't even watch his interview he did with with Chicago Joey. And 
It's just something I'm really not interested in. I'm just not that interested in him, good or bad. I'm just not really interested in Garrett. From the 301, the one who tried to call earlier, he admitted that he was actually trying to call the call to listen line. <laughs> I love how like half the calls we get on this show are people trying to call the call to listen line. That's great. <laughs> then he also wrote, my stream is very unstable and it seems the phone numbers to listen live are not working, at least for me. Well, if your stream is unstable, you should see a urologist. <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't know about the call to listen line not working. I, I'll check on it, I guess, after the show. But I'm sorry about that. And I haven't heard complaints from others, so hopefully it's fine now. From the 765, Christopher Bitchell here. Please shout out my January birthday booty bash, one-time payment monthly of (laughs) $1,000. One-time payment monthly. That's so true the way he does this. Christopher Mitchell's had so many one-time payments. You pay once and you'll have his inner circle for life, and then he boots you out and says you have to pay again. One-time payment monthly. (laughs) That's a good line. This is the same person who called up the show before as Christopher Bitchell. Oh, wait a minute. How did I forget? You know, thank you for reminding me. Thank you for reminding me, Christopher Bitchell. I'm missing a topic. How did I miss this topic? Oh, my gosh. Last but not least, Christopher Mitchell has lost his channel. Christopher Mitchell is presently not on YouTube. Yeah. It took a long time to get this done. He came back on YouTube in February. So he's had almost a year since getting his third channel terminated and restarting a fourth one. Here's the history of Christopher Mitchell's channels. The first channel he was running from late 2019, that's when he came up with this whole gambling scheme, all the way through... I don't even know when, but it it lasted for quite some time. I'm forgetting when it was killed. But the channel was terminated for fraud and scams. And that was actually stated on YouTube when you tried to go to his channel then. That was the only time we actually saw a reason stated to the public on YouTube. It's weird how YouTube works. So clearly the first one was terminated for fraud and scams. The second one was terminated very quickly after the first one. Like, very quickly. He started it right away, and then it got wiped very quickly. So, clearly, what had happened there was that YouTube caught that he just jumped to another channel and terminated it for evading the ban. Then he did something a little bit smarter, one of the first clever things Christopher Mitchell's ever done in his life, and that was... He took over his wife's existing channel that she really wasn't using anymore. She had started a channel called Motivation for Mom apostrophe S. It was supposed to be Motivation for Moms, but it was Motivation for Mom apostrophe S, not realizing that it's not supposed to have an apostrophe. And that channel never really went anywhere. And it's such an ironic channel name because it wasn't just the name, it was the whole theme. She's supposed to be like this mom who's motivating other moms. She ditched her daughter back in Ohio. She had a daughter that was like 13 years old at the time, or 14 years old. 
actually younger than that when she left. She left when the girl was 12. She just got up and left and moved to Nevada. Didn't see her. Like, she'd see her every once in a while. She'd go back to Ohio. But on a daily basis, she wasn't seeing her daughter. She'd go months without seeing her daughter, who's 12. This is not like a girl who's 20. So how do you ditch your first child to move across the country with a career scammer? But that's what she did. But anyway, motivation for mom apostrophe S was kind of a dormant channel, but it had been around a while. So Christopher just took it over and he changed the name to keeping up with the Mitchell apostrophe S. And then eventually he just changed it to Christopher Mitchell. So this allowed him to evade that ban for a long time because he just took over an established channel. Not a big channel, but a channel that had been around a while, and YouTube just wasn't catching on no matter what we tried to do to bring their attention to it. Finally, I got tired of it and made a bit more of an effort to reach someone at YouTube. Keep in mind, YouTube's not easy to reach. You can't call them. And if you try to contact them in any way they really have bots responding to you that pretend like they're not bots. So you're mostly dealing with AI when you're talking to Google or to YouTube. Very hard to get a human being, and they won't even admit they're bots, so you can't even say, well, like, give me a representative. It doesn't work that way. You can't request to speak to a human. So we were getting nowhere for a long time with the third channel, and then finally we got it. Finally, the channel got got wiped. It didn't state an official reason, but we found out later that this third channel was killed for being identical to the first one, which we've been trying to communicate the entire way, that this is the same guy coming back, and they finally got it. After a long stint, he had his third channel. Then he was off YouTube for a while, and uh, first he wasn't mentioning at all that that channel was gone. The first time he lost his channel, he had this big cry fest about it, but then he learned his lesson from that and didn't want to give the, quote, dead broke jealous haters the satisfaction. So after he lost his third channel, he just acted like it didn't happen, and just used Facebook to promote himself. Eventually, he mentioned YouTube and just said basically he doesn't need it, that YouTube is a waste of time. He he used all these excuses why YouTube is something he doesn't need. Didn't mention the ban, just basically said that uh, he doesn't need it. But, of course, he did need it because that's the way he brings in new suckers. So he started a new channel, I believe in February, called Goat Life Baby. And that was the channel that was lasting all the way up until recently. And then one day, the channel was gone. But I'll tell you something. We did make contact with a human at YouTube. And this human at YouTube asked for some information, and we gave the information to this human at YouTube. Then we didn't hear back from them. So at first I thought, up. Oh, this is going to be a waste of time like a lot of things with YouTube. I thought they're just going to take the info and do nothing with it, as YouTube often does. But, lo and behold, a few days later, bye-bye fourth channel. So clearly that human did do something. I don't know how easy they'll be to reach if he starts another channel. But I have some ideas on how to reach this person again. And if he starts another channel, then we will do just that. And if for whatever reason we can't reach this person, then we will resort to other tactics to reach someone who can refer this to a human to see that it is all the same channel that keeps getting banned. 
But the channel was definitely terminated. It was not a voluntary closure. It was not a temporary closure. It was a permanent termination. We were not given an official reason for the termination, but it was definitely terminated by YouTube and not voluntary on the part of Christopher. And that's a great thing because that's the way he gets most of his victims. He gets a few of them through Facebook, but most of it comes through YouTube. Most of it comes through suckers on YouTube who believe he's really a big winner in the casinos and can guide them to become winners too for $5,000 or whatever they pay him. So people watch his YouTube videos where he is pretty effective at acting like he's a huge success story and really rich and living this lavish lifestyle, all based upon being a casino gambler and people who aren't very sophisticated fall for it. So without YouTube to do this, without people finding him on YouTube, Facebook's a different story. It's harder to just kind of find randoms on Facebook. It's different than YouTube, which is just aimed at the general public. Facebook's more about, like, connections. And he knows that. So he's off YouTube for the moment. And I think he learned from that second channel that got terminated so fast that you have to put some distance in between channels. So he's learned that already. That's why he took some time between the third and fourth channels. And indeed, it stayed around for, like, nine months. I believe we will get it down a lot faster when he starts his fifth channel, which will eventually happen. He'll start a fifth channel. Probably won't be for a few months, but uh, Christopher, if you're listening to this, I'm just letting you know. We will be right on it if you start a fifth channel. And I'm going to make this offer once again, like I've made so many times to Christopher Mitchell. Because he'll claim that I'm a dead, broke, jealous hater and that I just can't stand his success or I don't understand that he's a professional gambler and he wins all this money. And I've said time and time again, Christopher, if you can show me that you are a net winner in the casinos between when you started doing these YouTube videos about how you are a winner and now, then I will take down the 700-something page thread about you on Poker Fraud Alert and I will post an official apology And I will stop attempting to take down your channels if you can prove you're a consistent winner in the casinos. And no, I don't mean that if you happen to luck into some sort of fluke jackpot tomorrow that happens to erase your winnings, which is very unlikely to happen. But I'm not talking about that, that you can do it at that point. I mean, consistent winning. And the way we would show consistent winning is by having a representative of mine meet you, and they'll be very respectful. They won't bash you or say anything nasty cause any trouble but they will go with you and escort you to the cashier of each of these properties that are of my choosing and they will get win-loss statements that you will ask for and they will add up all the money in the win-loss statements and we will see if you've really been winning or losing overall and it'll be me who picks the casinos because the problem is if you pick it then you will cherry pick the ones where you happen to luck into a win i will pick the casinos and if this all adds up to a win and it's not from one fluke jackpot but something that's consistent because you've been claiming you win 99% of the time that you're a consistent winner support yourself so if i see consistent winning which will be very clear if that's what's happening. 
then I'll post a public apology and remove the thread. So if you're really the winner you say you are, then why don't you take me up on it? Because you'll get the thread down, and I will have to apologize to you, and then you can point people to it to show that Dandruff, the longtime professional gambler, is posting a public apology to you. But you won't do it because you know you're not winning in the casino. You know that what you're doing is you are taking money from suckers who think that you're a winner, and you're supporting yourself with that money, and then chunking a lot of it back off to the casino. That's what you're doing. And you're getting 35% of the losses on Bet Online as an affiliate. That's what you're doing. We know that's what you're doing. I know that's what you're doing. You know that's what you're doing. So that's why your YouTube keeps going down. That's why the thread on Poker Fraudler remains. It's because you're cheating innocent people. And I know you don't give a shit, but that's why this is being done. Not because we're mean and nasty, but we just don't want to see innocent people get ripped off. Innocent people who just want to find a way to beat the casino because they've been losing every time they go to Vegas and they think you have the answers. Stop selling a lie to people so you don't have to work. Make an honest living. Stop cheating people. And then none of this will be a problem. I got a response from Christopher Bitchell. He said, I can't prove to you I'm a winner, but I can show you my dick. Head over to my new website, throatgoatbloat.com. <laughs> Yeah, for those of you that don't know, uh, Christopher Mitchell was also a gay porn star for a while. Between the ages of uh, like 18 and 32. He doesn't do it anymore, at least not on video. But yeah, we have videos of that. Kind of disturbing videos, but we have videos of that. What a character. All right. This has been an incredibly long show. Pretty high chance that... I'm going to be splitting this into two parts of the archives. Otherwise, it'll take an eternity to edit. Well, there was somebody who passed away since the last show that this music is associated with, and that would be All in the Family creator, Norman Lear. He was 101 years old. This guy was already nearing 50 years old. When All in the Family started in 1970. That was two years before I was born. And he was already nearing 50 at that point. And he just died between the last show and this show. Norman Lear was the one who really brought edgy and controversial sitcoms to television. Prior to that, sitcoms were very light and stayed away from any controversial topics of the day. And he changed all that with All in the Family and other shows that followed. And, in fact, there were some very successful spin-offs of All in the Family, such as The Jeffersons being very successful, Maud, another one, and then even Good Times, which spun off from Maud. I know there were some controversies, especially involving there's a writer of the show and also helps create Good Times named Eric Monty, and he was somewhat cheated out of credit for creating a lot of this. This guy really created the Jeffersons with one of his scripts. He co-created Good Times and as of the 2000s, he was actually homeless and obviously broke. And some of this was just the way the Hollywood machine worked in the 70s that he didn't want to work with. And I understand it, but you got to work within the system, especially at that time. 
And some of it was his own fault for substance abuse. Kind of a combination of both. So it's kind of a sad story. I mean, the guy was very talented, and he deserved a lot more credit than he got, Eric Monte. You can look him up. He's still alive, to my knowledge. He's like almost 80, but he's still alive. Anyway, though, Norman Lear, very, very good at figuring out what America wanted to watch on TV at a time when most others didn't. Shalom. Shalom.